Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Telus. This is being broadcasted live and recorded live at 2 a.m. on December 11th, 2021, Pacific Standard Time. And I have a lot to talk about. A lot has happened with me personally. Some things have happened since I was last on in the world of poker and gambling that, of course, we're going to talk about. We've got some big stories. No World Series talk this time. We're done with the World Series, but a lot of stuff since then. I didn't expect it to be this long until I would come on again, but uh, some things happened. Unfortunately, some things with my health happened, and I thought it was possible that I wouldn't be doing this show for the remainder of the year. So the good news is I'm here on December 11th, which is a lot sooner than sometime in January, which is kind of when I was projecting to come back based upon what was going on with me. But obviously, I've had some improvement and some optimism in the situation, which we'll talk about as our first topic. There is no free roll tonight, so don't worry about that. It's just the middle of the night. You know, we're not going to have enough players, so we just won't have one, especially because people aren't even aware. Most people are not aware that we're on tonight. I said we were going to be on, like, at the last minute, I said we'll be on at 9.30. Then we weren't on at 9.30 because some things happened just unrelated to all this. So, anyway, we're starting at 2 a.m., and we're going to go all night. So, I guess this is good for those in Europe, and I guess those on the East Coast will be waking up probably in a few hours and finding the shows on. Maybe we'll even pick up Calwatt for that reason. I did tell him that we will be on when he wakes up, and maybe... Trader Risky will finally come on again because uh, we will be on for good hours for him, or at least for the second half of the show. Michael Nesmith is the reason I played that opening of the Monkees. There's the Monkees theme song. And I want to tell you a few things about Michael Nesmith you may not know. I first became aware of the Monkees in the mid-1980s. I shouldn't say I became aware. I first watched the Monkees in the mid-1980s. I knew about them since I was a little kid, but it just seemed like an antiquated show that had long been off the air. I just didn't have a desire to watch it. But in the mid-80s, the 20th anniversary of the beginning of the Monkees, I think in 86, they had a now famous marathon of the Monkees on MTV. And a lot of people were watching MTV back then. It's not like now. Back then, MTV was a huge channel, and a lot of people watched it every day, including me especially teenagers, which I was at the time. And I turned it on. Instead of seeing music videos, I saw the monkeys. And at first, I'm watching this. I'm going, okay, well, I've heard of the monkeys, and this seems kind of stupid. But then as I watched, I'm like, you know what? These guys are pretty funny. And I didn't mean to keep watching and watching and watching. But every time the episode ended and a new one began, I didn't find myself wanting to turn off the TV. I just kept wanting to see it. It was kind of weird. It kind of evolved 
in my mind as I watched it. I went from thinking this is stupid and like this would never make it today. That was my thought when I first saw it. And then I'm like, well, you know, this isn't bad. It's kind of funny. I'm going to leave it on. And like, oh, another episode? Yeah, let's watch this too. Another one? Yeah, let's watch this too. I ended up watching the thing for hours and hours and hours. I saw so many Monkeys episodes that night. And my brother came over and saw that I was uh, watching this and I told him what I was watching. And I told him, this is funny. These guys are funny. Come watch this with me. So he watched it and he enjoyed the monkeys. Now, it probably helped that I was 14 years old, I think, at the time, and uh, my brother was 10. But still, I actually enjoyed it. Now, the funny thing is I didn't watch much of the monkeys after that, but I got a lot of exposure to them because of that marathon. I mean, I must have watched like 20 episodes that night. It was crazy. So anyway, when I was watching the monkeys, the one who stuck out to me the most was Michael Nesmith. And I really didn't know any history of the monkeys. I knew very little of it other than just they existed and were on in the 60s. But Michael Nesmith didn't seem to really fit in with the other three. And I kind of liked that. He was kind of the, the quieter monkey who seemed a little more serious. Uh, he just seemed kind of different from the others. I was kind of curious about him. But I, I never really bothered to think much past that. And it took many years until uh, the internet became uh, popular and the web showed up and you could look up information, eventually, when I would hear the monkeys mentioned, I'd go, oh, you know what? Let me look up about this Nesmith guy. I'm curious about him. So I started reading about Michael Nesmith, and I learned some about him. But I learned more about him today after the news of his death was released. Uh, he's 78 years old, so he didn't die particularly young. He didn't live to really old. He, he died around the average age of men in the U.S. And I learned some fascinating things about him. Now, I'm sure you've probably heard a number of things today because of uh, him being in the news regarding passing away. But the most interesting thing, well, there are two really interesting things I found about him. First of all, when I watched the monkeys back in the 80s, something I noticed, and especially because I was watching on MTV, was that it kind of appeared that the monkeys had music videos in their show. It was a comedy show but they'd have what they called romps, and they were kind of like music videos. And I said to my brother, oh, that's funny. I, I didn't know they had music videos in the 60s. I mean, this isn't quite a music video, but it, it kind of looks like a music video. Well, that was correct. It actually was kind of like a music video. In fact, Michael Nesmith is credited in two ways for coming up with the concept of MTV, even though he didn't uh, directly create MTV, which showed up in the early 80s. The first thing was apparently those romps were his idea of people just doing zany things, kind of telling a story to music. So that was a new thing at the time, and it's considered an ancestor of what became the, mu the music video in the 80s. And second, he actually had a show in the late 70s introducing music that he was playing, and he called himself a VJ, which is the term that they took for MTV. Instead of a DJ, it was a VJ, and that's where the term came from. So he also came up with the concept of someone uh, introducing music on TV in between uh, the music they play, kind of like a DJ, except he actually called it a VJ. So even though, again, he wasn't the one who created MTV, he is cre he's credited with coming up in two ways with the concept that MTV became, which of course was very, very successful in the 80s. Now that's somewhat known, but here's what's lesser known. In fact, I didn't know it until today. Michael Nesmith won a massive lawsuit 
against, of all things, PBS. Yeah. Yes, that PBS. When you think of PBS, you probably think of a very serious network that dedicates itself to public service, as is in its name. And you wouldn't expect they would rip anyone off, right? Like you could kind of picture the commercial broadcast networks ripping someone off, but you probably have a hard time picturing PBS ripping anyone off, right? Well, they kind of did. They kind of did rip off Michael Nesmith and he sued them and won. So here's what happened. And you can go look this up. You can Google it. It's a pretty interesting story. It's a little bit of a convoluted story. And I took some time to actually decipher this today so I can explain it to you and you can understand what happened. I think I understand what happened, but it I was having a hard time coming up with an article that explained it in a clear and concise fashion. Everything I found from the late 90s when the articles came out about him winning the lawsuit were, was very confusing. It was, it was poorly written. So I'm going to try to make this clear so people can uh, understand at least as much as I understand it. So Michael Nesmith, you have to understand, after the monkeys were over, and they didn't last very long, after the monkeys were over, he sort of resented his time on the show, which I think is stupid. I think it's stupid when someone is wildly successful when they catch some big break in show business and then they resent the fact that they're typecast. Now, yeah, that's kind of a pain in the ass, but at least people knew who Mike Nesmith was. It's very, very hard to make it in music or in acting without some kind of edge. There's a lot of really good musicians out there who never make it, a lot of really good actors out there who never make it. Very, very, very tough to succeed in those professions. So you should not resent any opportunity you get, even if it's not ideal. The reason he felt it wasn't ideal is because Michael Nesmith was the only one of the monkeys who had any kind of musical background. The band was put together not because these guys knew each other. It was actually put together via an ad that they were looking for four, quote, crazy boys to be in a show that is modeled after the Beatles. It was, remember, a TV show. It was not uh, really expected to be a band that anyone would actually listen to. Now, they did end up having hit songs, but that wasn't what the goal was initially with the Monkees. They were supposed to be just like actors. So he resented that he, ra- he, he and the others did not have control of their own band. The Monkees were so produced, they were so fabricated that others were in control of the band. They, they had no creative control. They could not make their own decisions. The other three were fine with it because they didn't have a musical background. They were just happy to be on this show and to be famous. But Michael Nesmith is like, hey, I'm a real musician, and this pisses me off that I can't control, I can't at least have a quarter of a say in my own band. So that was always a source of resentment for him. He also was resenting the fact that since he was typecast as a monkey, especially because by the end of the monkeys, everyone knew that it was a fabricated band and that uh, they weren't playing their own instruments. And a lot of news came out about them that kind of made them like a joke in some ways. So he felt he would never be taken seriously as a musician. Eventually, he left music. And one of the things he did afterwards, as I mentioned, he, he did a number of things, including that show that was kind of a forerunner to MTV in the late 70s. But In the early 90s, he had a company called Pacific Arts. It was actually started in the the 80s, but it 
really got going in the early 90s. In fact, right in early 1990 is when Pacific Arts had its biggest break. Now, Pacific Arts had nothing to do with music. Pacific Arts was a video distribution company, and he had the money to fund this, not necessarily because of his notoriety in the monkeys or anything he did since then, but because his mom happened to be the one who invented liquid paper. I kid you not. You probably saw that in the news, but his mom invented liquid paper because she was a secretary, and uh, when electric typewriters showed up and when there were mistakes that the that would happen when you type on the electric typewriter, uh, she's like, you know, it'd be great if we had some way to correct mistakes. And uh, she came up with liquid paper, and it ended up being very successful. You don't see it much anymore, but uh, for many decades, liquid paper is very successful. So he had access to some of that family money, and he used that to back Pacific Arts, which was uh, distributing videotapes of content. He wasn't selling physical videotapes. He was selling tapes of content that people would buy. Remember, you'd, you'd see that on TV where you can buy such and such videotape of, of whatever for uh, 19 plus shipping. So that, that's what Pacific Arts did. I'm not sure why he chose that particular uh, profession there, because as far as I know, he didn't have experience in that, but that was what he did, and he founded that company. Well, their big break was in early 1990, when they had an agreement with PBS to distribute PBS's content. So basically, PBS had a collection of shows that were uh, mostly produced independently and then uh, licensed to PBS for broadcast. And some people wanted to have a library of these shows, such as uh, Masterpiece Theater and and some other uh, shows that were popular on PBS at the time. A lot of people wanted to have access to these at any time, not just when PBS would broadcast them. And they didn't feel like uh, recording them themselves on on their VCR. So the the videotape industry with the the content on videotape industry was actually fairly big in the 80s and 90s. So Pacific Arts got this great contract with PBS to distribute – the content of shows appearing on PBS. And the way they would do it is they would make licensing agreements with the content producers and they would they would uh, basically distribute it and uh, PBS would get some of the money, Pacific Arts would get some of the money, and then a licensing fee was going to be paid to the content creator because, of course, they got to get their cut too. Well, the problem happened that it was actually too successful. How's that a problem? Well, there was such a high demand for these videos that they were having a hard time with their operational budget. And I have to imagine some uh, mismanagement occurred. So they were having a hard time both distributing all these videos at this breakneck rate and all the overhead involved in doing so, and also kicking enough money over to the content creators who had licensing agreements with them. So I think there was some mismanagement because obviously they had plenty of money coming in because they were getting uh, the money and then they had to pay their share to PBS and to the to the licensors. So obviously there should have been a way to do this, but I think they just really weren't prepared and they started falling further and further behind with the payments to both PBS and to the licensors. So within about a year and a half, PBS realized that there was a problem. PBS realized that 
Pacific Arch, they're just not quite up to the task. They're uh, having big budgetary issues, and PBS was thrilled everything was doing so well, but they needed someone else to distribute their videos. They kind of realized that. However, there was a contract in place, but PBS uh, didn't want to disrupt anything. So there were ongoing negotiations about what they're going to do about this, and for a while, PBS was helping keep Pacific Arts afloat and was was giving the money and was was, was paying some of the content creators uh, when Pacific Arts couldn't, but it became clear that Pacific Arts just couldn't get its budget in order, and PBS kind of wanted out. Now, that's fine. You may say, well, where's the scam there? kind of sounds like the other way around. It kind of seems like uh, PBS got the raw end of the deal. Well, up until then, they did. However, PBS did something very shady to Nesmith and Pacific Arts, which, remember, was his company, to get out of the whole deal with minimal disruption. So PBS quietly started shopping around for other distributors, and they found Turner Home Video. Now, yes, it's that same Turner, Ted Turner's company, TBS, uh, CNN, all that. You know, they, they had a home video uh, version, and they wanted to take over this lucrative market to sell the PBS videos at the time. And this was and this is '93. The problem was that uh, Pacific Arts was in such trouble that uh, Nesmith kept saying, "Look, I just want to declare bankruptcy. I want Pacific Arts, not, not him personally, but he wanted Pacific Arts to declare bankruptcy and uh, reorganize the company and, and hope to keep the thing afloat." So PBS was panicking. They said, "Crap." We can't have Pacific Arts declare bankruptcy. It will disrupt this whole thing. The content creators will panic. And uh, we're going to have a a lag in producing these videos. The whole thing is going to throw a huge wrench into a very successful operation. We don't want this to happen. We want a smooth transition. But how can we do it? Well, the only way they could do it, they thought, was to lie to Nesmith. So they told Nesmith, wait, 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 wait. No, don't declare bankruptcy. It's cool. We'll still work with you. Keep distributing. Uh, we'll find a way out of this. Just don't do it. If you declare bankruptcy, it's going to mess everything up. We're going to stay with you. I, I know you think we're going to drop you, but we're not. We're going to stay with you. We're going to make it okay. So Nesmith thought, okay, well, I kind of want to declare bankruptcy and save the company. But if PBS is going to keep us afloat in the meantime, while we're trying to f- still figure out how to solve this, okay, I won't declare bankruptcy. So PBS was really just buying time. And what they were really doing is quietly convincing all the content creators to move their content over to Turner. Not very nice. So Nesmith's sitting here the whole time thinking PBS is going to continue to work with him and help save Pacific Arts and help save their agreement. And then just one day they pull the rug out and say, sorry. We are terminating our agreement, and we have a right to do so because you weren't performing, you were not paying us, you weren't paying the content creators as you had agreed, so you have broken the contract, which which he had, but uh, they lied to him prior to dropping that bomb on him. They didn't want this uh, period in between where he could declare bankruptcy and a lot of havoc would follow. So he was, of course, really pissed off. Well, Pacific Arts crashed and burned. And then he and Pacific Arts got sued because, remember, he still owed a lot of back money for these licensing fees, and he owed back money to PBS. Well, he filed a counterclaim, and he was suing PBS back for basically lying to him and 
not dealing in good faith, which from what I can see of the news stories that I read now from back in 1999, it looks like uh, he really wasn't dealt with in good faith. It looked like they just decided to do what was best for PVS and they, they didn't care if they screwed him and the company over. Now, PBS probably felt, hey, you know, they didn't perform. They put us in a pickle here, so F him. And I can kind of get that thinking, but you can't do that. You you can't lie to the other side in order to make the easiest transition for your company. It sucks when these things don't work out, but uh, they really did deal with Pacific Arts and Nesmith in bad faith, most notably repeatedly asking him not to declare bankruptcy. And that ended up being a real killer to PBS in court, they had a hard time explaining why they were telling him not to declare bankruptcy when he kept saying that Pacific Arts needs to if they were really looking to move over to somebody else. It looked very selfish on their part. Anyway, they lost big in the lawsuit. And uh, when the whole thing was over, not only did Pacific Arts and Nesmith win, but uh, they were awarded... $100 billion. No, but they were awarded a lot. They were awarded about $40 million to Pacific Arts and about $3.5 million to Nesmith himself. Now, some of that had to go back and pay the content creators who they had these licensing agreements with, but that was only a few million, I think. So most of that was just going to be pure winnings, and it was uh, mostly punitive damages. And PBS was pretty shocked. They thought they were going to win. But the whole trickery they did with telling him not to declare bankruptcy, uh, that did not sit well with the judge. And uh, PBS's uh, entire case fell apart and they lost the countersuit. Now, it's not clear how much Pacific Arts and Nesmith actually received because uh, PBS at first said they're going to appeal and they're pretty confident they're going to win on appeal. Apparently, uh, Nesmith was a little bit worried that he could lose this on appeal. So there was a confidential agreement eventually made where PBS would pay an undisclosed sum to Pacific Arts and him. So it's not clear how much of that 40 million Pacific Arts got and how much of that three and a half million that Nesmith got. But both of them got some. And for sure, all the content creators that were still looking for their licensing fees, they did get paid out of whatever that settlement was. That was part of it. So PBS did screw him. I mean, it wasn't a premeditated scam, but uh, PBS really did screw him and his company in order to make a smoother transition over to Turner. Even though Mike Nesmith is no longer alive, Pacific Arts is. Now, remember I told you it crashed and burned and the company uh, stopped operating. Well, they started operating again once they got paid. <laughs> so once again, they had funds and they started back up. And uh, obviously, they're not selling uh, videotapes today, but they uh, still exist today. You can Google them. Pacific Arts is still a company in existence, and it's actually been around uh, since 1974. But as I said, it didn't really uh, get going significantly until early 1990. So there's your little uh, weird story about Michael Nesmith. You can Google this. You can even find these articles from the 90s about it. It's funny looking at 1990s web pages because (laughs) they don't look very good. Now, I think some of it is because modern browsers don't display them the way they were displayed back then. But they also just look very amateurish. Because it's funny, in 99, I don't remember the web looking amateurish, but... When I look at pages from 99 now, it looks pretty amateurish. And it makes me feel bad that uh, our chat room on Poker Fraud Alert is actually from uh, not too much after 1999.
<laughs> Sad but true. Our chat room is from 2007. It's not even a joke. Our chat room is really from 2007. Okay, so uh, some quick other intro stuff here. I talked longer about Michael Nesmith than I expected, but some other intro stuff here. If you want to call the show, phone number 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary phone which sits on top of Mount Charleston and forwards to me wherever I go. That phone number is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. It's a separate line into the show. So you have trouble reaching the main number, you can call the Mount Charleston line. You can text me at any time. 775-372-8355. Some people think he doesn't really mean any time, does he? Like, I can't just text him at 3 a.m. Well, first of all, it is close to 3 a.m., and I'm awake, so of course you can text me now. But really, you can text me anytime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I will never say, hey, why is this person bothering me at this time? You can always text me, 775-372-8355. Whatever's on your mind, if you want to talk about the show, you want to talk about a segment you like or didn't like, or you want to suggest a segment. Some segments we do here are ones that people suggested to me and brought my attention to, which otherwise I would not have done. So if you want me to talk about something on here, I'm not going to guarantee that I will, but there's a decent chance I will. So you can suggest things to me. Just don't be insulted if I don't cover it. Uh, if you just want to say you're a listener and we've never communicated before, you can do that too. Just whatever. 775-372-8355 is the text number. You can get a hold of me 24-7. We have a chat room. Can't imagine there's going to be a lot of people in there now or any time during the show because... I have to imagine most people are sleeping or didn't know the show was running, but uh, during the live show every week, we do have a chat room that operates, and uh, you can talk with the other listeners there, and occasionally I look in there, and I will respond to certain things said during the show. So only bother with the chat room if I'm on live, but if I am live, you are welcome to go in there. You do need a forum account in good standing, a Poker Fraud Alert forum account in good standing to access the chat room. It works on every device, to my knowledge. The call to listen line is something very simple. You just call up and listen to the show. It does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, does not require a computer or the internet. No, 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 no. It works with any phone that can dial the United States. That's all you need to listen to the show via the call to listen line. It never buffers and never freezes. It's the only form of streaming media that never has a buffering problem. Seriously, think of any other form of streaming media that uh, you can listen to an internet show and it will never buffer or freeze. You're never going to find it except with the Poker Fraud Alert call to listen line. And I take pride in that because I hate buffering. I hate when shows freeze when I'm listening. So with that in mind... I designed the call to listen line to where it never buffers or freezes. That phone number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736. And there's also the alternate call to listen line, 641-741-1095. It is free if you can call within the U.S. for free, unless you have T-Mobile, and then it will cost you one cent a minute. And that penny I never see, unfortunately. It stays in T-Mobile's greedy pockets their greedy hands take it from my listeners and give none to me. And there's nothing I can do about it. Unless you switch from T-Mobile, then you can avoid that. 
But every other phone company, to my knowledge, if you can call the U.S. for free, you can call these numbers for free. And you can listen as long as you want. You don't have to, you don't have to worry about hogging up the line or costing me a lot of money. No, 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 no. It's not like that. I don't pay per minute. So listen to your heart's content to the call to listen line. And when we're not live, which is most of the time, of course, you can still call it and you'll hear a streaming rerun of the show. Just a show plucked from our archives of over 400 episodes we've done for almost 10 years now. And it'll just pluck one at random and play it in full, then pick the next one, the next one, the next one until we come back live on the air. You can also find that on the radio tab and... It does the exact same thing. If you want to listen to the show in archive format, which is what most of you do, most of you do not listen live, you can find us in many places on iTunes, on Google Podcasts, on the TuneIn app, which also has a way to listen live, by the way, on Spotify, iHeartMedia. Those are both very big apps. The Stitcher app, the Bullhorn app, which has its own call to listen line for the archives. You may want to check that out. And... You can also download or play an MP3 file of the show, which will work with any device. So if you don't want to bother with these apps and you just want to directly play the show in archive format, just uh, click the MP3 button on the radio page. It'll take you to the radio forum of Poker Fraud Alert, and you'll see all the episodes listed right there. And you can just click on the MP3 and it'll just play it. That's uh, one thing you can do. You can download it and keep it if you want. So a lot of different ways to listen to the show. You can text me if you want another way to listen that I'm not giving you, as long as it doesn't cost me much money and doesn't cost me a lot of time to do, then I will do it. I prefer methods I can set up to where it automatically updates. I don't manually upload the show to all these different services. It would take forever, but uh, I, ha I have it uh, auto-update through what's called an RSS feed. But you don't have to worry about that stuff. Just if there's some way you want to listen to the show that I don't provide, then you can suggest it to me and I'll tell you if it's feasible or not. Okay, so we're going to get going with our regularly scheduled topics. And I think the first topic has to be about me. The first topic has to be what happened to Dan Druff? Why was I off for all this time? Was this a recurrence of my psychological issues, the crushing psychological issues I had in mid to late 2018? No, it was not that, thankfully. That was miserable, and that knocked the show off for a few months. I wasn't sure if it'd ever come back. But it's not that. That was not the issue here. It was a physical issue. And it came on really, really quickly, which is why I didn't give you guys a warning about it. I, I wasn't starting to feel bad and say, hey, I wonder if this is going to be something. I mean, it came on real fast. So here's what happened. I was sleeping and uh, I woke up and I was very thirsty, which I, I don't know if that has any significance. I think I was just thirsty. So I got up and I got some water and I went back to bed and everything was fine. Nothing hurt. I didn't feel sick. Only thing I felt was thirsty. The only reason this is significant is because three hours later, I woke up planning to get up for the day. And I noticed my foot was hurting. And I said, hmm, my foot wasn't hurting when I got water three hours ago. What could have possibly happened to my foot in these three hours, especially because I know I didn't hurt my foot when I got up to get the water. I didn't hit it on anything. I didn't twist it. Everything was fine. 
So how in three hours is my foot hurting this much? That's kind of weird. And it also had like an aching quality to it. It didn't feel like I twisted something. It didn't feel like I banged it on something. It had like an aching quality from the inside. And I'm going, what the hell is going on here? But I figured, okay, no big deal. So I stepped down and it hurts a lot more when I stepped down. So that day I was walking with a limp. I was able to walk, but I was walking with a limp. And I thought, this is really weird. But, you know, weird things can happen when you're sleeping because you're, you're not in control of your body. And uh, I thought, well, you know, maybe I, uh, I twisted it the wrong way in my sleep. It was getting swollen, but it wasn't super swollen. So I wasn't that concerned. I thought just something happened in my sleep and the next day I'd be okay. So I went to sleep that night. I got up and I said, hmm, it seems like my foot's hurting more. And then I tried to get out of bed to go to the bathroom, and I made an unfortunate discovery. I couldn't walk. I don't mean it hurt to walk. I couldn't walk. I absolutely could not walk. And what I mean by that is that I had such intense, sharp pain in that foot when I stepped down on it that there was no way I could walk. It wasn't a matter of, I can't walk without serious pain. I mean, the pain was so intense, I could not walk. So I got on one foot and I hopped to the bathroom and I held onto the wall as I pissed into the toilet. Then I uh, called Benjamin's mom, who was in another part of the house, and uh, she went and retrieved some crutches that we had around. I hadn't previously used, but somebody else in the house needed at one point. And uh, she set them for me at the proper height. And then I was uh, kind of getting around on crutches for the uh, next two days. Now, given that I couldn't walk, I knew that I had to get to a doctor fast. Uh, The first day of this, I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to wait. I'm not going to run to the doctor because my foot hurts. Yeah, I'm walking with a limp, but... I bet tomorrow it'll be a lot better. Well, when I couldn't walk anymore, it became pretty serious business. I've actually never had this before. I've never had it where I cannot walk. That's actually never happened to me. I've always been able to walk. Um, I did have to use crutches once before, and this was over 30 years ago, but this was actually from an injury when uh, I fell off my bicycle. It was in college, and I had to use crutches, but the crutches were more just of assistance. I was able to walk if I had to, but, uh, you know, in college, you got to walk around the campus a lot, and the, the crutches were just uh, helping me not uh, put too much stress on that knee. I've never had it where I absolutely can't walk. This, that was the absolute first time I couldn't walk uh, because of uh, a physical problem. And, I mean, it, it, was, it was weird. It was not uh, something I'd experienced before, and it was something you take for granted. Once it's gone, once your ability to walk is gone, all you want to do is walk again. Like you see everyone else walking and you're jealous. Like seriously, that's how I felt. I felt like, wow, if only I could walk again, life would be great. And it's not like my foot was telling me, okay, well, it's going to be this much time you can walk again. I, I didn't know how long this was going to last or why this was happening. Remember, I didn't hurt it. I didn't strain anything. And I noticed the foot was a lot more swollen the day I couldn't walk than it was the first day. So my foot's swelling up and I can't walk and I have no idea why. So uh, I I made an appointment with an orthopedist, which uh, fortunately I got into the same day. 
And by the way, for those of you who criticize the U.S. healthcare system, this is something you can't easily do in other first world countries. Seriously, I, you, a lot of you may not know this because most of you are in the U.S., but this is something big you're going to give up if there's socialized medicine. I, I don't want to go into a socialized medicine rant. And don't worry, for those of you who uh, think I'm going to be defending the U.S. healthcare system as wonderful and perfect, you'll hear the rest of the segment. I have the big criticism of it. So uh, I'm not saying it's perfect. And uh, I had a bad experience, actually, which I'll get to shortly. Not, not with the first doctor, but uh, I will tell you of a pretty bad experience I had. However... One very nice thing about the U.S. healthcare system is that in most markets, you can get into a specialist relatively quickly, whereas in first world countries, which have socialized medicine, you are sometimes stuck waiting four or more months, not days, not weeks, but months to get into a specialist. And you have to have a referral. So if the general practitioner that you see doesn't agree you need a specialist, you won't get one. So it's not even in your hands to go to a specialist. You have to convince a gatekeeper to go to one, and it will take four months or more to get in. Look it up. I'm serious. That's a big problem with socialized medicine, and that's something I'm not looking forward to if it eventually comes to the U.S., which it might. That's one thing I love about the U.S. healthcare system is you can get into a specialist quickly. Now, some specialists are way backed up and you can't get into for a while, but then you just call around, you find one, and they can usually squeeze you in if it's considered uh, somewhat of an emergency. And I don't mean like life-threatening. I mean something like uh, like this where I can't walk. So I, I called up uh, various orthopedists' office, and, and, and one of them uh, did have uh, openings where they squeeze you in in situations like these where you need immediate help. Because often with orthopedists, you do need immediate help. You've, you've broken something. You've, you've uh, badly sprained something, uh, whatever. It's different than just a recurring problem that you'd like to be seen about one day. So here I could not walk. I wanted to be seen very quickly, especially because it was for a mysterious reason. So they saw me same day, which is good. They warned me I could be waiting a long time because they're squeezing me in between appointments, but that actually wasn't an issue. I got in very fast and they, uh, the doctor came to see me very fast. So that was nice. I really wasn't waiting at all. The doctor examined me. They did an x-ray and he said, well, the good news is I do not see any kind of tear or any kind of injury to the ligament because the pain was not like the front of my foot. It was like the heel and ankle area. The whole foot was swollen, but the pain was clearly in the back and in the ankle area. And he was telling me, I don't see any injury there on the x-ray, and I can see enough, even though this is just an x-ray, not an MRI, I can see enough to where it really looks like it's not an injury and nothing's torn from what I can tell. And he also did a physical examination of me where he was uh, touching and pulling on various uh, parts of my leg and my foot there to see uh, where it hurt and uh, where it didn't. So from his exam, he said it didn't look like anything was injured. He asked me, have you had gout before? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I think there's a good chance this is gout. Now, I've never had gout in my foot before. I had gout. I think I had gout. I can't even prove I had gout. But I think I had gout twice in the 2010s, once around uh, 2010 and once around like 2015. And both times it was in my hand, and one was worse than the other. The first, the first time was uh, my my thumb got just really, really big and swollen, and uh, it really looked like gout from uh, the symptoms it had. But before I could get to a doctor, I was actually on a trip at the time for the weekend. So by the time I came back on Monday, uh, it had 
almost gotten better. It had almost gotten fully better, and I said there's no point to go because I'm, I'm just about all better, so why bother? And sure enough, the next day it was completely better, and that was that. And then I got a second bout, as I said, around 2015, which again was in one of my fingers, but uh, wasn't as bad. And again, I didn't go to the doctor, and again, within a few days, it was perfect. So I never worried too much about gout. I never bothered to look into it or to prove it because these were minor attacks, and I never had anything that was too troublesome. Even the first one, which hurt a lot, was still in my thumb. So while it sucks to have your thumb hurting and swelling up like that, it wasn't something devastating or debilitating. But this, what was going on with me last week, was devastating and debilitating. I couldn't walk. And and my foot was huge, and uh, I couldn't figure out why. So gout seemed like a likely explanation. Then something else happened. And then I started to have some bad thoughts. What do I mean by bad thoughts? Well... Remember I told you, I think I told you guys, my elbow developed some pretty bad issues in late October to where if I even put my elbow down on the couch, like on the arm of the couch, I would feel a sharp pain. If even the slightest bit of pressure was applied to my left elbow, I would get tremendous pain, tremendous sharp pain, like someone was stabbing a knife into it. And I was a little worried this would affect my World Series of Poker main event, which was coming up very soon. Because you're sitting there with your arm on the table a lot, I was afraid this is going to be very distracting. But fortunately, this got better just in time for the main event, and it did not bother me. I had no issues of any kind during the main. I think I mentioned this on this show. And uh, I think I mentioned it in the context of thinking that perhaps this was because of the vaccine, because it was only about two weeks after I got the vaccine booster, the third shot, the Pfizer shot. And uh, I wonder, hmm, you know, this is only two weeks after the Pfizer shot, and I get this weird thing, which seems like a very bad version of elbow bursitis, which lasted about a week, I'd say. And I I wonder if that had to do with the vaccine. And and I really thought that was possible at the time. But it went away, and I was okay. And it wasn't debilitating. It was just very frustrating and painful. And I'd sometimes forget it and just put my arm down, and (laughs) then I'd feel like someone stabbing a knife into my elbow. It didn't feel good. So anyway, uh, my elbow started to hurt again. Not like it was the last time. This wasn't sharp pain anymore. It was kind of like getting sore, but in the exact same spot. And I said, oh, no. I wonder if this is all related. I wonder if the elbow thing was actually gout. And I looked it up, and sure enough, gout can cause or even imitate the symptoms of elbow bursitis. So I said, oh, okay, it all makes sense. It's It's got to have been gout the whole way. It's it, This must have been a gout attack that first happened last month and then uh, went away and then uh, came back in a different form in my foot. And uh, I figured that's what it was. And uh, I spoke to uh, other doctors I know personally who told me that that was their opinion as well. I was pretty sure I had gout, though it was not verified. The only way you can verify gout is by uh, draining the fluid out of the joint and uh, looking to see if there's uh, the crystals there, which are formed by uh, excess uric acid in your body, and see if if there's crystals in the fluid, then uh, they know you have gout, and then you get the 100% diagnosis. So I got a diagnosis based upon a theory and a guess, but uh, not 100% because nothing was drained. So I was told by uh, doctors I spoke with that the next thing I should do is go to a rheumatologist. Now, In the meantime, I was prescribed by this orthopedist an anti-inflammatory medication that was a pretty strong one that was supposed to uh, significantly improve things. And sure enough, it did. 
So by Thursday night, it went from my foot was swollen big time and I couldn't walk at all. It went from that to I actually felt my foot like de-swelling. I actually, it was funny, I'd take the medication and I'd actually feel the foot shrinking. It was weird. I've never felt that before. I've, I've had times where my feet have gotten swollen for whatever reason. I never had a problem walking, but I've had it where they've gotten swollen, but I've never, I've never actually noticed them de-swelling. I've just found they're just not swell, swollen anymore. Here, I actually felt it. It was really weird. It was kind of a good feeling, too. It was kind of like a feeling of relief. So uh, by Thursday night, I was able to walk again. It was painful. It was tough. I didn't want to walk very far, but I could walk, and that was a huge difference. Huge difference from can't walk to can walk, but it's very painful to walk. Because now at least I could walk. And then uh, the next day, it got a little less painful. And it seemed like that uh, it was totally on the right track and this anti-inflammatory was working. But I hit a plateau. It wasn't getting better from there. And it also kept yo-yoing, where it would appear to be going towards completely better, and then it would get worse again. It never got to where I couldn't walk again, thankfully, but it kept going from like moderate pain when I walk to a lot of pain where I'm getting pretty close to not walking again. It kept going back and forth. The other problem was that the anti-inflammatory was not agreeing with my body very much. It was uh, causing me problems. I was dizzy. I was uh, nauseous. My whole body didn't feel like it was right. I kind of just sat there not feeling right and not feeling good. I didn't like the feeling. It was just a crappy feeling in addition to the dizziness and the nausea that would come on and off. So I really didn't like being on this medication. It was also only a five-day medication, but there's also longer-term ones they can put you on. But I thought to myself, you know what? Once I'm done with this, if I can still walk, I'm not getting back on another one, even if it's uh, even if I've got to walk with pain for a while because this just isn't worth it. It's worth it to be able to walk. I'm glad I took it. To, I'm glad this helped me walk again, which it probably did. But I, just to reduce the pain from here, it's not worth feeling this way. I just didn't feel good. I wasn't like deathly ill or anything, but it, I just didn't feel good. And I, it just was messing me up. So even though at that point, I wasn't in such terrible pain from the, uh, the physical problem in my foot, I wasn't able to do the show because I didn't feel good from the medication. I was also very fatigued. So this just wasn't a time I felt like sitting down doing radio. So I, I needed everything to go back to normal. I needed to be off the medication. I needed to not be in pain with my, with my foot. I needed to be able to walk. I, I needed to at least be better in those ways before I came back to the show. Now, the complication happened on Saturday night. Saturday night, something different happened. Now, on the good side, I started to feel some improvement in my foot. But the bad side was that the other foot started to swell. And now both feet were swollen. And then both ankles got swollen. And I started feeling the swelling moving up my legs. That was not a good thing. And this was very late at night, Saturday night. So I couldn't just uh, stroll into a doctor's office. Like if this happened at Monday at 10 a.m., there's a lot of doctors that I could have seen, including my general doctor or whatever. There's a lot of doctors I could have called up and said, hey, I'm concerned about what this means here. Can you see me right now? And I'm sure I could have gotten into a lot of doctors to see me on an emergency basis. But this was not a time you could do that. At late Saturday night, there's basically two options. There's the emergency room and there's urgent care. Well, 
when I really started to get worried was when I started to also feel a tingling in the fingers of both hands. So I'm about 50 years old and I'm a tall male, well over 200 pounds. Obviously heart problems came to mind because swollen ankles and swollen feet, when it's happening to one, it's probably just a problem with the foot. That's why I didn't think of any heart issues when it was just happening to my left foot. But when both feet were swelling, when both ankles were swelling, and I was getting the tingling in my fingers, I'm going, what the hell is this? This is new, and maybe this wasn't gout after all. Maybe this is some form of congestive heart failure. Maybe it's some other serious condition. And I didn't want to have to wait until Monday, because even if I toughed it out overnight, you know, on Sunday morning, you pretty much have the same options as Saturday night. You really, you don't have any regular doctors you can go to until Monday. So I wasn't going to tough this out till Monday because I was worried, what if something major is happening? And how stupid will I feel if I die or something really bad happens to me because I was uh, dismissing this? If I was 20 years younger, I wouldn't worry because I'd be too young for anything likely to be happening to me that's very bad. But at this age, who knows? At this age, now I'm in the range where things can happen, where deadly things and very dangerous things can happen. And this was different than before. If something just hurts or even if I can't walk, that doesn't warrant a visit to the ER. But here with both feet swelling up like this all of a sudden and... uh, the, the tingling of my fingers. I went and took my blood pressure, which was higher than it ever was by a wide margin. Wasn't quite in the danger zone yet, but uh, it was getting close. Now, I chalked that up to probably being a matter of anxiety. Not the rest of it. The rest of it wasn't anxiety. The rest of it was some physical issue. The high blood pressure was probably anxiety. So the high blood pressure didn't panic me, but That was a matter of concern, too, even though I thought it was probably because of the stress of this whole thing. So I had to make the decision, do I go to the ER? And I said, okay, you know, I should. So I went. This was just a horrible experience, and it was eye-opening in some ways. And uh, fortunately, nothing happened to me. But I want to tell you about my experience and what I learned from this. There's not a lot of things I learn in life at this point. And it's not because I know everything. I don't mean academically. I mean, academically, yeah, there's a whole lot left for me to learn. A lot of stuff I'll never learn before I die. There's too much. It would be impossible to learn everything. But uh, as far as just life experience, uh, most things I've been through or know that others have been through and I've, I've learned from stories or my own experiences to where there aren't that many times that I go through something and say, wow, I learned something new about this. I'm glad I got this experience for the future. Well, this is one of those times. I learned something new. I'm going to pass it on to you. Because I I learned about emergency rooms, stuff I didn't know before. And not just because of COVID. So I went to the ER. And before you think, oh, you know what, Druff, you're just being a hypochondriac. You're taking up valuable spots, all these people dying of COVID. No. This ER did not have uh, a lot of COVID patients. If there were COVID patients, they were elsewhere. I didn't see anyone who was a COVID patient there. There were a lot of empty beds, a lot of staff there that wasn't doing anything. So uh, they they weren't frantically running around and, and, and barely squeezing me in and leaving some poor person dying of COVID uh, 
left in the waiting room. It, it wasn't like that. It was, it was it was fairly empty. It wasn't totally empty, but it was fairly empty. And uh, if you drop someone in a time machine from 2019 uh, into that ER, they wouldn't have said, oh, my God, what's going on there? They go, oh, yeah, it looks like a pretty light night at the ER. That, that's what it looked like, and that's what it was. So I, I didn't take up anyone's spot in case you're worried about that. Anyway, as you guys probably know, I have to imagine most of you have been to the ER at least once in your life because most of my listeners are kind of old. I'm not saying that in a derisive manner. I'm, I'm saying it that uh, I, I'm on the older side now. And uh, my age, I'm about to turn 50. My age is around the average age of the listeners to this show. We have some older than me. We have some younger than me. But the average is around my age. So this is not a young show. So most of you who have been to the ER by now, some of you have been to the ER many times. And as you probably know, when you go to the ER, the first thing they do is uh, something called triage, and they take you and they get a list of your symptoms. They do a, a very uh, quick examination sometimes, sometimes not, but at the very least, they uh, they get all your symptoms and they decide from both looking at you, examining you, and, and uh, also your list of symptoms, a description of them, what to do with you, how, what priority you are, things like that. That's very standard. One of the things they're supposed to do during that triage process is ask you what medications you're currently on, if any. In fact, that's such a standard thing to ask. You've probably seen it on every single form that you've ever filled out when you've gone to a new doctor's office or even a new dentist's office. You can't even go to a dentist without telling them what medications you're on. It's, it's a very standard thing, as, as I'm sure you know. They forgot to ask me. They did not ask me what medications I was on. And I didn't even notice because I'm not really thinking about how they're doing their job. I'm, I'm just kind of thinking, what is this? You know, I, I got to make sure I'm describing this to them accurately. I, I'm wondering what they're going to do next. Like, I'm wondering what's wrong with me, of course. That, that's what's on my mind. Not like I wasn't going through a checklist in my mind of what they should be doing. But the, they forgot to ask me what medications I was on, which is crazy in the ER. How can they not ask me what medications I'm on? In fact, it's very important for them to know this just for the reason of possibly that the medications are inducing this. A lot of times people end up in the ER because a medication either doesn't agree with them or they combine two medications when they shouldn't have and end up in the hospital. So it's very, very important to know what medications people are on before checking them in. They didn't ask me this, which is crazy. It was unbelievable they didn't ask me this. But I didn't notice at the time. So they got the information and uh, they told me to go back to the waiting room and they'll uh, call me in when they are ready, which is very standard. So I, I went back there. I, I didn't see myself as an urgent patient. You know, I came there under my own power. Nobody drove me. So I didn't see myself as a head of those who, who might have uh, more urgent matters than myself. I just pretty much wanted to be in the hospital in case something happened and also for them to check me out. And uh, if something got significantly worse, then I could just stand up and say, hey, you know, it's getting much worse here. Can you come look at me again? But I, I was willing to wait. I was not uh, at any point expecting that they'd see me fast. But the wait wasn't the problem. I mean, they didn't see me right away, but I didn't wait that long. While I was waiting, the billing person came around. And I'd been to this ER uh, before, and uh, they gave me a deal when I was there the previous time that they offered me again this time. ERs are often stiffed on the bill because they have to see you by law. They can't demand you pay on the spot. Even if they have a history of you stiffing them, they still have to see you. And the theory is that uh, 
the American health care system does not want to turn people away and have them die. So the emergency room is something that cannot turn you away because of your inability to pay or previous non-payment to them. They don't want people dying of a heart attack because uh, they had an unpaid bill. So they, no matter what it is, they have to see you. So with that in mind, they came up with an incentive. This I don't know when they came up with this policy, but it must have been years ago. They came up with this incentive that your copay to the ER, for which mine was $350. So they had an incentive that you pay it right now, you get 20% off. So, of course, that's appealing to me because I'm not someone who stiffs hospitals or anyone on medical bills. I always pay my medical bills. I'll sometimes ask for them to be adjusted if I think something's wrong, but I, I never stiff any medical providers. So for me to get a 20% discount, well, how could I turn that down, right? So last time I was there, I said, oh, yes, here it is. Here's my credit card. Run it. And they charged me 280 instead of 350 And I felt great, like I just saved 70 bucks. Well, this time I was going to do the same thing. And they said, oh, crap, Uh, we can't bring up exactly what your copay is because our computer is down. So we can take your payment right now, but we can't see the exact copay. We can't give you a a full receipt showing you don't owe anything. You know, we, we, we can just take the payment now or we can send you an email. And as long as you pay it within... uh, 48 hours, then we'll still give you the 20%. So you can pay later. I'm like, yeah, let's do that. (laughs) Because in the back of my mind, I thought, you know what, just in case there's some major fail here, I'd rather not them hold that they're holding my money already. I'd much rather be able to hold back payment if something goes wrong here. It was kind of like a weird premonition because I've never had a bad ER experience before. I haven't gone to the ER very many, very many times in my life. So I'm not one of these people who always runs to the ER. There are some hypochondriacs out there that seem to run to the ER every month or so. I'm not kidding. There are people who come more than every month or so. I have gone to the ER, I believe, like five times in my entire life. I was very willing to pay my bill. I wasn't looking to stiff them. But I also would rather pay later than on the spot just in case something went wrong there and I felt they didn't deserve to be paid and I felt like it, it either needed to be withheld or negotiated down and things like that can happen. So, uh, and, and I just want to be clear, I wasn't looking for excuses. I wasn't thinking, ah, I'm going to find a way to negotiate this bill down and, and I'm going to find little things to nitpick about. That, that was not on my mind at all. I just had this weird feeling like, what if there's some fail here and then I'll have very little power of negotiation with the bill? Because once you've paid them, they're not going to give anything back. So I said, yeah, sure, just email it to me. Well, that ended up being a good decision. As you might guess, there's a reason I'm telling this story. So uh, they took a blood test, and uh, I, I found out a few days later that they didn't even do a good job drawing my blood. They made a big bruise there. And when I went for a second blood test with a different doctor, uh, it was remarked by the lab that whoever drew my blood on Saturday did a horrible job and was, quote, very rough. So that, that was already a, a bad sign. I didn't notice at the time. It just kind of felt like a standard prick into my uh, arm where they drew blood, but uh, they took a blood test and they did an ultrasound on my legs to make sure there weren't any clots and that's fine. And then they brought me over to a bed and they said that, uh, you know, here's your nurse, which is a male nurse. And uh, they said, you know, he's going to be taking care of you. And I was expecting at any point uh, the doctor's going to be by. I haven't seen any doctor yet. Remember, a, I've not interfaced with a single doctor yet or even a physician's assistant. I have not 
interfaced with anybody except nurses and administrators. So I'm thinking, okay, well, the doctor will be here soon enough. So I'm sitting there, and um, no doctor comes. Well, right away, after they gave me the blood test, I, I'm skipping something, by the way. I, right when they drew my blood, I said, you know what? Since this is suspected gout, and I explained the diagnosis I was given a few days prior, I said, could you guys tick the box to look at my uric acid? Because it's a good thing to know. I, I know that doesn't diagnose gout by itself, but it's a good thing to know if my uric acid is high. And sure enough, by the way, my uric acid was high six months ago when I took my last blood test, just as a, a standard blood test I was taking. Uh, I did have high uric acid, even though I was having no problems at the time. So I said, can, can we check that too? And they said, uh, well, uh, we'll check it if the doctor wants to. I said, well, that's the whole point. I don't think the doctor's thinking of checking my uric acid because they probably don't even know that this is suspected gout. So can you please just have them tick the box? They just drew my blood. Can you have them tick the box to do uric acid? Uh, yeah, it's whatever the doctor wants. So I got these really weird answers. Like they weren't absolutely saying no, but they're kind of implying no. So I said, well, can you just go get their permission to do the uric acid? Like it's, it should be very little trouble. And of course, I'm going to be paying for it. It's, it's uh, an additional thing that's being tested and they're going to get paid. I never got a good answer on that. I had a feeling they were going to just stall me and then tell me at the end why they didn't do it. But the bigger problem was that no doctor was coming to see me. And I'm sitting and waiting and waiting. Now, I wasn't bored because I actually was smart enough to bring my computer there. And uh, I was actually uh, browsing the internet and playing Zed Run while I'm waiting for uh, the doctor to come. <laughs> so I had my laptop there as they were monitoring me. They had me on like a blood pressure and uh, heart monitor. But uh, the doctor wasn't coming. Then the nurse came to me, this is after some time, but the nurse came to me and said, okay, so uh, on your blood test, from what we can see right away, the, the things look pretty good. But as far as the swelling goes, uh, we're going to be prescribing you uh, some two medications here. So they told me some medication I hadn't heard of before. And I said, well, what is that? He said, oh, it's a diuretic. And I said, wait a minute, I'm on a diuretic already for blood pressure. And he's, you are? I go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I just realized something. You guys never asked me what meds I'm on, right? He's like, um, yeah, I don't think we did. I said, how could that have happened? I, how could you have forgotten to ask me what meds I'm on? I mean, shouldn't this be like super obvious? I go, okay, well, I'll tell you now. So I told him the ones I was on. And, and one of them is uh, hydrochlorothiazide, which is a diuretic, a water pill. So I said, I don't understand why I should be taking a second diuretic. It doesn't make any sense to me unless the one I'm being prescribed here is going to do something different than the first one, which I can't imagine it would. So he says, oh, so you're saying you don't want to take it? I say, well, I don't see the need to take a second one. In fact, maybe it could be harmful. I think the doctor needs to know I'm on the first one, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to go, I'll go tell the doctor. So he goes off, comes back and says, uh, yeah, uh, the doctor says it's fine. You can take both of them. It's not going to interact badly with one another. <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell? That wasn't my question. I wasn't asking if I could take them together. I wasn't asking if the two diuretics were going to oppose each other in some way or, or do something dangerous to me. I was asking if I should take basically double the dose of this diuretic. Because while it's 
a different type of diuretic than the one I'm on, why should I have to take a second one? It looks to me that they prescribed me the diuretic not realizing I was already on one. So I said this to the nurse in a more polite fashion than what I just said here. And I said, this still doesn't make any sense to me why I would be taking this second diuretic. And he says, yeah, uh, yeah but she, she said just to take it anyway. And I said, no, no, that, uh, I, I need to know what benefit this is going to give me. I'm afraid if I double this dose, maybe it could do something harmful. I, I need the doctor to completely understand that I'm already on one. Oh, yeah, no, she knows. She says it's okay. I go, I want to know the benefit of doing this. So l- let me go check with the doctor. So he goes back again. Comes back and says, uh, yeah, so uh, again, she said to take it anyway, but if you don't want to, it's also okay. <laughs> I said, what kind of doctor is this? And I said, can, can the doctor come out and talk to me? Um, you know, I can ask her, but uh, you know, she said, if you don't want to take it, you don't have to take it. I go, where is the doctor? Why, why are the messages being passed back and forth to me like that old game of telephone that we used to play in elementary school? You know, where you, you whisper something to someone and then they whisper the same thing to the next person, to the next person, the next person. By the time it gets to the end of the line, what you originally said gets morphed into something else by the end because people hear things wrong. That's what it felt like. I would say something to the nurse. He'd go run, give it back to the doctor. The doctor would come tell him something and he'd bring it back to me. So I said, why can't the doctor come out and talk to me directly? Well, you know, I'll see. Uh, but, uh, you know, she's, uh, she's sending me these messages. So I'm getting irritated here. I said, I'm, I don't want to take this unless there is a reason to take it. I don't want to take double medication of what I'm already on, which they only prescribed because they didn't realize I was on it already. He says, okay, well, fine. You Don't take the diuretic, but uh, I do suggest you take a potassium pill because your potassium is a little bit low. And I said, um, I'm already on a potassium pill. <laughs> he says, you are? I said, yeah, I was, I'm on one because... The blood pressure medication I already take is known to lower people's potassium, and indeed it lowered my potassium, so that's why I'm on a potassium pill. It's very common. He says, oh, so you're telling me you don't want the second potassium pill? And I said, no, come on. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe I'm in a United States emergency room and having this type of stupid conversation, and I still haven't seen a freaking doctor yet. Then I asked again about the uric acid. And he told me that the doctor was denying it, except he told me something else. He said, it's actually not the doctor. See, the doctor went home, he said, in the middle of this whole thing. And now he's been dealing with a PA, a physician's assistant. I no longer have a doctor. I have been downgraded to a PA. Now, I don't even believe that. I don't believe there ever was a doctor. There was a doctor's name associated with my case, but I don't believe he ever saw it. I don't believe he was even in the building. I think he was probably just someone on record that could be called over there if absolutely necessary. I think the PA was doing this the whole way. I think the PA was an idiot. I think the PA uh, didn't have a lot of knowledge, and and for her to even hear that I'm on a diuretic and tell me to take a second one anyway is terrible advice. And I, I verify this later with other doctors, by the way, that that was absurd advice. If they accidentally double prescribe something, you don't just say, go take it anyway. You, you know, we say, okay, well, if you're on one, okay, then don't take it. You don't tell the patient, uh, well, you, you should, but, but if you don't want to, then don't. Like, that's, that's not what a doctor is supposed to say. Anyway, she absolutely would not come out to see me, this, this PA. And uh, finally, she did appear. And this PA, 
this physician's assistant, who I believe was the one in charge of my case the entire time, even though a doctor's name was ultimately on the paperwork also. This PA looked very young, and I doubt she's even 30. And obviously she was inexperienced, and she probably was afraid to have uh, any kind of uh, argument or confrontation with me because you know there's these things I'm unhappy about. The, uh, the failure to find out what medication I'm on and uh, these questions I have of why I should take what she is prescribing and why they wouldn't have asked this in the first place and, and uh, why they won't test the uric acid when it's so simple to do. And, and so she probably didn't want to have these discussions with me and just avoided me, which you can't do. You can't just decide as an ER doctor, you know what, I, I don't really like what I'm hearing about this patient. I don't, I don't want to see him. You can't do that in the ER. You, you have to see everybody. In fact, murderers are brought into the ER when they're shot by police and, and they have to work on them. The doctor can say, ah, you know what? Uh, no, I don't want to save this murderer because he's a murderer, so I'm just going to let him die. You, you, you have to treat everybody who comes in the ER no matter what you think of them. So because she didn't want to answer some questions that would expose her own incompetence is not a reason that she doesn't see me. So I was never examined by a doctor or a PA the entire time. Why did she come see me? She came to see me to tell me I'm being discharged. She said, good news. Uh, everything looks pretty normal, uh, so we are discharging you now, and uh, I, I was given stupid advice to go see a cardiologist, which didn't make a lot of sense because they didn't see anything wrong with my heart, nor did they do any tests. They didn't do an EKG or anything like that, so I don't know why they're telling me to see a cardiologist if they didn't do anything to look at uh, how my heart is functioning, so I just disregarded that stupid advice, but uh, the big problem was I hadn't been seen the entire time, so anyway. I was very unhappy with this, and I uh, spoke to some doctors that uh, don't live in my area, but that I know, and uh, basically what I was told about this whole thing, see, I had a few problems. The biggest problem was the doctor did not uh, see me the entire time. I was discharged by the PA, but other than that, I never made any contact with the doctor. I was never once examined by a doctor during my ER visit or a PA. Nobody examined me at all, in fact. So that's a big problem in the ER that I never got an examination. Number two, the not finding out what meds I was on. And then once I told them, they still were trying to double prescribe meds that I was on already. So instead of saying, oh, sorry, we didn't know you were on these, never mind. I was told to, quote, take it anyway, which as I was told by other doctors later, that was horrendous advice and could have harmed me. So it was a good thing I turned it down. Number three, the refusal to test the uric acid, which that's a judgment call on their part. You know, they don't have to do what I'm asking, but it was a very simple thing for them to test. It wasn't going to be any additional trouble. In fact, they make a little additional money for it, and it was definitely medically justified since gout was something suspected and, in fact, diagnosed by a doctor a few days prior. So checking the uric acid while that's something which uh, is debatable. The only reason it's debatable is because a uric acid... uh, level will not indicate whether I have gout or not. You can have high uric acid and no gout, and you have you can have gout without high uric acid uh, in your blood. But uh, still, it's, it's, it's a clue. It definitely would have been medically justified if they did it. So the refusal to do it was kind of bothersome. But that, that wasn't the biggest deal. It was an annoyance, but the biggest deal was no doctor seeing me and also not asking what meds I was on and then trying to double prescribe me the meds and trying to push me to take it anyway. They also just didn't generally listen to me. Whatever I said, they were, I could tell I was just being tuned out. 
They were kind of listening for keywords. You know when you call up and you get a uh, customer service agent at a company that's located in the Philippines or in India, and they don't really listen to you. They pretend to listen to you, but instead they just kind of listen for keywords. So that's what they were doing with me. All they could hear when I talked to them was ankle swelling. That's all they could hear. That's all. They were obsessed with the ankle swelling, but they, they didn't hear anything else I said. And I, I felt like I wasn't being listened to. But again, that's subjective. I can say I felt like I wasn't being listened to, and they could say they were listening to me. So the concrete things that they can't deny, there's no way out of this one, was that uh, I did not get examined by a doctor or a PA the entire time. They didn't find out what meds I was on beforehand. They double prescribed the meds. And also, they transferred my case to a PA without telling me, which I found out later is legal in the state of California. So they didn't break the law there, but it's unethical in my opinion. Why? Because I could have gone to urgent care. And if I walked in there and they said, look, we just want to let you know, um, we're probably going to be transferring your case to a PA because uh, the doctor's not available right now. So are you cool with that? I would have said no. And I would have walked out. Why? Because I wanted to be seen by a doctor and it's a lot cheaper to go to the urgent care. So I'd much rather go to urgent care and be examined by a real doctor than I would go to the emergency room, which takes a lot longer and costs a lot more money to be examined by a PA. But I wasn't even examined by the freaking PA. I was examined by nobody. So this is a freaking disastrous visit. So I complained about this to the person at the hospital on Monday. I I didn't do it that night, obviously, because there's nobody complained to, but I waited until during the day on Monday and called up and found out the person I need to speak to to make a complaint about the ER. And this is what the person told me. First of all, they said they need to investigate, which I expected. I didn't expect them to give me conclusions right on the spot, not getting the other side of the story. So that was fine. I'm totally fine with them investigating. And I told them that right away. But they said, if what I'm saying is true, they do admit that this is a big mistake. If, if Again, if what I'm saying is true, which they're going to find out is when they look into it, if I was never examined by anybody, that's a huge problem. If I never saw a doctor or a PA until I was discharged, that's a huge problem. If they didn't check my medications and try to double prescribe medication and then tell me to take it anyway, when I told them they double prescribed, that's a big problem. So they agreed that if my story is true, that this is pretty disturbing and that they're going to have to take some action, but that they don't want to jump the gun and tell me that they're admitting any fault because uh, they have to look into it because they're, they're only hearing my side of the story. And I said, okay. And if you, you look into what they put down on my chart or my notes or whatever it is, and you, you, you interview people there, I'm sure you'll find the same conclusion that what I'm saying is true. So I haven't heard back yet. They claim they'll get back to me in about a week. It hasn't been a week yet. But uh, here's what I've learned. And I, I think you guys should keep this in mind next time you're in the ER, because this isn't just specific to this ER. Maybe it's different in other states, because uh, some states... Uh, don't allow PAs to take the place of doctors, which California does, which I think is a mistake, by the way. Even though there's some good PAs out there, there's some crappy ones like the one I got. So while there's good PAs and there's crappy doctors, on average, you're going to get better care from a doctor who has more training and experience than a PA. It is much easier to become a PA. There's less uh, studying. There's less uh, stringent standards to become a PA versus the doctor. Okay, so while there are some PAs out there who are better than some doctors, on average, you're going to be doing a lot better with the doctor. And it should be your choice. It shouldn't be forced on you. So uh, while state law allows this, here's my suggestions. First of all, I was told, and something I did not know, that 
you can request to be seen by a doctor instead of a PA. You have to request this in advance. Advance meaning like right when you get there, when you get to the ER. So if you get to the ER, if you're going to the ER, make sure to ask for a doctor. Say, I'd like to have a doctor, not a physician's assistant, who examines me and who actively deals with my case. Ask for that. Don't feel bad. Don't feel embarrassed because otherwise they may give you to a PA. I believe I was never assigned to that doctor. I think the doctor was uh, technically on record, but I believe that doctor wasn't even in the building. I think the PA was running the show there. I think she was doing a very poor job. I think she was incompetent. And I think the rest of the incompetence of the place was because she was doing a poor job running it. That is my theory. But whatever it was, obviously a lot of things went wrong there. And I think it's not a coincidence that a PA was in charge. So I think had I asked that, they would have said, well, actually, that's all we have right now is a PA. And I would have said, oh, never mind. I would have turned out, walked, turned around, walked right out that door and driven to the urgent care, which was right down the street. So that's honestly what I would have done. So make sure to always ask for a doctor. I don't know if you're in your state, it's the same situation, but it can't hurt. Make sure that uh, you're going to be treated by a doctor. Not just a doctor on record, but a doctor is going to be treating you, examining you, and dealing with you. And make sure that they can commit to that. If they can't commit to it, and you may end up with a PA, then maybe you should walk out. Unless it's urgent, like where you can't walk out, unless you're dying at that moment. If you can walk out under your own power, then I would suggest you walk out under your own power and drive to an urgent care, provided one is... Uh, semi-nearby. That's number one. Number two, it is expected and standard that you will be examined at some point by a doctor or at least in this state, a physician's assistant. So they cannot do what was happening to me where they're just avoiding you. So if it seems like nobody's coming out to examine you and you're only dealing with nurses, just demand, I want to see the doctor. I haven't seen the doctor. I have a right to see the doctor who's in charge of my case. And demand they come out and examine you. And if they try to send messages back and forth, say no. Now, that doesn't mean they can't pass a message back and forth if you just have a simple question after they've already examined you. But you have a right to be examined. And I was not. So uh, while I think this isn't going to commonly happen, uh, it's something that I didn't really uh, assert as strongly as I should have. I did ask for the doctor several times to come out, but I didn't... In, in everything going on, it was only right when she showed up, I was being discharged. I said, you know what? This is messed up that she never came out to see me even once. I was never examined. So I, I also didn't know I was about to be discharged. So I, I was assuming at some point the doctor was going to come out and see me. That was the other thing. But I, I was repeatedly asking for her and she just wasn't coming. She was refusing to come. Number three, always be aware that there's incompetence in the ER. So look what happened to me. If I just did what they said, people always say, oh, trust the experts, trust the experts. In fact, I had idiots on the forum questioning me, saying that uh, either I shouldn't have gone to the ER, I was wasting their time, so I got what I deserved, or um, I should have listened to the expert and stopped being a Google doctor. Well, I wasn't being a Google doctor. I was being a common sense human being who knew that I was being double prescribed meds I was already on and that was a mistake. So always sanity check what you're told. So instead of me just taking the meds they gave me, I said, whoa, 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 what is this and what does it do? And then when it was the same med I was prescribed, that's when I raised issue with it. And I just, no matter what they were telling me, I was saying, no, 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 this doesn't make any sense. Unless I can hear a valid medical reason for why I should take two diuretics, I'm only going to take one. And I was right. So I was told by two different doctors that... Taking, taking additional diuretics could have worsened the swelling, which you wouldn't expect. You'd expect that uh, diuretics would help uh, bring down the swelling, which they can. But if you overdo them, 
they can actually worsen the swelling, especially if it is gout. In fact, hydrochlorothiazide is known to worsen gout. So in any case, that was not the right instruction. That was uh, malpractice to tell me to, t- to double take the diuretic, which seemed to be more of just embarrassment, like she didn't want to admit that they hadn't checked in it. So, oh, yeah, just take this too. So always sanity check what you're told. And if it doesn't make any sense, ask them to explain it to you. Don't just assume the experts are taking care of you. You have no right to question it. Because this could have made everything worse if I did what they said. And I've since had that independently verified by other physicians. So what am I going to do about this? Well, as I said, I've already complained. But there's one other matter here. I've already... uh, inform them of what was going on, but I'm not a free consultant for the hospital. So while I would like to see things improve there for the sake, number one, of if I ever have to go back there, and number two, for other patients that they don't go through the same crap I did, but uh, I'm also not there to improve their hospital for free. If they'd like to hire me as a consultant, I'll be glad to, but I don't think they're going to be banging down my door to do that. So for that reason, when I complain about something at any business, I'm not necessarily looking to improve that business because that's not my job. I'm not being paid to do it. That's not my place to have to do. So the most important thing to me here is that I don't want to pay for this useless visit. Because look look what they did. They did nothing for me. I was never examined. I was double prescribed something I was already taking. I was told to take it anyway, which would have been the wrong medical advice. And then I was kicked loose. So that did not do me any good. And they violated several very obvious protocols. They didn't even find out what meds I was on. So, of course, I don't want to pay this bill. So I'm glad I didn't pay this bill. So, I told them that. I said, I'm not going to pay. I'm hoping you guys will come to that same conclusion. Now, I don't care what you do with the insurance. Uh, If you want to collect from the insurance, do what you want. I'm I'm not the defender of the insurance company. But I do not want to pay my portion. I don't want to pay my... 350 or 280 nor do I want to pay anything else for this this ultrasound or whatever else you did. I, whatever the copays are, I don't want to pay them. I shouldn't have to pay them. I got I got nothing out of this except a waste of time and malpractice. And I was told, well, we can't make a decision on this yet. We'll have to do the investigation. And I said, fine. And we'll see. Now, if they come back and deny everything, which they might because they're investigating themselves. So they may come back with a bunch of excuses and tell me I'm wrong, but I know what I saw. And I'm going to tell them no. I'm going to tell them I'm absolutely not paying. Now, what happens if you don't pay? And this spawned its own side discussion. And I think this is also something that's important for you to know. If you don't pay your medical bill, what they do is they will either do nothing or they'll send you to collections and and give it to a collection agency. Medical debt is extremely, extremely common, especially where ERs are concerned. In fact, it's so common that some ERs just outright give up on any unpaid bills. They'll they'll send you a bill every so often, but some of them don't even bother to send it to collections because it's so common that it occurs and the ability to collect from people is is so low. If if they don't pay in the first place, they're they're basically not going to get paid. The first place meaning within a short time of their visit. So a lot of people just stiff the ER because ERs are expensive and a lot of the people who go there can't afford to pay and by then the crisis has passed and they just don't feel like paying. So a lot of ERs get screwed. Now, I have always paid my ER bills, and I've never stiffed them once. And I don't believe in stiffing ERs. So I'm not trying to get out of ER bills, and I've never had 
a bill from the ER that uh, was left unpaid. However, this is different. I got no service here. I did not get what I was supposed to be getting. I did not get what I paid for, or I was supposed to pay for. So I don't want to pay. They'll get money out of the insurance company probably, but they're, uh, they're not going to get money out of me. So if they send it to collections, you may say, oh, Druff, what about your credit? Well, what about it? Number one, I have a great credit score. I have a really good credit score. So this is not going to drag my credit score down to a horrible level. It might ding it a little bit, but it's fine. I don't even need credit right now. But even if I did, I would still have no trouble getting it with my score already being as good as it is. Second, medical debt is often forgiven when your credit is checked. Now, it depends who is checking your credit and why. So for example, if your credit is being checked by a small operation, let's say you go to rent an apartment and the landlord checks your credit, the landlord will see that you owe money to a hospital, but then they will shrug their shoulders and say, no big deal. Why? Because if the rest of your credit is good, they're not worried about you stiffing them. The story they will see from your credit is an honest individual who's responsible with their money, but just didn't pay an unexpected medical bill. And if they've paid everything else except that unexpected medical bill, they go, okay, we're not worried about this. And that's the way pretty much all landlords operate and have operated for a long time. But what about larger businesses? What about when you get your credit checked for getting a cell phone or uh, get your credit checked for uh, financing uh, a new car, things like that? Again, they look at the bigger picture. And if everything looks good or mostly good, aside from this medical debt, again, it tends to be just ignored. It is very unlikely that medical debt alone will prevent you from accomplishing something which needs a credit check. It's very rare you'll be turned away from some transaction that needs a credit check if it's only medical debt. Now, there's a few exceptions. For example, let's say you have 500K of medical debt, and then you want to get a, a, a loan to, to buy your house. Uh, then you'll get some balking at it because the hospital could sue you and could uh, get this huge judgment against you, and that could affect your ability to repay the loan. So if there's some huge debt that you have medical-wise, then for uh, large purchases, this could affect your ability to uh, get approved. But aside from that, it's usually not going to affect you. Now, there's a few rare cases where some banks are real sticklers, and if you even have like a, a, like a $12 unpaid bill on your credit that you've got to settle it in some way before you get a loan, even like a very large loan. But it's uncommon. I've heard of this in a few cases. It's uncommon. So the bottom line is, of all debt that could be on your credit, medical debt is the best one to have. Of course, it's best to owe nobody anything. But if you're going to owe somebody, if you're going to have unpaid bills on your credit, the very best thing you can have is medical debt because that is generally forgiven because this is not seen as someone irresponsible. It is seen as something unexpected coming up and that people either can't pay or there's some kind of dispute with a bill. This is very, very common and it tends to be forgiven. So I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of them giving it to a collection agency. And in fact, if they were to try to put this on my credit, I would threaten to and possibly actually sue them because I did not get proper care here. And I think uh, I could probably win this one if I were to sue them unless they were to completely lie about what happened and convince 
the judge that I was uh, not telling the truth, which I am telling the truth, but that, I think that's the only way I'd lose, because this is a, a horrendous uh, case of malpractice and, and uh, failure to give me the care that would be expected. So basically, I'm going to play hardball. I'm not going to pay them a penny. And I'm hoping that they will just agree to write this off and be done. That, that's the main reason I went to the administrator and complained, was that instead of just saying, hey, I'm not paying the bill, I'm saying, I want you to investigate this and see why I'm not paying and agree with me, and then we can just walk away from this. And I made sure they understood. This is my final piece of advice. If you're in a situation like mine where you're not going to sue them, I can't sue them because I have no damages. Nothing happened to me as a result of that bad visit. It wasted my time, and it frustrated me, and it could have been bad if I double-took that medication, but I didn't double-take the medication. I have no damages, so I can't sue them. Now, if they were to put this on my credit, then I could have damages, but aside from that, I don't have any damages, so I I could not successfully sue them. So I'm not uh, considering any kind of uh, lawsuit against them, nor do I want them to pay me anything. I just don't want to pay them anything. So I told them that. I said, I'm not looking to sue you guys. I'm not looking for you to give me anything. I just do not want to pay you anything. I want to just walk away from this and you zero my bill. I think that's fair. So they're, they're going to decide after they investigate. But if that is your goal, like this is mine here, my main goal is to not pay them for this bogus visit. If that is your goal, be very clear up front that you're not looking to sue them and you're not looking for any money. Because otherwise they go into defensive mode. Otherwise they go into a mode where they're trying to prove they did nothing wrong. You want them to do a more honest investigation, and the honest investigation is more likely to happen if they know up front that you do not plan to sue them. So I let them know that. Some people make that mistake. Some people come really hard at any business they're complaining to and make it sound like that a a big lawsuit might be coming. And then that terrifies the business and they give you it over to legal and you're never going to get anywhere. So if you're not really planning to sue, it's usually... Not smart to say you're planning to sue, at least with a big company. A small company is different, but a big company, like, of course, this is, this being a hospital, uh, you, you don't want to threaten to sue them if you're really not going to sue them. And I'm not going to sue them unless they put it on my credit. So uh, I, I was honest about that and said, I just don't want to pay the bill. And I'm sure I'll have some haters who say I'm, I'm being a cheapskate and I'm trying to get out of paying the bill and I, I was a jerk to the ER employees. I'm sure I'm going to get all that because I, I get some of that on the forum. But I think you guys understand. Imagine you're my spot and they're prescribing you meds you already have. They didn't get your list of medications and a doctor or a PA will not see you the entire time. You keep asking for one, they won't won't come out. So I'm sure you would have been pissed in my spot as well. Now, what happened to me after that? Let's go back to my health. And why am I doing the show tonight? I went back and remember, I told you the one thing that had improved that night, despite everything else getting worse, uh, the one thing that improved was that uh, my foot wasn't hurting as much anymore. It still hurt, but I, w- I was actually able to walk almost without a limp. So it just hurt, but I wasn't limping. I was limping a little bit, but I, like, it wasn't a, a bad limp anymore, and I was getting close to the point I could walk without a limp. So uh, eventually the swelling went down, and everything kind of reversed itself, and I was fine. So as the uh, week wore on, my main problem was actually from the anti-inflammatory I was still taking. Not only did I have to uh, get off the anti-inflammatory, but I I had to wait some time until my body recovered from it. But it eventually did. I'm not dizzy anymore. I'm not nauseous anymore. I I feel normal again, except I, I still have some issues walking. When I say that, I don't mean I can't walk. I mean, I still hurt when I walk, but it's less than it was before. 
So I can actually walk usually without a limp. Now, when I stand up to take a break from this show, I'm sure I'm going to have a limp because after I'm sitting for a while, it seems like uh, it, it hurts more when I stand up and I'm limping for a little bit. But provided I'm not sitting for a long period of time, I can actually get up and walk uh, without a limp. And I, I feel it, but it's not terrible anymore. So I, I wouldn't exactly want to go out and uh, and do a, a five-mile hike. Wouldn't want to do a 0.5-mile hike. But as far as just day-to-day activities, I can do it and I can even walk around without limping. So that's a nice improvement. And as I sit here doing the show, it's not hurting because I'm not walking. Because before it was actually hurting as I'm just sitting there. Not as much as, as, as when I'd stand on it, but it was hurting 24-7. It's also hard to sleep. So that's where I stand. And uh, before I conclude this segment, and I'm sorry for those of you that are tired of this hour-long segment of me bitching about health issues and the ER, but that's how the show goes. Before I finish this, I'm going to bring up something that I bet is on your mind. And if it's not, it probably should be. The vaccine. Mm-hmm, the vaccine. I got the vaccine in the middle of October. Could this have to do with it? Because two weeks after the vaccine, I got that weird elbow pain I never had before, which lasted about a week, then vanished. Then I got this weird problem with my foot and my ankle at about the six-week mark after the vaccine. And then my elbow started hurting again. Not as bad, but I same spot in the elbow started hurting. Isn't this all kind of coincidental that I have these problems kind of shortly after the vaccine? I don't mean like the next day, but, you know, two weeks, then another four weeks, two different problems I've never had before, including one where I couldn't walk for two days and probably would have been longer if I didn't get on that anti-inflammatory. And by the way, I went to a rheumatologist on Tuesday, this past Tuesday, and I was examined and they did an MRI and I was told this probably is not gout. So I appreciate all the people that have uh, messaged me about uh, what they do about gout. Apparently, a lot of my listeners have gout because I got a lot of people texting me about gout and I appreciate it. And thank you for the advice I got. But I was told by this rheumatologist who is an expert on gout that this probably isn't gout. Can't rule it out 100%, but that it is very atypical for gout. Number one, my foot wasn't hot. Number two, there was no pain in the front of my foot, which is very uncommon for gout. The toes were not hurting. The front of my foot was not hurting. It was only the very back and the heel and the and the uh, ankle area. He just uh, didn't feel from the examination he was doing and from the MRI that it was gout. And the radiologist who read the MRI told the doctor, I don't think it's gout. So it probably isn't gout. What is it? Unknown. There was a lot of inflammation seen a lot of inflammation on that MRI. So there's definitely something going on there, something abnormal in there, but it is not clear what it is. So this weird, unclear thing happens to me that makes it to where I cannot even walk. That just comes on super fast. Remember, in less than 48 hours, it went from perfect to unable to walk. And I had that weird elbow thing come on for absolutely no reason four weeks prior to that. And two weeks prior to that, I got the vaccine booster. Hmm. Now, is it really that insane to think that the vaccine booster might be responsible for this? Am I being an anti-vaxxer? No, I, I'm just someone engaging in common sense. Now, 
Since I have gone through this, how do I feel about my decision to have gotten the vaccine booster? I get a lot of questions about that now from people who have heard that I've been saying that I think the booster could be, not as certainly, but it it could be responsible for what happened to me. So they've asked me, has this changed your mind? Have you decided that you made a mistake getting that booster? Believe it or not, the answer is no. Believe it or not, I, I do think I still should have gotten that booster. In fact, the booster may have protected me from getting COVID during the main event of the World Series. Remember, I was in a room for like 10 hours each day on day two and day three of the main event where actual COVID was in the room. And I know this because people in that same room with me on those days had COVID in their most transmissible phase, which is the pre-symptomatic phase. So there was there were actual people with COVID there transmitting it in that same room with me. I know this for a fact on days two and three of the main event. And I was in there for a long time each day and I did not get COVID. So there's no way to know, but that booster very well may have prevented me from coming down with symptomatic COVID. And remember, I'm not a young guy and COVID can still hit you pretty hard even on the vaccine, without that booster. So while it was very unlikely I would die from COVID being fully vaccinated with two shots, even with it being seven months, and it would be unlikely that I would be hospitalized, it was not all that unlikely that I could get lung damage or be sicker than I'd ever been or have other forms of long COVID. And the booster may have protected me when I was in a room where COVID was being transmitted for two days or 10 hours each. So, look, I mean, I, it's hard for me to say, hey, you know what? I kind of wish I didn't have that vaccine in my body. I, I kind of wish I didn't have that booster. Keep in mind, all the people who caught COVID were vaccinated in the main event. They just hadn't gotten the booster. So that booster may have been the difference for me. And that's why I made sure to get that booster before I went to the World Series. Because I knew that exact thing could happen. I talked about it before I went to the World Series that I was afraid about that happening, that exact same thing. So I think at my age, it is still important to give yourself maximum protection against COVID. But what does this say? If this is what caused these problems, and who knows what else is going to come down the line? I mean, I I thought maybe the elbow thing was from the vaccine because it was two weeks later, but I didn't know four weeks after that, I'm not going to be able to walk. So who knows? Maybe something else is going to hit me coming forward. So definitely there was a risk involved with this, and, and it's possible that I was experiencing some unpleasant outcomes from that vaccine. Maybe in the future this will be known. Maybe we'll learn later that things like what happened to me were found to have happened to a number of people who got the vaccine or got the vaccine booster. I don't know. Maybe they'll find out and cover it up and we'll never hear about it. Maybe it'll just never be studied. But it is very possible that this came from the vaccine. It's to the point where I don't think it's like an outside chance. I'm not sure of it, but I no longer think it's even an outside chance. I I think it's a, a substantial chance. But nothing I can say happened for sure or very likely happened but it's something like, you know, I, I could believe it or I could not believe it. It's, it's kind of in the middle, kind of 50-50 on whether the vaccine did this to me. And that, that's pretty high. So let's say I was 30. Well, I don't know if this would have been worth it then. 
If I was 30, the chance of me having a bad COVID outcome is very low, especially already with two shots. So at 30, it, it may not have been worth the risks of what might happen with this vaccine that has uh, not been studied very well because there just hasn't been enough time as far as the side effects of what can happen to people. And there's already a lot of weird known side effects from this vaccine that they've never been able to explain why they happen. They just know that they happen. Not deadly ones, but just uh, frustrating ones. So who knows? There's a lot we don't know about what the vaccine does to you. And I'm not talking about microchips in your body. I'm talking about just uh, things it does to your body that puts your body in some sort of uh, abnormal state where things happen that otherwise would not have happened. And I think it very much varies from person to person. Now, if you have gotten the COVID vaccine or booster and had problems similar to what I had within a month or two, please let me know. I'm very curious to hear from you if that's the case. Now, if another booster becomes necessary, which is a good chance one will, and maybe not too long, will I take it? And uh, huh, I'm thinking probably, but I'm not as sure as I was before. I get really sick and I, I have these problems that may be attributed to it. I don't know. So before you dismiss anti-vaxxers as crazy people and say, oh, it's safe. Come on. What are you doing here? You're such a moron. Stop. Stop with your conspiracy theory. Stop with your stupid crap. This thing is totally safe. No. And I don't believe that. When I took the vaccine, I believed I was taking a risk. But that the risk was less than the risk of getting COVID. And the risk was less than a breakthrough case of COVID, as far as the booster goes. That's what I believed then. I still think I believe that now, but not as strongly, as far as the booster is concerned. As far as the initial vaccine, definitely. But as far as the booster, I don't know. Because the, the benefit from the booster is not as much. It basically restores your protection from symptomatic COVID, but it doesn't do all that much additional from keeping you out of the hospital or dying. You're still pretty well protected from that. So I don't know if, if stopping symptomatic COVID breaking through is worth the unknowns of this vaccine. And I'm possibly living proof of that if these things happening to me were a result of the vaccine. So it is very true that we don't know a lot about this vaccine. It's very true that there may be things happening to people that are not understood or reported yet. Nobody's going to report on this, what's happening to me. I'm not going to show up in any stats. No doctors even discussed the vaccine with me. But that may have been the culprit. So if you're younger, you may want to keep that in mind. If you're older, I still think it's worth getting the booster. It did make me think a bit. It did make me think, hey, look, this thing is not as safe as advertised if this really did this to me. And yeah, I knew I was taking a risk the whole way, but you know, think of how safe they keep telling you it is. And if this happened to me, I mean, think if this happened to you. Would you be very happy about it if you knew this was from the vaccine? I bet you wouldn't. I bet you'd wonder about your decision to get a booster. So I am wondering. And I'm going to be a little scared next time the, the fourth shot comes, you know. I'll know I'm going to get very sick again. And who knows what will be waiting for me on the other end in the following weeks. This didn't happen right away. I had the elbow thing two weeks in. I had the foot thing six weeks in. Something next? I don't know. A little bit scary. So the anti-vaxxers, uh, I don't want to say I agree with them, because I don't. But they kind of have a point. 
It's kind of a weird thing to say. I don't agree with them, but they have a point. What I'm saying is that their concern about what this does to you is warranted. Where they're incorrect is where they're saying that you're better off just not getting vaccinated and letting COVID get you because uh, there's a lot of unknowns about COVID. And there's also a lot of knowns about COVID that are very bad for older people. And by older, I even mean like middle age and above. So that is dangerous enough to where it's worth taking the risk. But there is a risk. There is a real risk. And I, I may have ended up on somewhat of a bad end of that risk, not a terrible end where it would kill me or, or uh, permanently disable me. But, you know, think about what happened to me here. It's something. And it may have been from that. 775-Fraud55, 775-372-8355 is the number to the show. Longer time on that topic than I expected. I'll admit that. I, I didn't plan that to be over an hour. But sometimes that's what happens. Move on to our first uh, poker and gambling related topic. We're going to talk about Johnny Chan. This is one of these things that I regret from the standpoint that I didn't push it harder when I knew there was an issue about two months ago. And the reason I didn't push it harder was because I wasn't totally sure because the person who brought it to me was someone I didn't know. And it wasn't that I didn't trust the person, but I just didn't know them, so I I couldn't give them as much credit for everything they were saying. And I didn't want to put any false accusations out there about a business that may not end up being true. Uh, Number one, because I don't think that's a responsible way to behave. And number two, I'd be opening myself up to uh, legal liability. So it's it's both things. And uh, as a result... I posted this in the forum, and then I even made the decision in October to uh, not cover this on the show, which I especially regret, because I heard about this before anyone else was talking about it, because someone brought it to me. And uh, I, in, in hindsight, I, I wish I came at this more aggressively. And there were some ways I could have come at this more aggressively, which I'll get to shortly, but I just didn't. And I, I, I kind of dropped the ball with this one because we could have really been on the forefront of this at Poker Fraud Alert. And sometimes we are. Sometimes we are the ones who break stories or the ones that really bring out the details. And I'm proud of it when Poker Fraud Alert is what's being quoted everywhere, when we're the ones who bring the news, when we're the ones who jump on something before everybody else knows it or is willing to talk about it. But uh, this was one where there's a thread on the forum in the scam scandals and shadiness portion of the forum, there is a thread about this topic dated October 18th. So I, I guess that's good. But uh, then the whole thing kind of died. Now everyone's talking about it. And I'm talking about Johnny Chan. Johnny Chan has, or shall I say had, a card room in Houston. It's called Johnny Chan's 88 Social. That's the name of the room. Johnny Chan's 88 Social. The 88 could mean uh, either when he won one of his World Series of Poker main events, or it could mean that the number eight is considered lucky in Chinese culture, or it could be both. So I'm not exactly sure why it's called 88 Social, but it's got to be one of these two things. Johnny Chan basically licensed out his name but he didn't fully license it out. Apparently, he was somewhat involved in the operations there. 
he wasn't there like every day. You wouldn't see Johnny Chan if you walked in usually. But uh, this wasn't just like he's stamping his name on it, which some people do. In fact, Donald Trump was known for that prior to being president. There were all kinds of Trump businesses all over the country that he did not personally run. And occasionally some shady operation would lease out the Trump name and they'd even get Trump to endorse it and act like he's involved. And then uh, the whole thing would go under and then Trump would kind of divorce himself of uh, any responsibility, which I thought was crappy. In fact, when he said he was running for president, I thought of that immediately. And I thought I didn't like that from an ethical standpoint. And I, I didn't support him in the primary, the 2016 primary, partially for that reason. But Johnny Chan, who's known to stamp his name on a lot of things, he's someone who will basically take an endorsement opportunity if it's given to him with very little oversight from what I've observed. Uh, From what I'm hearing, he did have some uh, say in the operations there. As I said, not quite day-to-day management, but not also just leasing out his name, kind of in the middle from what I've been told. Anyway, before we get to the rest of this, I need to quickly explain the Texas poker scene. And we've talked about this before on the show, so I'm not going to go into a long explanation. We even had someone on this show, uh, she's been on a few times, Amanda Stinchcomb, who, who worked in the industry for a while as a dealer, and we talked about it with her. We've also just talked about it in general. We've even talked about some scandals in the uh, Texas poker industry. Texas is a very weird state for gambling, where there really isn't any actual legalized gambling in Texas. So in order to run poker rooms, they have to do it in a fashion that is non-standard. So home poker games are legal in Texas as they are in many states. And that is basically you can run any poker game you want as long as the house isn't making money from it. So this allows people to play poker with their buddies without breaking the law. And that's why these are allowed. They, they don't want overly restrictive laws that make it illegal to play poker with your friends for money. So that, that's the reason the law is like that in most states, that home poker games are legal. So it's like that in Texas, too. But in order to get around the pr- prohibition of card rooms in Texas, what they do is they have, quote, social clubs where you're uh, paying some f- form of fee to get into the social club which just happens to have card games that you can play, meaning poker. So the theme is, and of course this isn't really what's going on, but from the legal standpoint, they're saying this is what's going on, is that you're paying to be a member of the social club. Sometimes it's per hour, sometimes it's per month, whatever it is, you're paying to be a member of the social club, and then you're just playing poker with no rake. And... They've found various ways to legally justify doing this by just saying, hey, these are a bunch of people paying to hang out and get together, which is totally legal in all states. You can, in any state, have some kind of club which is uh, pay to get in or pay to spend time there. And then the people at the club, they just happen to like to play poker together in the same format as a home game. And uh, knowing that the club provides dealers who, who deal this and don't charge anybody any money to deal and, and that's the way it works. So this has long been debated in Texas, whether they should just do away with this sham and either make poker rooms explicitly legal and license them the way like California does, 
or if they should clamp down on this and just not allow it at all and say, we know what's going on here. This is illegal. You can't run poker games at a business setting. That would pretty much shut it all down, where po- home poker games would be legal, but any uh, business setting could not uh, run any kind of poker games. So there'd be various language they could put that could stop this in its tracks. But it's never gotten enough momentum in any way to where it's either stopped or made legal. So it's always been in this uh, odd middle ground. The problem here is that there's no structure in regulating these rooms or protecting the players. And now we see what happens. So I'll give you an example. Let's say you come over to my house for a home poker game. We play here, and um, when the game's over, you say to me, okay, well, uh, you know, here's my chips, cash me out. And I say, oh, crap. Um, hate to tell you, but uh, my girlfriend needed some money to go to the store, and she, she grabbed it out of the uh, place where we're holding all the money that everyone bought in for, so uh, there really isn't any left. So uh, I'm sorry, I can't pay you. Now, you could sue me. You probably wouldn't win because it'd be considered an unpaid gambling debt, and a lot of jurisdictions don't honor that. And you could be pissed off, and you could trash my reputation for it, but uh, there would be no regulation protecting you. There, there really wouldn't be that much that could happen to me. Now, if I was doing this in a patterned fashion, if I kept bringing people over to play poker, and then the money that they would put uh, into buying chips would disappear before they leave, then uh, I would be definitely defrauding people, and they could arrest me for it. But uh, if this happened on a one-time basis, because uh, my girlfriend took the money because she needed it uh, to do some emergency grocery shopping, and then I just never paid anybody, this would be a civil matter at most. So there would be no no regulations protecting you. There would be no regulations governing the game. They also could not uh, specify anything about uh, the way I operate my home game, what type of cards I use, uh, if, I, if I hire dealers, if I don't hire dealers, um, any kind of grievance process, if, if, I suspect there's, if someone suspects there's marked cards, it would just be like a home poker game. So there wouldn't be much you could do other than either sue me or, or just not come to the game again or, or try to trash my reputation among everybody you know. So that would be about all you could do about it. Whereas in a state that has regulated poker, there is things you can do. There, there, there are regulations they must adhere to. Now, that's not to say there aren't shady things going on anyway in places with uh, regulated rooms. In fact, in California, I've talked about on this show how the California Gaming Commission is very, very weak and really isn't interested in protecting the players. They're more interested in just uh, dictating what games can be spread and, and collecting money but they're really not that interested in protecting players. And when grievances are are raised, they tend not to do anything. So definitely the process needs some improvement in some places, including California. However, it's still better than no process. And in Texas, there is no process. There's no protection for players in these card rooms because these are essentially home poker games that are pretending to be a card room. But in essence, it's a home poker game. And you have nobody protecting you. So I started hearing rumors in October, in mid-October, that Johnny Chan's 88 Social was doing some bad things. And 
these rumors were coming from someone on Twitter known as Uno Mas. And I don't even know the guy's real name. He just goes by Uno Mas. And I, I don't know the guy personally. I didn't know if I could trust him or not trust him. He was just a complete stranger to me. And I've had it before where a stranger gives me a tip about something that seems like it uh, really is legitimate. And then I would go report it and it would turn out the person was wrong and I'd look like a fool. So I stopped doing that a long time ago. I realized a long time ago that as credible as something can look, if I cannot verify it myself, that uh, I usually don't even want to post it. And if I do post it, I'm only going to post it if I can show that somebody else is making the accusations. That's what I did here. So on October 18, 2021, I posted a thread on Poker Fraud Alert's Scam Scandals and Shadiness Forum called Issue at Johnny Chan's 88 Social Card Room in Houston. And I basically showed Uno Mas's accusations. And I didn't say what he was claiming was true, I just said, this is what Uno Mas is saying. And that's completely fine. I can uh, show somebody else's tweets. He put these out publicly on Twitter. I showed those tweets and I made my commentary. But uh, at no point did I say Johnny Chan's uh, 88 socials ripping people off or whatever. I just said, uh, here's the guy showing some concern. So if you're playing there, you may want to watch out. And that, that's completely fine for me to say. So I will now read you again these tweets. Actually, I don't even think I read them ever on this show. That's that's what I'm saying before. I think I didn't make a topic out of this, which I definitely wish I did now. Uno Mas tweeted the following on October 16th. Johnny Chan just lost a lot of customers. They can't even cash out everyone. Players empty their boxes and they're all playing at Legends. Now, Legends is another club down the street that was competing with 88 Social. So he was claiming that uh, with a lot of people quitting 88 Social, it was found that they can't even pay everybody. So then Bart Hansen, who listens to this show, by the way, as most of you know, has been on here a number of times, and uh, good guy, personally know him. I like Bart a lot. But Bart, who lives in Texas himself, he lives in Austin, so obviously he has an interest in the Texas poker scene. Bart said, huh? And Uno Mas said back, 5510PLO has moved, meaning moved over to Legends. People can't cash out their 88 social chips because the cage didn't have cash. Some drama unfolded with the players making bets and Johnny vouching for players, and people got stiffed on bets, so the whales have left his club. Now, that may sound a little confusing. What's this about bets and Johnny vouching? What's all this about? Well, Uno Mas was alleging that there was some person at the club who was soliciting big sports bets with other players there that they'd make personally with one another. And then this person was stiffing people. People were trusting this guy because Johnny allegedly vouched for him. So it wasn't just some random in the room saying, hey, make this large bet with me on this upcoming game. Apparently, Johnny was telling people, oh, no, he's good. He's good for it. I'm vouching for him. So then this guy is alleged to have screwed people and then uh, Johnny didn't want to take responsibility for it, what Uno Mas was saying. Now, this part I never verified. So even with the shit that has since hit the fan in December, about six weeks after these first accusations came out, I still don't know about this guy that Johnny was supposedly vouching for. This was Uno Mas's story, but I don't have any verification that this is true. Just wanted to mention this. This was uh, one of the 
parts of the allegations that uh, Uno Mas was making. However, to me, the more bothersome element of it, and I posted this at the time, was that 88 Social couldn't cash everybody out. And that's one of the regulations, by the way, that is on California card rooms that most of them adhere to. Occasionally, you have a violator and they get shut down for this, but all California card rooms and all Vegas casinos and really most regulated card rooms around the U.S., or maybe even all of them, have a requirement to keep cash on hand for every single chip that is currently out. So any chips that people are allowed to buy, they have to keep the cash for those chips, even if people bring those chips home and hold them for a while. That whatever chips are unaccounted for, they have to be able to cover them with cash. So if there is a run on the bank, so to speak, if everybody shows up at the same time to cash out, that they can do it. Well, there's no such requirement at 88 Social or any of these Texas rooms because they are not regulated poker rooms. These are essentially home games with no rules. So when there is a mass defection over to Legends, according to Uno Mas, because of this situation with this uh, whale here who was uh, making bets with people and not paying, allegedly, and there was a defection of that game, that when a bunch of people emptied out their boxes there and took their chips to the front and said, okay, I'm out of here, pay me, 88 Social was allegedly saying, uh, sorry, uh, we don't keep that much cash on hand here. You'll have to come back another day. This is all we have for today. Now, at the time, I thought it was possible that 88 Social just didn't want to have a massive amount of cash on hand because they could be robbed and they would be devastated if, they, if every chip that's out, especially if a number of higher limit players just keep a lot of chips and don't cash out when they're done. If there's a lot of chips that are out, they may not want to keep a massive amount of cash on hand because that could really incentivize a sophisticated armed robbery of, of a number of people, a number of uh, criminals and a gang showing up and, and robbing the place. Like imagine if there was uh, a robbery of 88 Social for something like $1 million. I mean, that could be devastating to the players and the business. So it might make sense why a glorified home game wouldn't want to keep that kind of money on hand and they wouldn't expect to run on the bank, but they would keep that money somewhere, like in a bank, that they could take out and tell people to come back the next day if they want to get their cash. In fact, banks do this. If you show up to your local Wells Fargo or Chase or whatever large bank you use and say, hey, I'd like to withdraw 50000 in cash, please, They'll probably say, sorry, can't do it. They can probably give you 10000 maybe 20000 maybe not even that. Some branches won't give you more than a few. But otherwise, they will tell you, call back, or you have to call in advance for this, and uh, since we can't give it to you now, come back tomorrow, we'll have it for you. Or come back in two days, we'll have it for you. And they do this, again, to protect themselves from armed robbery, so they don't keep as much cash on hand, and this disincentivizes armed robbery. The more cash that's on hand, the more it is worth it for gangs that uh, want to commit armed robbery to take the chance to do it. I have run into this a number of times before, because you remember I'm a high-stakes poker player. I don't play as high-stakes as I used to, but uh, in the 2000s, I played some very high-stakes games, as some of you know. 
And uh, when I would be traveling to other venues, uh, I would want to take a lot of cash with me, and I would sometimes have trouble withdrawing that cash, and I would have to tell them in advance that I would need to withdraw this cash. So it, it was a pain in the ass, and it was uh, an interesting discover for, discovery for me back then, because I never ran into this before. I never needed to withdraw big cash before, before I was a poker player. But once I became a uh, higher-stakes poker player, it was a, a shock to me that I couldn't just walk into a major bank and withdraw a lot of cash. But it is for that security reason. So if a bank with all of its security procedures doesn't keep a ton of cash on hand, can you imagine these Texas card rooms, which are just small businesses, why they don't want to? So on the surface, that would appear to make sense. So I wasn't panicking on behalf of the Texas players when I heard that when everybody, not everybody, when a lot of the higher stakes players decided to defect over to Legends and all wanted to be cashed out at once, that uh, 88 Social couldn't do it right on the spot. I thought that was a little bit uh, concerning, and, and that whole story Uno Mas told me and told Twitter, because he, he told it to me privately and publicly, uh, so, so some of the things he tweeted, some of it he just me- messaged me privately, but... At the time, the most disturbing part of the story was that they didn't have the cash, but I put an asterisk on that saying it may be okay, it may be just they didn't want to keep that much cash on hand for security reasons. I wrote that on October 18th when I made the threat. So alarm bells weren't sounding yet, but if I were in the Houston area, I would not exactly trust 88 Social to play a high-limit game. I I wouldn't feel good about buying in for a lot there and knowing that if I won a good deal of money that they could cash me out that night or possibly ever. So I was basically warning people, just be careful. If you you play there, maybe uh, you should rethink it and go somewhere else until we're sure that these problems aren't a chronic issue. It was just one night that too many people decided to cash out and they told them come back tomorrow or come back two days later, fine. If they're going to routinely not have enough money to cash people out, then it is possible that they have spent player funds full tilt style. Well, six weeks passed. Uh, really, I didn't hear anything. And I semi forgot about the story. I saw it sitting there on Poker Fraud Alert, but I didn't really have any updates for anybody. And I didn't even hear if those people eventually got cashed out. I really heard nothing. And I should have followed up with Uno Mas, and I didn't, and the whole story in my head just kind of uh, was on hold. Until December 3rd, Dan Ross, who's a uh, longtime poker media figure, and he's pretty well trusted, so if Dan Ross says something, you, you tend to believe it. Dan Ross said, anyone seen Johnny Chan around lately? His poker room in Houston locked its doors today. Hundreds of thousands in chips can't get cashed in. Uh-oh. Now, it's one thing if they can't cash out a massive number of people in one night. It's another thing to lock their doors with no plan given to anyone how they'll be cashed out. It's not like they're saying, hey, we're going out of business. Uh, come back in the next uh, 30 days and, and we'll cash you out or whatever. Like, just nothing. Doors are locked. Business closed. If you're holding chips, uh, no idea what's going to happen. I mean, think about that. Think if you're holding a lot of chips from Johnny Chan's 88 Social, and you don't know if you can ever cash them. That's where everyone stood on December 3rd. So that became a much bigger story. It's it's one thing for rumors to be going around about Johnny vouching for some uh, gambler in there who wasn't paying his debts or 
or, or them not being able to cash out a lot of players at high stakes at one time. But it's another thing to have the doors just locked with no notice, with no information on how to get uh, your money. So that became a big story, especially because of Johnny Chan's name being involved. See, had this happened to Legends, then this would have been a much lesser story because most people don't know Legends. If you don't live in the Houston area, you probably haven't heard of Legends. And even if you've heard of it, it's just a small poker room that masquerades as a social club in Houston, and uh, it's hard to get everybody excited about it. It'd be probably a small story, but it wouldn't really go around very much in poker. But because Johnny Chan's name is associated with 88 Social, that gets everybody talking, because any fan of poker knows Johnny Chan. He's a poker legend. So Johnny Chan having his poker room lock the doors and not pay anybody is a huge story. And that is why I regret not looking into it more, because it involved Johnny Chan, and because this could have been a very big story we could have broken much earlier had I maybe made a few phone calls and tried to find out from the room itself when they're going to pay people. Like, I could have done that. It wasn't my responsibility. It didn't involve me. And it would have taken time to do this, but I kind of wish I had now. I kind of wish that the next day after posting this thread, like on October 19th, I would have called up uh, Idiot Social and said, okay, I'm hearing people can't cash out. I'm from Poker Fraud Alert. What should I report? When can people show up? And then I, I, I could have kind of taken charge with directing people who couldn't cash out when they could come. And yeah, 88 Social may lie to me if I were to do that. I never called them, by the way, so they didn't lie to me. I, I never spoke to them. But had I done that, they could have lied to me. But then they would have not honored whatever commitments were made, and then I could have reported that. So, unfortunately, I didn't take a very active role in this, and I regret it. Now, A. Hoosier A., who's a poster on this forum, he's been on this show before, a listener to the show as well, lives in Las Vegas, nice guy, I've met him before. He unfortunately got uh, wrapped up in that uh, Christopher Mitchell drama, and we had him on here talking about that. But he is uh, pretty familiar with the uh, Texas poker scene because he worked in the Texas poker scene for some time. So while he doesn't live in Texas anymore, he follows it uh, pretty closely. And he has a lot of knowledge about that, a lot more than I do. Anyway, he found this video, which uh, it's speculated that this video was actually a paid piece done by a competitor called Prime Social. So keep that in mind when you listen to this. It's a piece that uh, bashes a lot of the Houston poker clubs. But but again, uh, this might have been put together by a competitor. So take that with a grain of salt. But listen to this. Legends poker. Now this is from Dulce Fino Consulting, whatever that is. Okay, let's go out here. This poker room will give away $100,000 on New Year's Eve for the player with the right hand. That's big bucks. In fact, Houston's newest poker room has been literally giving away money since its grand opening in October. Millions of dollars. And we wanted to ask the owner how he's affording to do that. The club only charges $5 an hour to play, but then gives away millions in cash? How do you make money at $5 an hour? Now, by the way, this is not about Johnny Chan's club. This is about Legends, the one down the street. So they're bashing Legends here. But uh, they're, they're interviewing the owner of Legends. And his name is David La. And we'll hear what Legends has, what David La has to say about this. Uh, obviously, they're, they're coming right out attacking Legends and, and really raising doubt about them. 
So I understand why there's a lot of suspicion this was done by a competitor. But let's hear what he has to say. We just opened up as a new club. and uh... Oh, so right now you're not trying to make money. You're just trying to... Not about making money. People enjoy to play poker. Well, yeah, but you're not in business for free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are. It's a charity. (laughs) We actually weren't joking. We'd been undercover in Legends Poker, and they didn't even charge us to join the club. They had a bar, but no liquor license. And we already knew more about owner David Law than he thought we did. Yeah, so as, as you see already... They're coming really hard. I mean, this, is, this does not look like uh, just some neutral observer who, who's placing like undercover people in there to find wrongdoing on Legend's part. Watch our interview start to go south. You're from California, right? Yes. Unlike Texas, the state of California regulates poker with a gaming commission. Didn't you get in trouble out there? No, no. I don't get in trouble anyway. That's not a... Uh, well, there was an investigation of money laundering. The owner of Legends Poker, he's lying to us. And here's how we know. Law had his gaming license revoked in California as part of a money laundering investigation into the now shuttered Normandy Casino, where piles of cash were turned into chips without required money laundering reporting. The casino's owners were required to pay back $2.4 million for violating the Bank Secrecy Act. So you were never told you can't have a gambling license a decade earlier law's family had been fined 1.6 million dollars for another fraud tax evasion most places that have organized gambling have commissions to oversee things to prevent some of what's happening in here just that now here's justin hammer and justin hammer used to be the tournament director at commerce and then uh he moved over to texas so again this is not uh neutral this is not just a neutral observer they're, they're asking. And uh, I like Justin Hammer. I've always gotten along with him. And uh, in fact, when I used to see him at Commerce, when I, I occasionally play a tournament there, he was very familiar with Poker Fraud Alert and, and told me he liked the show. And, um, and he was always very nice to me. And um, I, I actually liked the, the tournaments he put on at Commerce, but uh, eventually he got fired there for whatever reason. And then he, uh, he moved over to Texas. But here's here's his comments. Justin Hammer is in the poker tournament planning business here in Texas, and he knows there's a new kind of game being played in this town. Some of these places, where are they making money from? It doesn't make they're claiming millions of dollars in income, but they're doing a business model that can't possibly generate millions of dollars. So what's happening? Give me something here. You're like a sphinx. I, I, I can't read you. It may help explain why David Law hasn't opened up a poker room in Dallas. Because that city, it requires a permit for poker rooms. And the police vice division there, it's involved in the vetting. They'd find out what we did. No, David Law chose Houston, where police vice officers now simply refuse to investigate poker rooms, even though they've known about possible criminal wrongdoing for over a year. To be fair, the cops know it wouldn't matter if they did raid a club skimming profits from poker games, because they think Harris County District Attorney Kim Ogg simply won't prosecute. Because our criminal justice system is broken. After private poker rooms first opened in Houston, the Texas Attorney General declined to say, if they violated gambling laws. Fancy rooms like Prime Social on Westheimer opened up with lots of fanfare, media coverage, advertised rules, a private paid membership, the same charge to rent an hourly seat at a poker table to play, whether the game was big or small. Now, let me stop right here. So you may wonder if this is suspected to be a Prime Social 
sponsored piece, why do they seem to be bashing themselves? Well, they're not. And you can't see the video because this is an audio show. But Prime Social, <laughs> they're portraying it in a very, very glorified fashion. They're showing clearly staged shots of uh, beautiful people playing poker, uh, hot chicks at the table, hot chicks behind people playing poker and clapping, uh, even hearing the way they're describing it as a luxurious place. So they're kind of fake bashing themselves. It's it's like uh, me talking about uh, someone I'm trying to puff up, but I'm pretending to criticize them and say, that guy over there, you know, he thinks he's so cool just because he's really good looking and smart and one of the best poker players ever and just a really great guy. He thinks that uh, just because of that, he can walk around like his shit doesn't stink. Like, you know... On the surface, it could appear like I'm bashing him, but I'm saying some very nice things about him. So that's basically what this video is doing about Prime Social, which you may wonder why are we going on with all this uh, when we're talking about Johnny Chan. But we'll get back to Johnny Chan. This is just an interesting thing to listen to. Clubs didn't take a penny out of the winnings. Prime Social even invested in expensive software to prevent money laundering and invited the FBI to come in and look at it. All because state law left no doubt that if a club tried to take money out of the poker game, they would be breaking the law. And if they didn't keep track of transactions involving more than $10,000, they'd be breaking federal law too. You may remember Dolcefino Consulting was hired to help Prime Social share its success with Houston charities yeah that's a coincidence there isn't it that's dolce fino consulting that put this video on they happen to have been hired by prime social <laughs> i don't know how much longer i can go on with this let, let, let's let it continue a bit longer it's also pretty professionally done this video i mean it could have been better but it's it's got a lot of graphics and other stuff running in between this wasn't just someone quickly putting this together on their uh, iphone Turkeys for Thanksgiving, a huge pile of toys for HPD's Blue Santa. So it's just thrilled to have partners like this to help us. The club even tried to hire off-duty HPD officers to work security. But then, without warning, this happened. A raid by law enforcement at two poker clubs in Houston, nine people now facing charges. Houston cops, at the direction of the DA's office, arrested and charged three prime social managers with money laundering, even though they were doing exactly what they were advertising they were doing. I've heard enough. I, I can't continue with this. I mean, we talked about this incident before. It's kind of an interesting incident, but you can go find the show where we talked about this. We, we did a big segment on that raid. So obviously, this, this really looks like an ad for prime social where it's kind of like a backdoor advertisement where they're they're pretending to be skeptical of all the Houston clubs, but saying, oh, but this one, this one luxurious club, they're really doing everything right. <laughs> Don't go to Legends. They're really shady, but Prime Social's great. They're, they're super luxurious and wonderful. So, okay. Um, it, there's like 10 more minutes this video. I won't bother to go through it. But you get the idea. Well, Poker.org did a, a good article about this situation with Johnny Chan. And of course, uh, who do you think wrote this article? Who's a uh, good poker journalist that gets to the bottom of things? There, there's only a few of them, right? <laughs> there's not that many that come to mind that you associate with good poker journalism and uh, a fearless pursuit of the truth. And the one that first comes to mind for me is the one who wrote this article. That would be one Haley Hintz. And I saw her at the World Series, by the way. She uh, happened to walk by when I was at the table, and she uh, came over, gave me a very warm greeting, so it was nice to see her. But uh, 
She wrote a very good uh, article about this, and, and most of her articles are very good, so it doesn't surprise me. But she wrote about uh, the situation that uh, uh, the same thing that, that basically they said in this video about David Law of uh, of Legends. She wrote about that, and that um, where Chan comes into this, it it does have a connection with David Law, even though they were the competition. So. In, uh, apparently, and this is also from that same video, I just uh, didn't get all the way there. They say that uh, Johnny Chan and David Law, remember the one who runs Legends down the street, are bitter enemies at this point. And uh, Johnny Chan filed a lawsuit, apparently, against David Law in 2019. Now, Haley got a copy of this lawsuit, and she said that... Uh, in this suit, Chan says that he met with uh, David Law and also someone named June Sin at the Bellagio in September 2019 to discuss buying into the club, which then was called 52 Social. This is before it uh, changed its name to 88 Social. And uh, then Chan said in the lawsuit that he was promised a 20% share, provided that he gives uh, them $40,000 and uh, then they use his uh, name and likeness. So uh, basically he pays them 40 k and they can say it's Johnny Chan's uh, room or associated with Chan or whatever. However, he said in his lawsuit that June Sin refused to sign any documents that said that he had a 20% stake, even though uh, he said that David Law promised him he really had 20% there. So Ch- Johnny Chan filed a lawsuit alleging fraud, breach of contract, misappropriation of uh, his likeness, etc. And uh, also in the lawsuit, Johnny said that June Sin tried to buy him out of the partnership with 88 Social for $100,000. But uh, there was further things said in this lawsuit, including the statement that... uh, that there was, a, there was an operational scheme, he said, that David Law and June Sin were, quote, distributing hundreds of thousands of dollars monthly to numerous owners and employees characterized as house players, and these players would use this money to play in poker games, either keeping the winnings or kicking them back to one or more, one or more of the defendants, meaning uh, June Sin and David Law. And he also said that uh, June Sin purchased a car for himself with company funds so um they're they're what they're saying here is that uh they had a split which is what caused legends to open and uh ended up hurting both clubs so what happened was uh they ended up uh reaching a settlement it didn't go to court but uh they were both pissed off at each other and then David Lass said, well, F Johnny, I'm going to open up a competing club uh, right down the street. And uh, 88 Social started to struggle. Apparently, there was also a uh, $2,000 per day cap of withdrawals per day. I don't know when this started, but this is uh, what I read in this article by Haley, and I've heard this elsewhere as well, that uh, nobody could cash out more than 2 k per day. And that was also one of the reasons people started leaving. Now, how many chips 
are uncashed right now, how many chips are out that they're not cashing at 88 Social? It's not known for sure, but it's estimated to be between 850000 and $1.2 million. So we're looking at somewhere around a million bucks that is owed. And most of these are held by high-stakes players, as you might guess. They have uh, pretty much accounted for about $500,000 worth of uh, high-stakes players who hold chips, but it is uh, assumed that, that there's about double of that completely out. So Johnny Chan himself is supposedly, and this hasn't been verified, but it is reported in this article by Haley, he's supposedly contacting people about investing into 88 Social as a way to pay people what's owed and basically uh, reopening the whole thing. But it's unclear if they will. Now, a big problem is that people aren't going to trust them again. So even if they do get everybody paid out, let's say Johnny finds someone to put a million bucks into the club and they can pay people, then what do they do from that point? Because they had this shortfall somehow. If they can't pay people right now, which it seems like they can't, because let's use common sense. It's the same thing with online poker sites. When any kind of poker entity cannot cash people out, if it's a very short-term problem, then it could just be some sort of logistical issue. So that's why I always say, like, if they can't cash you out for a week, don't panic. I've seen this even occasionally with uh, Bovada slash Bodog slash Ignition over the years, where once in a while, this hasn't happened in several years, but I have seen it before where all of a sudden they can't pay people for a very short time, and then they always write the ship and can pay you very quickly. Now, for the last few years, they pay blazing fast. So I don't want to make it sound like they have these lapses where they don't pay because they've actually been blazing fast, like like really blazing fast, almost like the old days. I've always given Bodog, Bovada, Ignition credit for being really, really good at payouts, and that's pretty much all the way back to the beginning. They've never really had a payout scandal ever, so that's something to their credit. With all the government action against payment processors. They've always been very quick to get a new one and just rebound from it and just continue. This is for like two decades. So I know Trader Risky is going to get pissed when he hears this because he hates them. But I mean, that's true. I mean, they have other problems for sure. And I have a number of frustrations with them because I play there. But uh, payouts are not one of them. Anyway, anything but a very short term, and I mean very short term payment problem becomes a very big problem and is very, very often, in fact, almost always indicative of insolvency. And the reason is, once word gets around that a poker room can't pay people, whether it's brick and mortar or online, then people don't trust them anymore. And it's a huge, huge, huge hit to their business. So if they do have the money, but just can't pay in the very short term, they tend to be very transparent about things and give you a timetable and make sure you understand they can pay you in a very short time. And if they're very silent about it and just kind of hide from you or give excuse, 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 then that almost always means they are insolvent. It almost always means they've stolen the player money on deposit. Because remember, the money that they're holding is money that belongs to the players cumulatively. It does not belong to the room. So they can't spend that. They can't loan that to themselves. They, they should always keep this on deposit somewhere. If, if not in the physical room itself, if it's not required, then at least they need to have it somewhere that people can get to it fairly quickly. 
And if they can't, then the money has been stolen. That's almost always the case. So I find it very unlikely at this point that Johnny Chan, the 88 Social, has the money to pay people. And I believe these rumors that that he's trying to frantically find people to rescue it. I I don't think Johnny Chan uh, just took off with the money. I, I think that the room was run irresponsibly and perhaps in a shady fashion, and now the money's gone when it should have been untouchable, that money. And now they're quickly trying to rescue it, which, which also is common, by the way. A lot of times when this happens, what these operations do when the shit hits the fan is that they quickly try to raise money and save themselves. The problem is once the story gets out that they're not able to pay people, nobody trusts them, and then nobody wants to buy them. So it's like a catch-22. Uh, the the only people who could save them by investing in them don't want to invest because of the bad reputation that has resulted from them not paying people. So I don't think they're coming back from this unless a completely new set of owners takes over. And I think Johnny Chan would actually have to disassociate with himself, disassociate himself from this, because I think his name may actually be negative value at this point. And we'll discuss this shortly because there's someone who's loosely discussed buying it. And we'll talk about if that person's the owner, uh, what to think. But anyway, something went very wrong there. And I doubt that this Uno Mas guy wasn't onto something back in mid-October. I, I have a feeling the stuff he was saying was either true or mostly true. And definitely the cash-out things uh, look very true at this point because they closed their doors and they're not cashing anybody out. Now, Johnny Chan has not come forward with any official statement, which is also a big problem because if they had the money, Johnny Chan would be right out there saying, hey, guys, uh, don't worry about this. Uh, We're going to pay people by such and such date really soon. But he has not done this. So if they had the money, Johnny Chan would come right out and say it. So him... Not making a statement is also very problematic. I don't think Chan has the money. I don't think uh, he just ran off with it. I I think he doesn't have it. A lot of successful poker players are very bad at money management. And a lot of times the guys who will put their name on anything and stamp their name on anything, get involved in virtually any venture that uses their name without doing a lot of due diligence on them, tend to be guys who go through money very quickly and aren't very responsible with it. And there's other names you can probably think of who also seem to do this. You know, there's some poker pros who never put their name on anything, even though they could. There's other ones who are careful where they put their name. And then there's other ones who will just put their name on anything. Like, I'll I'll give you an example of someone who's careful about where he puts his name. Daniel Negreanu. Daniel Negreanu's name is obviously very valuable to be associated with things. He's he's one of the most famous poker pros in the world. But uh, he doesn't just associate himself with anything. Uh, He has extended to do some other things that aren't uh, directly associated with poker play, like he did that masterclass thing, but he's done some training things. But but for the most part, his off-the-felt money comes from associating with online poker sites. And he's appeared in a few other things, but... uh, Really, most of the money he's gotten that hasn't been from uh, playing poker has come from his time as a uh, poker uh, a sponsored uh, 
Pro on PokerStars and now GG Poker. And both of those are obviously big operations. So he seems pretty careful, which is the right thing to do, by the way. That's, if, if I were in his shoes, I, I would be handling it in a pretty similar fashion. I, I wouldn't be one of these guys saying, no, I'm not putting my name on anything. Like, you know, I would have totally taken a sponsorship with PokerStars, and I would have totally taken a sponsorship with GG Poker. And I, I think that's fine that he did that, even though I have some criticism of both rooms, especially more modern poker stars that isn't owned by the Scheinbergs. But uh, these aren't scam rooms. And, like, I understand why he took the money to represent these rooms, because they're, they're very big and they pay people. So despite some of the problems they have, uh, for the most part, uh, their reputation's okay. But some other guys in poker who have big names, they'll just stamp their name on anything. Now, let's talk about who might rescue them. It's very possible they'll never be rescued. It's very possible this is considered poisonous and no one's going to want to put the money into saving it. Now, it's important to understand that uh, the business right now may actually have negative value. You may say, how could a business have negative value? Well, they may have negative value because they owe so much money. If they really do owe somewhere around a million bucks, then if the value of the business is under a million bucks and they owe a million bucks, then it actually has a negative value unless you were to buy the business and then just refuse to pay anyone, which uh, could be a big problem in several ways. So I, I have a feeling that whoever, if someone does buy this, that part of them buying it will be cashing people out. And it remains to be seen if it's believed that this business has enough value at this time to be worth buying for that type of liability because they, they're going to have to cash out players right off the bat and convince them to continue playing. So it's not like they can cash people out and everybody will forget what happened before. They'll have to cash people out and hope they come back. And even if people feel good about the fact that they're cashed out, some of them may feel like a sense of relief, like, oh, wow, I didn't expect to get that back, but okay, good, I'm never setting foot in there again. And it's hard to shake that even if you know there's new owners. I'm not saying it can't work, but there's something psychological about that. I can even think about myself if I were in that situation as a high-stakes player. If I have the horrifying discovery that I can't cash out all these chips I'm holding, and then finally someone buys the place and and rescues it and and puts money into uh, allowing people to cash out, my first instinct would be to run down there and cash out all my chips and breathe a sigh of relief and then run out the door and then kind of wait and see if the place is stable because I'd be afraid if I just uh, continue playing there, the same thing may happen all over again, even with new owners, maybe if it just fails. So I have a feeling a lot of people would take that approach, just take the money and run. And this has happened with a lot of online rooms too that can't pay and that people just don't want to invest in something that has lost the public's trust. But here is a clip of someone who not only talked to Johnny Chan, but also is thinking of buying the room, not by himself, but with uh, other investors. And that would be one Michael Matisau. Uh Article came out the other day talking about Johnny Chan's social is closing and they owe millions of dollars or whatever to players 
and they have no money to pay. And is it a scandal or is it the truth of what Johnny Chan is saying? Well, that's for you guys to realize. Um, I um, talked to Johnny Chan uh, for quite a long time today and um, the truth of the matter is I don't know the truth but according to Johnny when he was in Vegas for the World Series his partner emptied out the bank accounts and all the money in it and by the time he and took off and by the time he came back uh, this is where everything stood now, I don't think he's talking about David Law here, because remember, they had a separation where Law basically left social and opened legends down the street. So I don't know who this other partner is, but I believe that's someone different that he claims just took all the money and left, according to Mattisau. Now, I'm sure there's a bigger story to this. Um I, um, you know, I've known Johnny for a long time. I always thought he was a stand-up person. A lot of people don't get along with him, but because he's kind of hard on people. But me and him have always gotten along real good, and uh, I mean, he's always been nice to me and honest. So uh, when I called him today to see if he wanted to be a guest on the podcast um, to discuss what's going on. And um, and that's when he, he kind of didn't want to come on the podcast, but basically wanted to tell me his side of the story. Which, By, by the way, how medicated is Mike Mattisau there? <laughs> You're hearing him. I'm 100% he's on some meds there. I'm not saying that he shouldn't be on meds because, you know, he, he probably has a good reason to have to take them. But uh, he is... Very, very medicated sounding during this uh, podcast, which is called The Mouthpiece. This is a show that uh, he does. He now does it on YouTube. He used to do this in audio form, and now he does it in video form. So this is uh, The Mouthpiece, episode 76, that was on December 6th. So I'm playing just about from the beginning. I played about a minute in. And we're going to continue playing the beginning of it until the subject ends. And then uh, the rest of the show is about other stuff. And if you want to listen, you can go do that. He He's done a lot of episodes, obviously. So he's up to 76 already. It hasn't been around that long. But uh, boy, is he medicated there. <laughs> I wonder what he's on there. I sound a little bit like this when I take a lot of Xanax. Not quite that medicated, but I do start speaking slower and... I kind of have that sound to me. So maybe he is on Xanax there. It was what I just said. His partner robbed all the money uh, from the bank and the safety boxes and everything while he was in Vegas. I'm sure there's a lot of truth to that. I'm sure there's a lot of other things to it. Uh, yeah, I think so too. Here, here's a big problem I have right away with that story. And, and by the way, I believe what Mattisau is telling us is what Johnny told him. But Mattisau is not a liar. Like he, he doesn't just come out and just spew bullshit. So if Johnny didn't say this to him, he wouldn't come out and say that 
Johnny said this, unless he misunderstood, which I guess is possible. But I believe that Mattisau is relaying what Johnny said. And it's interesting that Johnny would not come on the show with Mattisau, because remember, Mattisau is not going to be a jerk to him. They've been friends for a very long time. And Mattisau has always been nice to him. And Mattisau is not confrontational on his show. Remember when he had Possel on his show? Remember he did a two-show interview with Possel, split up in parts one and two? And remember how nice he was to Possel? And he basically just let Possel talk. And a lot of people criticized Mattisau at the time, not me. But a lot of people criticized Mattisau at the time for not coming at him and not uh, criticizing him and not really hitting him with the top, tough questions and not uh, and being too accepting with whatever Possel said. And I was one of the few who didn't bash Mattisau for it because I understood. The point was to get Possel to talk. The point was not to act like you're an investigator with Possel under the hot spotlight. And... In fact, that podcast was useful in my defense to the lawsuit against me that Mike Possel eventually filed, because Mike Possel said some things on that podcast that very very much helped my case, which I've explained before. So I was very glad that uh, Mattisau did that, and I felt that he handled it the right way, whereas a lot of people criticized him for doing a softball. He didn't. People didn't understand that Possel didn't have to be there, and if Mattisau didn't do a softball, there would be no ball. There would be no no interview. So the same thing with Johnny Chan here. Johnny Chan would not have come on with Mattisau being a jerk and being aggressive and grilling him. Uh, I think Mattisau would have done the same thing, let Johnny Chan talk. And in fact, he probably would have been even nicer because it seems like he genuinely likes Johnny Chan, whereas he didn't know Possible. So I think Chan not coming on even knowing it's a friendly party interviewing him, looks really, really bad. But back to what Chan said. If this guy really just stole money and ran off, that is a pretty significant crime. Now we're no longer looking at uh, a business that just mishandled things. We're now looking at an outright theft. And uh, did Johnny Chan go to the police? Uh, Where's the police report? Uh, why is this guy not being publicly called out? Why doesn't Johnny Chan just come out and say, hey, this is what happened. Here's the name of the guy who did it. Here's my police report. Anyone with information on where this guy is, please let us know so we can find him. I mean, that, that's what I would do if my partner just ran off with a million bucks. But we're not seeing that. So when Mattisau, who is Johnny Chan's friend, said, I think there's more to the story, I agree. I think there's more to the story. Uh, I'll find out shortly. Uh, you know, so that's kind of where I stand now. I have been on the phone with some people, uh, very close friends of mine, um, to discuss buying the club, uh, and me moving from Vegas to Houston and running it. Uh, I know, uh, that could come as a shock to, uh, most of you, but yeah, it kind of did. Only reason that's not a shock now is because I knew it before I played this segment. Uh, Wow. Can you imagine uh, Johnny Chan's 88 social becoming Mike Mattisau's, I don't know, 89 social? Now, I like Mike Mattisau, but I don't know if I'd want him running a card room. I mean, listen to him here. (laughs) 
he's in some sort of medicated state, which, as I said, probably he needs and is fine, but uh, you don't want someone in a medicated state in charge of day-to-day operations at a card room. Now, if Mattisau were to uh, get some investors together and then uh, designate someone very trusted in the industry to run the room, and if Mattisau were even to give a guarantee that he is going to uh, inspect the books and the cash on hand on a daily basis or something along those lines. That, I'm not saying that would be successful, but at least that would be a a better role for him. But uh, to actively run it, I don't know. I mean, I don't believe Mattisau has any experience at all in the side of the industry of actually running a poker room. I don't think Mattisau would be the right guy to do that, but uh, could he be the right guy to get investors together? Could he be a guy to bring players in because of his big name? Yeah, yeah, he, he could have that role, but I'm very skeptical if the room could succeed because of the recent history it has with this situation. But I've been debating about moving to Texas for close to two years now. So it's not uh, anything out of the ordinary. Uh, I see this as a business opportunity uh, with a club that was really doing well before this happened. And uh, so, you know, um, I've got a bunch of phone calls set up for tonight. Yeah. uh, Why would he move to Texas, you may wonder? Why why would Mattisau leave Las Vegas and go to Texas, of all places, as a professional poker player. Well, as you guys probably know, Mike Mattisau is a very politically conservative individual. And he's made that known on Twitter and takes a lot of heat on Twitter because of it. And there has actually been a good deal of uh, political moving recently where people move to or from states that match or don't match their politics. So they they will leave a place that doesn't match their politics and go to one that does match their politics. And especially in the era of COVID, this has become more pronounced because some states are more restrictive than others regarding COVID matters, such as uh, mask mandates or vaccine mandates, especially uh, vaccine mandates for employment. And uh, so people on the right like to go to less restrictive states for that sort of thing. And uh, people on the left, uh, they prefer to be in the states that are more restrictive, which they perceive to be safer. So there's an increasing divide. And there was already getting to be a divide as far as uh, people moving specifically for political reasons. I have a close friend from a long time ago who's not involved in poker or gambling, but he actually moved from Southern California to Northern Nevada because uh, Northern Nevada is uh, a conservative area, especially the smaller towns there. The The state isn't a conservative state. It's, it's right now kind of a light blue state in Nevada, but the, some of the towns and counties in northern Nevada are conservative. So, and California obviously is a very uh, liberal state. So, my friend who who's very conservative actually left the state mainly for that reason. And there's a number of people who do that. 
Now, obviously, I'm not one of those people. I'm, I'm still in a, uh, a, a very uh, liberal state, and, and I'm not considering leaving. But I, I kind of understand why people do it on both sides. If, if your own state is constantly frustrating you politically, I can understand why you'd want to go somewhere that you feel uh, fits your view on life better. So I believe that's why Mattisau is considering moving to Texas. He didn't say that explicitly, but I believe that's uh, why he's considering it. And that's why a number of people have. Now, there's other reasons people go. Like, for example, Texas has no state income tax. Now, that wouldn't be a reason to move from Vegas because Nevada doesn't either. But a lot of people do go from California to Texas, number one, to avoid the state income tax because there is no state income tax in Texas, while California has a fairly high one. And also, the homes are much cheaper in Texas, so you can get a lot more house for a lot less money in Texas than you can in California. So there has been a big migration from California to Texas and uh, less of it from Nevada to Texas. But uh, Mattisau says he's been considering it anyway and kind of sees this as a good reason to move. But I'll believe when I see it. He needs to raise some money. He's not, Mattisau's not going to put up a million bucks to do this. I don't even think Mattisau has a million bucks. I'd be shocked if he has a million bucks. And just to see um, what we're going to do and if uh, my partners and them are interested in doing a business, um, then we're going to uh, go into more serious talks. So as of right now, if you didn't know, Johnny Chan's Club 52 or Club 88 got, they shut down two days ago. Uh, they owe a lot of customers a lot of money. Uh, rumor has it it's around a million dollars. So they are. Uh, I mean, it, it reminds me so much of the Fultzelt situation where Ray Batar stole $530 million and we were dead broke the next day and my life was in shambles. Um, uh, this is uh, a smaller scale, I think, of that um, in which Fultzelt was looking for investors so they could pay people uh, in which... You know, Johnny Chan is looking for, uh, you know, somebody to invest. To- it is similar and more similar than you may think. Full Tilt did not get those investors. The only reason Full Tilt paid people was because Poker Stars bought them to get out of legal trouble. It was a deal Poker Stars made with the U.S. Department of Justice to get their own asses off the line for running their site, that they took Full Tilt off the government's hands which the government seized and then later got the owners of Full Tilt to sign over to them as part of a uh, sort of plea agreement. So anyway, that's not going to happen here, obviously. It's a very different situation. They didn't get busted. They just ran out of money and shut down. So like Full Tilt, I think they're going to have a hard time finding anyone to buy in there. To uh, pay, pay everybody. Uh, so I, I look at it as a um, an opportunity for myself and an opportunity to help get the club out of uh, the financial woes that it's in. The big problem really going forward, aside from just the issue with trust from the player base, 
is the fact that there's a competing club pretty much right next door. Not exactly right next door, but almost right next door. I mean, look at them on the maps. Look at Legends and look at uh, Johnny Chan's 88 Social. Really close by. So I don't believe there's enough players in the area to support it. And now that the shit hit the fan at 88 Social, I think they're just going to stay at Legends. People are creatures of habit. It's very hard to dislodge players from the room they're used to going to. Now, occasionally it happens. We covered on this show recently that Commerce, which dislodged the players from Hollywood Park and held them for about two decades, uh, the bike was finally able to get a lot of those players out of Commerce and into the bike, and the longtime limit hold'em scene, and some some of the no-limit hold'em scene in Commerce has died and moved to the bike, which is now the biggest LA room. That was a pretty big transition, but it was hard. It, it, It took the bike a lot of effort and some time to do. And they kind of got lucky by the pandemic, which made it easier when people were coming back. But I don't see a reason they're going to leave Legends at this point and and come back to this 88 Social Club, even with new ownership. I think that's going to be a huge challenge. I just don't think there's enough players for two rooms there anyway. So as for now, uh, as I talk for an hour with Johnny Chan, uh, Again, I don't want to go into too much detail except for the fact that, you know, he insists that this all happened when he was in Vegas and um, and it's kind of destroyed him uh, in a more than one way. So I'm going to um, uh, basically like uh, definitely do a lot of uh, research. By the way, if I had to guess what happened, and again, this is a complete guess. I don't have any knowledge about this. But if I had to guess, I think Johnny Chan wasn't paying that much attention. I think he was kind of there, kind of not there. As he mentioned, he was in Vegas when this stuff went down. I think this wasn't just one weekend some dude just swiped all the money and took off. I, I think that this was a slow decline, and that's why we were hearing about problems a month and a half ago. And I think it was probably that weekend that whatever the final straw was occurred. Maybe it was the owner, the other owner running off with the money. Or maybe that was when it finally just completely ran out and then Johnny Chan found out. Or maybe Johnny Chan has known for some time that they're short, but then they, they finally ran dry. Whatever it is. I don't believe this all happened in one weekend when he's at Vegas. It, it just doesn't make sense. Even Mattisau, if you read between the lines, doesn't seem to believe that. I think Johnny Chan just wasn't watching closely enough, which again is kind of similar to Full Tilt. Like, I don't believe Howard Lederer uh, was looking to steal money. I don't believe Chris Ferguson was looking to steal money. I don't believe Ray First was looking to steal money. I think Ray Batar was kind of looking to steal money. But... Uh, I think that they let Ray Batar run too much and, number one, didn't bother to look into it enough. And number two, when they saw Ray doing things that uh, he shouldn't have been doing, basically stealing the money on deposit, they, they kind of looked the other way and let him do it. They, they kind of bought his explanation and let him do it. That's, that's always been my feeling about Howard and Chris's and Rafe's part in this. They were on the board. They either gave too much power to Ray and for some reason just didn't look into what was happening, which just doesn't sound realistic to me for all that time, or 
they gave him too much power and kind of saw what was happening, but just uh, loosely bought his explanations. And as long as the whole thing's running okay, you know, whatever, we'll be fine. I, I, I kind of think that was more of what happened, which is why they kind of had a hard time understanding why everyone was referring to them as thieves and scammers. And they weren't understanding that they were responsible for the money. They let it happen. So I, I think it may be kind of similar here. I think there's more similarity between these two situations than even Mattisau realizes. Uh, I've been talking to somebody that used to work there. Uh, I've been talking to so, so many people today because, you know, I, I looked at it as a really good business opportunity for me. Uh, <laughs> Let me read you from their chat room. Because as you're playing this, you can actually see the chat room on YouTube as it was going. So this is what someone named uh, Sammy Holdem said. Sammy Holdem said, Mikey, there's no way you could be the manager. You barely can take care of yourself, let alone keep the books, set a schedule, and run the room. No way. Sorry, bro. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I like Mike Mattisau, but Sammy Holdem there kind of has a point. He kind of has a point. I don't disagree that much. Uh, where I could really make good money, uh, people come down to play when I'm there. It's uh, the, the the persons, my friends, who I'm working on a business deal with uh, about buying the club. Uh, we've been in, kind of been in talks about opening a club there for a while. Um, hang on one second, please. Hello. (laughs) He's taking a call on his cell phone during his show. Man, this show is less professional than mine. That's saying a lot. That's saying a lot that a show is less professional than this one. I I, I heard his his cell phone going off, and I'm like, I'm sure he's going to just press the button to mute the ringer, and that's that. And I've done that before here. So, like, I've had it where the show is going, and I forget to turn off the ringer, and I hear it going, and I quickly just silence it. Sometimes I'll get it in editing, but okay, that happens. But he actually just picked up the phone. <laughs> Hello? I'll only do that if I know it's someone we want to talk to, like Master Scaler. But I'm not going to just like pick up the phone and say hello. Okay, let's, let's see who it is. Talk right now. I can't talk right now. Yeah. Oh, okay, hold on. I'll have it done. Bye. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I'll have it done. Bye. <laughs> Oh, my God. And he hands the cell phone over to somebody else. Uh, send the link of the podcast. I thought I gave it to her. Someone wants a link to the podcast. <laughs> he stops the show so he can give the phone to somebody else to send someone a link to the podcast. Oh, that's funny. I mean, I guess it's authentic. I guess it's like authentic Mattisau. This is one nice thing about Mattisau, though. I'm not being sarcastic here. Is like you kind of feel like you're getting the real guy here. Like you've heard of shows being overproduced. His is like massively underproduced. And in some ways, that's nice because you kind of just feel like he's sitting with you in the same room and just talking to you. And I kind of try to create the same feel on this show, but not quite to that extent. <laughs> I'm not going to just answer phone calls in the middle and, and say, hey, I can't talk right now. Yeah. Hey, hey, take this and send them a link. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Anyway, what was I I talking about? Like, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) But it it is authentic. Like, I I will say that. Mike Mattisau is not a phony. I actually have always liked that about him. 
I've liked that he's kind of down there, down to earth and authentic, and you're kind of just like always getting the real guy. So that's one thing you can say about Mike Matisau that you can't say about a lot of other name poker pros. A lot of name poker pros are constantly putting on an act, constantly putting on a face they want you to see of theirs. Not Matisau. No, just send it to her. Who? The, the, the person. The person no, she's not on the phone no more, but I, I just... Someone's typing WTF in the chat. You got it? In his chat, not mine. So, anyways, um, there's a uh, uh, (laughs) a lot more to this story that is being told to me. But uh, if if I'm able to uh, do something and... Uh, a situation comes up uh, that uh, hey Frank, what's going on, buddy? Good to see you. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, I'll keep you guys informed. But as of right now, uh, this is what's been told to me, um, and they're trying to get it squared away. And uh, hopefully, uh, I mean, it's a good opportunity for me, and uh, I'm, I, I've been something that I'm very considering. So, um, you know, there really wasn't much detail except for the fact that Johnny Chan's partner robbed him for millions and left him in a very tough spot. So that's what's going on there. All right. So that's pretty much all there is about this. The uh, remaining 48 minutes of the mouthpiece are about other things. So if you want to hear them... uh you can go listen to the mouthpiece episode 76, but that's all I'm going to play here. And yeah, I believe that Mattisau is telling us what Chan told him and we'll see where this goes, but I think 88 social isn't coming back. I think it's possible. Maybe someone buys it out and completely changes the name and theme, but like why there now that legends has all the business why you're going to want to open just right next to it and try to get people to come back to a room that everybody knows couldn't pay people. Just doesn't make sense, but I've seen people do dumber things. So I I definitely would not invest in this. Even if I were right there, let's say I was right there in Houston. I'll take this call, whatever. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, What's going on, Drop? This is Pac-Man from over in New Jersey. Yeah, hi, what's going on? Well, I was listening. I woke up this morning. I saw you were still on. Couldn't believe that one. And then uh, due to the topic, I, I just thought to myself, the reason why Mike sounded like that, you know he has a bad back and he's on pain medication, right? Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. But, yeah, he's, he's had a bad back for a very long time. Yeah. Now, what I would do if I worked with him and say, Mike, you know, if you want to actually buy this business, maybe you should be all hopped up on opiates when you put in your show. But... You know what's funny? When I'm on uh, pain medication, I don't have that at all. I, and I know everybody has different uh, ways they tolerate medication. But uh, pain medication, I'm actually very good at not having it affect the way uh, my brain works. So I could like just take uh, Vicodin or any kind of uh, pain medication and I'll seem and act and everything will be identical with me. Whereas I, I take something like Xanax, as I mentioned earlier, that's when I'll start to sound like that, the kind of talking slow and, and almost sounding out of it. That, that's what will happen if I take Xanax, but not, not pain medication. But, of course, it affects everybody differently. So, yeah, you could be right here. 
Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, pain medication definitely affects different people differently. Xanax, Xanax, you could go ahead and take too much of that and wake up in the county jail. I mean, like, I've heard a lot of stories about that stuff. But, you know, another reason, too, I mean, like, isn't Legends ran by, like, this real scumbag? Like, I heard there was all kind. I saw the article that um, Doyle Brunson posted on Twitter regarding, like, you know, this guy, you know, he had house players taking money. There was a lot of shady shit. And then he just opens this new place. Yeah, we, we we discussed this. You you so, came you, you came in the middle of the topic here. We we already discussed all that. But yeah, there, there's a lot of allegations about this uh, David Law. I definitely uh, wouldn't trust him myself. And uh, but still, legends is where everybody is now. So uh, I mean, there's Prime Social also. But I'm saying in that right in that area because legends and and uh, 88 Social were were there uh, right next to each other basically because uh, of the split between him and Johnny Chan. So it, it's a very tough place to open even a new club, even one that doesn't have a bad reputation, uh, right next to another one that currently has all the players in that uh, immediate area. And it, it's very hard to pry those players away without having the, a reason to leave. And you may say, oh, maybe people want to get oh, away. And you may say, well, maybe people want to get away from that uh, owner who's got kind of a bad rep. Uh, but if they've been at Legends and everything's been okay there and they haven't had a bad issue there, uh, then people are going to tend to stay. So I, I think it's a bad investment to reopen that room at this point. Oh, yeah. I mean, the only reason why I think another thing that he, Mike would even want to get in on it is, you know, I don't know if you're aware of that, but, like, the poker rooms down in Texas, I know you know they're open, of course, but they are, like, just money pits. Like, you got to understand, like, there's so much oil money down there, and not even from, like, the high corporate guys, but you're talking about the, the guys that are working out in the field. You know, blue-collar guys that are going ahead and making $50, $60 an hour out in the fields for, like, two weeks. They come back, they go over there, they drink a few beers, they just dump hella money in these rooms. That's why you see, like, Ryan DePalmo down there. You've seen Matt Berkey and his crew down there. You've seen... Um, the other two guys that really stream Owen something and the other oh, yeah, guy. Brad, Brad Owen, yeah. I, I wonder if, you know, I never, I haven't asked uh, Bart Hansen specifically why he went to Austin, but I wonder if that has to do with it too. But uh, yeah, the thing is though, it doesn't help the room. The room can only charge a fixed amount uh, per hour, per day, whatever way. They, they can't take a rake because of the laws over there. So uh, there's only so much they can make no matter how bad the players are. Now, bad players, of course, will attract more good players to the room, as you were saying. But there's there's a limit of how much they can make. And uh, I, I think that business model is just never going to be too lucrative for the owners until this changes. And I think what some of them might be hoping is that since there's been some push, now it's been going on for a long time, but since there's been some push to legalize and regulate real poker rooms the same way California and other states do, that then these rooms would be in position to get a license and uh, and already have clientele and they could really make bank. I think that may be what they're kind of hoping it eventually comes to. I don't know how much they're making right now. My guess is not all that much. Well, let me ask you a question. Are, if you own or have an ownership in these, are you still allowed to play in that same room? You're allowed to do I mean, anything. That, that's like other places? Yeah, you're allowed to do anything. That's a big problem. There's no regulation here. These are essentially essentially home games with no regulation at all. And that's the big problem because because there is no legal poker in Texas. All you can do is run a home game. So these are just glorified home games that take place in a business setting, and that's why there's no protection of any kind. 
Well, that's the reason why some of these guys might be wanting to get rooms down there. Not only can they make, you know, income by, you know, the room, which they're not going to make as much as you, like you said, but also they're going to be able to host, get part in these huge games down there with players that ain't as sophisticated as, you know, California or Las Vegas. I don't see people leaving Legends uh, anytime soon. I, th- I think this club is pretty much dead, but who knows? There might be some I'm, who choose to invest in it. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I'll just be honest with you. I don't see Houston, if, if this is the norm down there, I don't see this staying like it is for much longer. The cops don't already. I I have friends down there. I lived down in Texas for five years. And the cops and the, the local politics, they hate this shit. They hate it. And yeah. now they're actually giving them the excuse to close them down. So I don't know how, long, how much uh, longevity... These rooms even have, to be honest with you, which is even a more reason why I wouldn't invest. That that is a good point. That this could be something that spurs the government to go the other direction instead of licensing and regulating them. Just saying, you know what, we can't have this happening repeatedly in Houston. We've we've just got to shut all these down. We we were okay with it when there wasn't anything terrible happening, but now that uh, like a million bucks got ripped off, uh, no, we're not we're not going to allow this anymore and and just shut it down. I, I could easily see them deciding to clamp down in Houston and putting it into that poker scene at least in that way. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you got to understand too that if it's that much money, right? And they're high stakes players. People that have a lot of money usually have a lot of influence, and you know. Houston is a small city in a way, you know what I mean, when it comes to, like, the higher-ups. So, you know, Billy Boy's talking to John, yeah, them guys ripped me off of three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000. Then they start talking to the guys in the police. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it just becomes a windfall. Yeah, this definitely could be a big problem for the industry. I'm sure the other rooms there are upset about this. They're not happy, oh, good, a competitor's gone. Maybe Legends is happy about this, but I'm sure Prime Social is saying, crap, we didn't want this. This is going to bring a lot of unwanted attention. This is going to highlight a big vulnerability to these rooms existing, that they're not regulated at all, and uh, you can't count on even getting paid, which starts to look a lot like yeah. a, an offshore online poker room. It's the new Texas UB. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it is. So that's going to be a problem there, possibly. And we'll have to see what way it goes. Now, maybe this is going to be a good thing. Maybe this will spur regulation. Maybe this will push them the other way. But yeah, there's a decent chance this will push it one way or the other, either a clampdown or the the final push to get all these licensed and regulated and and, uh, operating the same way they do in California. So we'll have to see. Anyway, uh, thanks for your call here. We're going to move on to the next subject. Hey, no problem, Jeff. Have a good one. Thanks a lot. Bye. Alrighty, see, this is what's good about uh, being on all night is that people wake up. You know who just, uh, speaking of waking up, I, I Trader Ruski is in our chat. Trader Ruski is actually in our chat right now. He's not saying anything, but he came into the chat uh, 10 minutes ago. He hasn't said anything, but he must be awake, but he hasn't called in yet. I bet he's listening. He's probably brushing his teeth or something. Ah, there we go. I, I knew it. I knew I just had to encourage this. Trader Ruski, hello. What's happening, Jeff? I knew I had to just give some words of encouragement to get you to make that call. I'm just getting up. I was listening. I, there wasn't really a good time to call in during the Matisau uh, thing, but Jesus Christ, he sounded he sounded like hammered. The fact <laughs> that he's, you know, I used to play with him. Well, he was a dealer at the Mirage, I mean, many years ago, and he'd have these thick glasses on, you know, and then he'd play in like the 
10, 20 or 20, 40 game. But that was huge back. You know, that was like the biggest, there were, you know, probably some of the biggest games back then. I mean, that this is like pre Bellagio. Yeah. But it's just funny to hear him now. And that would be a disaster if he tried to run the club. Yeah, I, I, I have I to mean, say, it, I, I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want to play at a club that uh, Mattisau is actively running. But hey, I mean, who would have thought the bike would have got all the business back from commerce? You know, never would have thought that even a year ago or certainly pre-COVID. Yeah, the funny thing, as I've said before here, is they tried and seemingly failed. And then they tried a second time post-COVID and it worked. I was shocked when I called COVID, when I called commerce post-COVID. I'm like, hey, what games are running of Limit Hold'em? Uh, let's see. We've got uh, 4 8, 8 16. Uh, yeah. I go, no, no, I don't mean in, in that section. I mean in the top section. No, that's what we've got. I go, we're about 2040, 4080. We got a list for 2040. It may go, usually doesn't in, until uh, you know the weekends. I'm like, what the fuck? Is, is this really commerce? Did I call the right number? Like, I was shocked. And then I was like, is this a normal night or did something happen here? And then, no, this this is we're trying to get going again. I'll go. Wait, well, what happened to the limit hold'em? It was all the bike. I was shocked. So uh, they 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 got it going. I I've talked about before why I feel that happened. I think Commerce dropped the ball big time, but it's hard to do. And uh, yeah, well, they intentionally poached a few players. You know, my friend Jonathan. I think he went over there and then started recruiting players and i just think they grabbed a few strategic people paid the money and then they just started bringing players oh, they de- they definitely and- poached I, I i saw it happening you know commerce let it happen though commerce uh didn't do anything to stop it and they had a lot of player unfriendly policies that they didn't bother to change as people were leaving and by the time they thought to do anything it was too late and even then they were doing odd things like charging you $5 for a card reprint after COVID, just outrageous things like that. And people are like, screw it. <laughs> we'll stay at the bike. The action's there now anyway. So that was the end of that. I mean, a lot of mismanagement in commerce to let that occur. They they let two decades of, of dominance slip through their fingers. That's uh, real, real mismanagement. Anyway, we're going to move on here. And I'm uh, glad to have you on the show. We haven't had you on in, in quite some time because of the uh, show schedule and your sleep schedule just not corresponding. I, I know. What you started two a.m. or something? I, I started at two a.m. Yeah, that's when I started. Wow! I didn't plan to start at two a.m. I just got first. It was going to be nine thirty. Then it didn't happen at nine thirty. Then it just got later and later. And I had some things I had to do, and I and I, I hadn't prepared for the show. There was a lot I had to do to prepare this time, and I, I hadn't researched certain topics enough, so I had to do all that. And uh, anyway, eventually got late enough. I'm like, you know what? Too late for a free roll, and. Now that it's so late, I don't even have to rush because like one in the morning, two in the morning, it's all pretty much the same thing. And in fact, the later I start, the more people I'll pick up as they wake up. And, and I, I thought about you and I thought about Cal Watt and uh, I thought, hey, I, I bet we'll pick up one or both of them with the hours that will be on this time is going to end much later than we normally would. Usually the show is uh, long over by this point. So anyway, we're going to move on and talk about poker paint. Uh, Trader Whisker, are you familiar with poker paint? I'm not. What's that? Okay, so we talked about it once before on this show. Poker Paint is an NFT, and also, I guess it also operates as just artwork. But it's run by one guy, a young guy, I think he's 25. His name, and this is not a joke, his name is Brett Butts. (laughs) Now, Brett Butts, maybe it's pronounced Butts, but it's spelled like Butts, B-U-T-Z. Brent Butts. Brent Butts. Sorry, hold on. You missed a topic, though. You skipped over a topic. I don't know if you're aware of that. Um, 
I did, but I, I'll, I'll go to the, since I, okay. I I'm just you're, you're right, and, and thank you for pointing that out because I probably would have accidentally skipped the whole thing and I would have felt very bad about it. But uh, since I went to poker paint, we'll do this next, and then we'll go to the other topic that was supposed to be second. So poker paint was something that looked pretty cool and a lot of people were moderately excited about. I say moderately because it wasn't some groundbreaking thing that everybody had to have, but it was something that looked cool and people enjoyed. And that was uh, a guy was putting out these images of mostly well-known poker pros, but some semi-known poker pros as well, in action at the poker table. And it was in a colorful artistic fashion so it it was you could tell who it was and it looked like a a picture of that person but it was very very colorful it was in bright colored it was kind of like recolored in kind of a an artistic format and uh, people thought this was kind of cool and then he said he's going to release these as nfts so you could buy these pieces on their own also he was going to release nfts and a lot of people were pretty into the whole thing and thought this is pretty cool. As I said, this was, this didn't take the poker world by storm. People weren't ultra excited about this, but it seemed like something that uh, people were going to enjoy. And it, it seemed like a natural thing to happen because 2021 is the year of the NFTs. And poker didn't really have a well-visible NFT project. So this was going to be one that... Uh, People thought were really cool. They thought this guy was just a artist who was drawing these uh, these cool depictions of different poker players that were mostly well known, and that uh, people thought poker fans would really be into this. Then came the controversy. We've talked about it before on this show, so we're not going to rehash that whole thing. But the controversy was that this guy wasn't doing his own art; he was taking existing photographs that were owned by the respective photographers and then just uh, either redrawing them or coloring them some way through a program. And that obviously raises a lot of both ethical and legal issues. You can't just take someone else's work and adopt it as your own and make some modifications to it and say, now it's yours, and not compensate them. Not only is it wrong to do that morally, but it's uh, also something that can get you sued. So, obviously, the poker photographers who found their work done like this and being sold by this uh, poker paint company, which is really just one guy, as I said, that uh, Brett Butts, that they were very upset about it. Because uh, you may not picture that a photo of a poker player playing poker is art, but it actually is. Uh, The photographer has to wait for the right moment and uh, has to try to catch the player in a state that people will find interesting. It's tougher than it looks. It's not just walking around with a camera and just shooting random shots of someone. In fact, uh, I even have seen pictures being taken of me. And I watched them preparing for it. And in fact, I try to cooperate. I don't have to, but uh, I try to cooperate when I see these photographers coming around to take pictures of me. And they're not all clamoring to take pictures of me because I'm not a major name in poker. But uh, I'm enough of a name where, where pictures will be taken of me sometimes at the World Series. That's really the best way to describe it is sometimes there's pictures taken, sometimes there's not. At the main event, there were some taken. I just never 
appeared anywhere. Sometimes they'll take them and not use them. But when I see that, I'll try to actually pose in a way to where they can uh, take a good picture. And uh, sometimes I don't notice them and they'll just take it really like in the middle of some kind of action. But sometimes I will try to pose in a way where it doesn't look like I'm posing. So I make their job easier. But uh, most players don't do this. So these poker photographers have to go around and they're actually not supposed to disrupt anything. And they do a good job not disrupting. They never tell anyone to pose. And then they have to find compelling pictures to take. And the bottom line is it's their property at that point. And if they're taking it on behalf of an organization, then it's the organization's property. But the bottom line is uh, you sign away your right to the World Series and in most other venues you play that they own the pictures of you, that you can't say, I want this image back or I want royalties for this image of me. You can't do that. You're basically signing that away when you can play at the World Series and, and the WBT and these other tournaments. So basically your image is usually owned by the photographer themselves or, or the company they're working for. So in this case, a lot of the photographers who, do, who did own the rights to these images and basically licensed them out to companies that want to use them were really pissed to see their work was just being adopted by somebody else and, and sold for profit. And I understand. I'd be pissed too if I were a photographer. Now, poker players were outraged by this because something about the poker community is that they're very protective of those who work on the fringes of the community to try to make a living through the game without playing poker. So they have the, the community itself, especially the pros, ha- they have a lot of respect for these people. They have respect for the journalists. They have a respect for the photographers. They have a respect for uh, the tournament directors. They have a respect for the floor men. So they, they try to do what they can to protect these people if they feel that they are being exploited in any way. And that's why when this story came out and it was shown how these were identical, that, yeah, they, it was colored differently, but it was the identical shot that clearly Poker Paint was taking images owned by others and claiming them as their own after modifying them. So there is a big controversy about this. This is uh, going back to September, and we covered it on this show, so I don't want to totally recover that topic, but there, there is an update to this that I want to talk about. But that's, that's basically what was going on. And I mentioned the guy behind Poker Paint being young, and that was some of his excuse. He said, look, I, I, at first he was defensive about it and, and saying he's not doing anything wrong and that didn't go over with people. Like People did not like that he was taking that tone. And it, it made sense why they didn't like this because, he, number one, he wasn't right. And, and number two, that's not a good look. You, you don't come back at people saying, nope, I can use your work. I can get away with it. T- tough luck. F you. Like, even if he thinks he can find a legal loophole to do this, that's not a good idea because you're going to piss everybody off. Because the, the whole point of your project is to get the endorsement of the pros featured and the poker world speaking positively about your project. You don't want to be antagonistic to those who are being pictured. And all the pros who are being depicted here, not every single one of them, but most of them, uh, are very supportive of the photographers. So you don't want the people that you're selling pictures of hating you and, and speaking out against you and calling you a scammer and a thief and all that. Like, that's the last thing you want. You want the poker world to be excited and speaking positively of you. So 
even if he could get away with it legally, which I don't think he could, it's not a good business model to be seen as someone who's stealing images. As I said, this was a controversy in September. This was first brought up by Eric Harkins, who said, uh, it's been brought to our attention that you're skinning copyrighted images, including ours without prior consent or license. Please cease and desist sales of images or reach out to the original photographers for license permission. So uh, after some exchanges back and forth, eventually Poker Paint... uh, he posted a statement basically saying, okay, going forward, I'll be contacting all photographers prior to making the art. And then he put out a, a longer statement that was saying that he's uh, looking into it legally through legal counsel, blah, blah, blah. But the problem was there were some things he wasn't saying that were still leaving people not feeling that good about poker paint. Uh, number one, uh, he wasn't exactly saying going forward what he's going to do and not do. He's just saying, well, I'm, I'm talking with legal counsel of, uh, of what's compliant with copyright, copyright law and what isn't, and, uh, and, and whatever isn't, I'll, I'll, I'll make up for past mistakes. But he's not explaining how. So people, including me, were skeptical, saying, okay, it's understandable if you're, it's understandable if you're 25 years old and you don't really know about copyright law and you really thought what you were doing was okay, and then someone hit you with a cold reality that you're really stealing other people's content and modifying it and just and not giving them a piece or getting permission, uh, that's a problem. So, okay, I can understand how this could happen with a 25-year-old who just didn't think of this. Now, there were some suspicious elements of this because uh, a photographer named uh, Haley Hotstelter talked about how she actually told him in June that she did not want him using her images. He actually went to her and asked, is this okay? And she said, no. And they had a back and forth conversation and she just said, nope, don't want it. Nope, don't do it. And then he did anyway. So that that already looked pretty bad because that's hard to plead ignorance when someone's already told you, do not, do not, do not. And then he does it anyway. But putting that aside, he did say, and this is on September 27th, that going forward, he's going to do better. But there were still some unanswered questions. And I talked about this on the show at the time, about two and a half months ago, when the shit all hit the fan with this. He didn't go forward with the NFT. He, he took all that down. But he didn't take everything down. He didn't take all the artwork down. He didn't promise not to sell any of the pictures from photographers who don't agree. He didn't make hard promises. Like, I would say the right thing to do there, both legally and morally is to take everything down that you didn't produce totally on your own or at least didn't have permission from uh, from the original photographer. If you don't have permission or didn't do it on your own, take everything down and then start going to the photographers one by one and negotiate something with each one. And when they give you permission, you come to an agreement, then you put them back up. It's very simple. That's what you need to do. He was not committing to do that. He was just saying, well, I'll, I'll do it right going forward. What does that mean? Uh, my legal counsel is discussing that with me. It just, it seemed very simple, and it seemed like he was kind of looking for the minimum he could do and still go forward with it. But people kind of let it go because it seemed like this whole thing stopped. It seemed like that after this whole controversy that the whole thing lost steam, and it seemed clear to him 
that this was not viable anymore. Now, he claimed he lost $50,000 in starting this whole business, that he's already in the hole 50K. So he's saying, I haven't profited from this. I've lost a lot of money. I don't know where it all went. But he's claiming he lost a lot of money already, and uh, you know, he just doesn't have it to pay these people. He popped back up, and he seemed to be active with this whole thing again. And uh, this did not sit well with the same people because the Parker World's not going to just forget this. They're not going to just say, okay, cool, you know, we, we gave you a hard time back in September, but no problem. So all of a sudden, he just popped back up after being very quiet on social media. In fact, he was so quiet, he didn't tweet anything on the Poker Paint account between September 27th and uh, November 18th. But on November 19th, he tweeted, We're back on the grind. I've been reaching out to many photographers, met with them, made license agreements, understand IP law better, and look forward to spreading love through art. IP referring to intellectual property. So I was the first one responding to this. Because I thought, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, maybe this is good, but what does it mean? So I said, okay, great to hear. So now that you're up to speed, have you taken down all pieces where the photographers didn't give you specific permission? And were the photographers compensated for prior sales? Because remember, he already sold some of these. So it's not like he put them up for sale, people cried foul, and he took them down. He had already sold some prior to everybody crying foul. So there does remain the question of how do you compensate those that uh, had their images already sold. Danny Maxwell, who's been one of the photographers complaining loudly about this, responded uh, a few weeks later on December 5th, and he said, quote, reach out, you mean just sending photographers an email attachment with a contract and no information. To, to the best of my knowledge, he has had some contact with photographers, but the ones I know of personally have said no to him. He's still using copyrighted images. Uh-oh. So, Danny Maxwell, who is pretty well known and respected in the community as a photographer, is insisting that, uh, as far as he knows, nobody has made any kind of agreement with him, that he just uh, fired out a contract to people and said, okay, you know, here it is. Uh, you want to agree to this? And then if they didn't respond, he kept uh, selling this art anyway, that's according to Danny Maxwell. Now, Something else happened behind the scenes that I have not revealed yet. I'm going to reveal right now. After I wrote that tweet on November 19th, Poker Paint reached out to me directly through DMs on Twitter. Now, when he reached out to me, he was of the mistaken impression that I was friends with these photographers who were complaining and that I was attacking him for that reason. And I told him no, and that's the honest truth. And I said, in fact, you can go look, and none of these people even follow me. And I don't follow most of them. And you can see I've had like no interaction with them prior to all this. These are not enemies of mine, but they're not friends. And I don't have any personal stake in this. This doesn't affect me either way, that I'm just someone who reports on these type of things. And this is a controversy, and I'm reporting on it. That's all I'm doing. And I have my opinion, but I have nothing against you personally, and I'm not on their side because I like them or I'm friends with them. So I told him that. And then we had a conversation. Now, I did tell him that I'm not going to reveal the contents of our private conversation. 
and I'm going to keep to that commitment because I'm not going to make that commitment to someone and then violate it. Otherwise, uh, number one, that's not right. Number two, no one's going to trust me in the future to ever talk to me if I do that. So I'm not going to tell you guys what our conversation had back and forth, but I will tell you what I said because I did just give him some general advice. I'm not going to tell you what he said or what his responses were, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that I gave him the advice that he can't be antagonistic to the community. No matter what he thinks he can do, he shouldn't do. He should just get everybody's permission, and that if it's a matter of not having the money to pay them right now, then come up with some sort of generous compensation to them, at least at the beginning, like the first X number I sell, you'll get this very high percentage, and it'll go down from there. Something along those lines to where he doesn't have to pay them up front. So someone he's already sold a few of their photos, instead of having to pay them up front in order to get an agreement with them, say, I can't pay you up front because I'm 25 and broke, but uh, in order to compensate you for the past, the first X number of sales, the first five sales I make, you get this very high percentage, and then it goes down from there. And then still they get a, a pretty good percentage. And I said, really, that's your only choice. Uh, you, if you think you can just go through and try to squeak by legally while leaving everyone dissatisfied and feeling like you screwed them, the whole community is going to turn their back on you and hate you and no one's going to want to buy this. And not only that, you, you might very well lose several lawsuits. So you may believe you're legally in the right, but there's a good chance you're not. So I said, that's really the only way. It may not be the way you like. You may wish you could keep a lot more money than you would be able to this way. And this may stop you from establishing a good cash flow up front. But if you want to continue with this project, this is my advice to you. And this is coming from me personally, not from any of the photographers. I will tell you, and I'm sure he's going to listen to this because he knows I'm doing this segment tonight. I, I told him, I said, in fact, I invited him on the show. I said, you can come on the show. And uh, he declined it for reasons I won't get into, but it's understandable why he declined it. But, but he, I said, well, I just want to give you the opportunity. And I said, number one, I'm not going to reveal what you said to me, and I'm not going to. And uh, what I'm saying to him here, though, is that I have not had any private conversations with any of the photographers involved. None. Not one have I talked to about this. In fact, I'll go as far to say that ever since this started, ever since this controversy started in September, I have not had a single private conversation with any of the photographers that are currently complaining about this because these are not my friends. And I have not gotten into this enough to where these photographers would be reaching out to me privately. So I'm not doing this on their behalf. This was not their idea. But the advice I gave him was my impression of the only way this could succeed because it still could succeed because if all the photographers come forward and say okay we endorse this now this was a naive kid but we like what he's doing we just didn't like what he did at the beginning with with our work but we we've settled that issue we endorse this now and of course not every photographer is going to there's going to be some that refuse and then you just have to not not feature their pictures but uh the rest of them that do he can say all of them have agreed, and uh, and then they can even endorse it if they want, and then there won't be this hate, and people will forget this very quickly. But there's no way this is going to succeed if there's constant antagonistic behavior from angry photographers 
that, to be honest, have a right to be angry. I'm not even saying that they're doing something bad by complaining. Like this, Danny Maxwell has been very vocal about Poker Paint becoming active again. And he's been pushing everybody to retweet it for awareness. And he's been very, very aggressive against Poker Paint. But I understand it because he feels like their work is getting stolen. So I think Poker Paint needs to either take my suggestion or just give up on this. You really have no path to success. And in fact, you're probably going to get sued if you continue. I think people were going to just back away from this and not bother to file a lawsuit because you're 25. They probably believe you're broke. And it seemed like you were just kind of backing off the whole thing and, and not going to continue with it. That was the impression that most of them got when you, you vanished after uh, the controversy hit a few days later. So they were still pissed, but they weren't going to do anything. Again, nobody told me this, but that was my impression. That's why everybody was quiet about this for the past two and a half months. But but now he's back, and and now they're unhappy about this again. So this isn't going to go away. There's no way you can continue selling these pictures, even if it's ones you have permission to sell, until you get this worked out with the others. Now, working out with the others may include never publishing their work again, and if you've already sold some things, agreeing that in the future, when the company makes money, you're going to send them X amount of dollars. Just something like that. Something, something to calm down the people you've already sold their work and everybody you haven't sold yet, you take it down unless they gave you permission. There's also some controversy because uh, he posted an image on uh, December 4th of someone who has had a lot of uh, controversy himself. And this person gave a thumbs up to the whole thing. This would be one uh, Alec Torelli, who was part of an angle shooting scandal when he was on a uh, poker show and accused of doing a very bad angle shoot and then having some pretty bad excuses about it. And uh, Doug Polk came at him really, really hard. Now, to be fair, Doug Polk hasn't liked Alec Torelli for a long time. And in fact, they were competitors with their uh, poker training uh, services and products, but uh, still, I, I had to take Polk's side on this. He, he looked like Polk was right, and Alec Torelli did seem to be angle shooting from what happened there. So, <laughs> anyway, Poker Paint on December 4th tweeted a picture of Alec Torelli sitting on like a balcony with some buildings in the background, and it says, Carefree is the name of the piece, featuring Alec Torelli living life to the fullest. <laughs> now I don't know who took that picture Alec Torelli responded saying thanks for the awesome art so he was cool with it but then uh, Danny Maxwell jumped on him right away and said do you know you're supporting a content thief here do you want to be associated with that Alec so Alec didn't respond back but this is what's going to happen so I don't know where this picture of Alec Torelli came from I mean, for all I know it could have been taken by Alec Torelli's girlfriend or something and given to poker paint and so maybe there's nothing wrong with that photo being sold. But that's the problem. Like Alec Torelli's like, hey, this is cool. I like it. Thanks for the art. And then you have Danny Maxwell going, whoa, 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 whoa. Alec, are you sure you want to support this thief? Like this is going to keep happening. Th this is why you can't just ignore the controversy and say, oh, well, I think I'm legally in the right. Because first of all, you may not be. And second of all, it's going to be a constant monkey in your back. And this business is going to be a complete failure unless you address this. And this is coming from a man with a lot more life experience than you, Mr. Brett Butts.
because I'm like double your age. And even though I've never uh, had any company selling artwork and I'm a terrible artist myself and always have been, uh, from my life experience, I can tell you this is not going to work unless you settle this with the photographers and make the poker world believe that you have treated everybody in good faith and haven't screwed anyone. That's the only way you're going to be able to get this off the ground and also not get sued. So imagine if you actually do sell some of these and make good money and then all these guys sue you and they, they get all that money right back from you. You don't want that? I doubt it. So that's my advice. And I swear to you, this is not coming from a place of somebody who is on their side. I don't know these people. I know of them. I'm not friends with any. I really don't care whether you make the money or these photographers make the money. Though I agree with their point. I'm not saying I'm in the middle on this because I, I agree with the points they're raising. But I'm saying that I don't have a personal stake in the whole thing. And I'm not interested in even helping them. I'm not on a crusade to help them against you. And that's why in our conversations, which again, I'm not going to read out here, I, uh, why I was uh, cordial with you and I was fair with you. And I think you'll agree with that. And I think you can tell by my tone, and I'm very sincere with my tone, that I would really just like to see this resolved. Not for anything that's going to help me, but I, I think it would be nice. I think I think uh, you do have some talent, even if you are using a program to do this somewhat. I mean, whatever you're doing, the pictures are kind of cool. You just got to make sure you have the proper rights to them. And I think there could be some interest in this if you get this resolved. If you don't, you're never going to get off the ground. And all you're going to do is get sued. And you know what? If you piss these people off enough, not only might they sue you, but their lawsuit might get backed by a rich poker pro who feels bad for them. For example, Daniel Negreanu. Now, Negreanu has not offered to back a lawsuit, but I could see him doing it. Or even Bill Perkins. Just if rich poker pros decide that you're screwing over the photographers who are seen as kind of like the working class in the poker community, these are not uh, rich people. These are ones who were uh, taking pictures to make a living of poker players. And uh, if it's seen that they're being screwed over, then I could see certain rich poker pros saying, you know what? F it. These photographers may not have the money to hire a lawyer, but we're going to hire one for them. We haven't seen that yet, but I could easily see that happening. And then you're really in trouble because then you're going to have a hard time hiring a lawyer yourself if you really are 25 and broke. So... Do you really want to get there? Because you're getting close. And I'm saying this again as an observer without having any private conversations. I, I, I can see what the way this is going. You can't, you can't just ignore them and go forward and pretend it's not happening because you're going to get sued. So that's my honest, heartfelt advice from someone who would like to see this project succeed, but in the right way. So that's all I can say here and uh, we'll see where this goes but uh, Danny Maxwell pushing very hard for visibility on this and getting some a lot of retweets I've seen and this is after two and a half months of, of quiet it's never going to go away unless you make it go away and you can trust me you can ask around I, I don't BS about things like this if, if I really don't have a personal interest in it and I say I don't then I don't I don't, I don't manipulate people like that I'm always straightforward with this type of thing Okay, so uh, we're going to go to the next topic, which is supposed to be the previous topic. But I've got something sad to report out here, and you may have already heard it since we were off for a while. But uh, you still with us, Trader Risky? You're the one who reminded me I skipped this topic. 
I sure am. Yeah. So uh, we had a guest on this show, very interesting guest, about uh, seven years ago. In fact, it was in December 2014. So just about exactly seven years ago. We had a guest on this show, Dusty Leatherass Schmidt, who was uh, really a legendary online poker pro that was known for just multi-tabling an insane number of tables and just doing it all day and all night. And he also wrote some books, and he was really known as the ultimate 2000s-era grinder. And that's what he was known for. And in fact, uh, his nickname, Leather Ass, had to do with that. That like his ass became leather because he was sitting in that chair so long, multi-tabling so much. And we had him on this show seven years ago to talk about what he claimed was brain damage that he got from doing this. He said this was actually harmful to his brain to frantically multi-table for so many hours all day and all night without a break. And uh, he said he realized that uh, this was harming him and he was starting to suffer certain cognitive issues as a result of this. And he had to slow down somewhat. And it was a very interesting interview. And I enjoyed it. And uh, I also, I, I didn't know him super well, but uh, I, I also liked him personally. He seemed like a good guy. And uh, he, he was a family man, had, uh, had a few kids, and people that were uh, close with him always had good things about him and uh, very easy to get along with. He was very outspoken politically. He was on the right politically and was very outspoken about it. So that got a lot of people angry at him. There were people who were on the other political side, on the left, or who didn't like him for that reason. Because, I mean, he was very outspoken politically, so some people got to hate him for that. But, uh, um, you know, personally, I, I felt he was a very good guy. And the reason I keep saying was is that, uh, unfortunately, Dusty Schmidt passed away on December 1st at the age of 40. Now, no official cause was given of his death. We can take a pretty good guess, and that's because uh, he had some pretty major health issues that date back a long time. A lot of poker pros who die at a young age like 40 have themselves to blame from drug abuse or uh, other very unhealthy behaviors that send them to an early grave. I won't bother to name certain poker pros that uh, I either think this happened with or know this happened with, but I'm sure you know some of them. And uh, others suffer from or suffered from mental illness, extreme mental illness, and that eventually does them in as well. We've talked about some that have uh, passed away recently. The The most uh, recent example of that was Matt Marifiati. So that has resulted in some suicides that we've disproportionately have in the poker community. So we do have in poker a disproportionate number overall of number one, people who abuse substances and alcohol and number two, people who have mental illness. Somehow the game just uh, attracts some of these people. My theory is that uh, the, the allure of uh, easy money and the basic degeneracy that poker can satisfy for people will attract that sort to the game. However, that wasn't the case with Dusty Schmidt. Dusty Schmidt 
was a family man who did not have these vices, to my knowledge, and was not behaving irresponsibly. Dusty Schmidt, unfortunately, was born with a heart problem. And this was diagnosed from a very young age. And that's a bad beat right away. And sometimes either just genetics or birth defects can doom you to an early death and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's very sad. And I've known people personally who have uh, passed at a young age for that exact reason, through no fault of their own. Eventually a uh, problem they were born with does them in, even if they've been able to uh, live with it and have a normal life up until that point. So Dusty Schmidt had a heart attack at the age of 23, 17 years ago. Obviously, he lived through it, but how many 23-year-olds do you know that have heart attacks, especially ones that are not substance-caused, and his was not? How many just have heart attacks that just happen at 23? Very uncommon. Basically, nobody has a heart attack at 23 unless they either uh, bring it on themselves through heavy drug use or have a hereditary problem. So he was the latter. So it's been known for many years that Dusty Schmidt had a bad heart. And when you're living with that, any moment can be your last. So it is not said that he died of a heart attack, but I think it's very, very likely that's how he passed away. I know he wasn't sick because he was a friend of mine on Facebook And on November 27th, just four days before his death, he posted a picture of a Christmas tree that he put up. Now, anybody who's put up a Christmas tree knows that it's not super easy to do. It's not super strenuous, but you don't just snap your fingers and a tree pops up. There's, There's some effort. There's some physical effort it requires. So if he were really sick, he would not have put up a Christmas tree on November 27th. He wouldn't have had the energy to do so. His Facebook posts also were completely normal. In fact, his last Facebook post on November 30th, the day before he passed away, was uh, really just standard political stuff and nothing indicating any kind of health issue. just seemed like another day for him, probably was. He obviously had no idea on November 30th that a day later he would be gone. So the news of his death came through a friend of his that is not a poker player, but is actually a professional golfer. Dusty Schmidt was very passionate about golf. In fact, he wanted to become a pro golfer himself, but the heart attack at age 23 held him back from that. And that's actually what uh, led him to poker. But he still played golf, and he was uh, friends with another golfer since childhood who went on to become a pro golfer, and that is a golfer named Kevin Na. N-A is the way you spell his last name. I believe he's of Korean descent. This is what uh, Kevin Na wrote on December 2nd on Facebook, and this is publicly available. This is a public post, so you can find it on Facebook. If you just look up Kevin Na, he's, he's there on Facebook as Kevin Na Golf. You can also see links to it on a lot of articles about uh, Dusty Schmidt's death. Kevin Na wrote, 
my dear friend Dusty Schmidt passed away last night. I want to share a little bit about my, about my friend. Dusty was a childhood friend of mine. We grew up playing golf today, together in Southern California. He was a top junior-ranked golfer who played pro golf for a short period. Unfortunately, his career was cut short due to some health issues. That's referring to uh, the heart problems. He later in life found a passion for the game of poker and became very successful at it. He even wrote a few books on poker. Dusty caddied for me in the U.S. Junior Amateur and even in the Asian Tour event at South Korea. He was a true friend that was always there for me and rooted for me throughout my life. I remember his first trip to the Masters with me. I've never seen him so happy. We talked about our young junior golf days and how he dreamed of playing the Masters someday. Recently, he shared his goal and dream of playing the Champions Tour someday with me. I was really hoping this would happen one day. Dusty leaves his wife and three children behind. My thoughts and prayers to the Schmidt family. I will miss you, my friend. Rest in peace, buddy. It's a pretty sad message there. And uh, there, there's no way that Kevin Na would have posted this if, if it wasn't true. So yeah, there's some rumors that Dusty Schmidt had passed and uh, pretty quickly this was uh, found. And that erased pretty much all doubt in my mind. I, I, when I first heard that Dusty Schmidt had passed away, I, since he has these haters because of his politics, I thought, you know, maybe there's some trolls putting this message out there. Like, I just saw him on November 30th on Facebook posting uh, political stuff, so, like, maybe maybe they're just screwing around. But then once this Kevin Na thing was found, I'm like, ah, oh, boy, okay, I think he's probably gone. So, uh, Dusty Schmidt is gone. And, uh, again, no cause of death was given, but I, I think it's pretty obvious he made a challenge, Dusty Schmidt, in June of this year where uh, he was offering anyone, and I mean anyone, he was offering anyone a challenge for $1 million in a half-golf, half-heads-up poker competition. And I'm not sure the way it would be structured, but this was in June 2021, very recent. And... He said, anyone who wants to take him on, he'll do it. Now, the reason people didn't jump at this, who felt that they were better than him in poker, was because of the golf part. In fact, Eric Lindgren commented on this. And Eric Lindgren golfs, but he's not as good as uh, Dusty Schmidt is believed to be, who have been. He said, the hard part is going to be finding a poker player who's very good at poker that's better than Dusty at golf. That's that's why no one took him up on it, because uh, of the good poker players, Dusty Schmidt was probably the best golfer. So even those that believed they had an edge on him on the poker side believed it wasn't big enough to make up for their deficit in golf skill. So no one took him up on that interesting million-dollar offer, but he did put it out there and really left it open to everyone. It always hits me kind of when I see these deaths of guys in poker who are younger than me. Because I, I don't picture myself dying anytime soon. And when I see people like Dusty who are nine years younger than me, and they're gone, uh, it's, it's very sad. And I realize that he had a heart issue that most of us do not. But still, it's very sad to see this. It's it's one thing when someone dies who's in their late 70s or even someone in their early 70s. Uh, you still say, okay, they were old and 
some people live less than the average life expectancy and it happens it's it's sad but they're gone and you don't say oh they're they're taken so young but he was only 40 and he had three young kids that's really too bad and you, you could tell from his facebook he really loved his wife and his family and he he was someone who tried to be happy despite the bad hand he was dealt with his health uh, he knew that this day could come at any point and that's actually why he backed out of a career in professional golf it was going to be too strenuous to do he could play golf sometimes but he, he couldn't have the demands of, of a professional golf career with the heart condition he had but he knew he knew that uh one day he could just die which most people who are that age don't think about most people who are 40 they think it's a very outside chance that they'll just have a heart attack and die one day now at my age about 50 yeah it uh starts to get more realistic that you could just have a heart attack and die but it's still not something in the forefront of your mind it's still something that mainly happens to older people but when you've got a heart condition like that when you already had a heart attack at 23 that you didn't do anything to bring on you know every day could be your last you could just be gone so uh, rest in peace dusty schmidt i was kind of shaken from reading that and he wasn't a close friend of mine but we always got along and uh, that's why he appeared on this show because we always got along and if someone i i personally liked in poker like I, I think about my interview with him seven years ago i didn't think i'd be talking about seven years later on the show that he he's dead but unfortunately he's no longer with us they did a pretty good write-up about him on cardschat.com that talks about his history one of his strategy books that he was best known for this is an older book by now but it was a it was called don't listen to phil helmuth <laughs> it was telling of uh, people about uh, mistakes that they make at the poker table that Phil Helmuth might be encouraging them to make. He was also known for uh, playing 24-hour shifts without taking a break at many tables at once. Very interesting character. He claimed he played 10 million hands in that frantic period and won over $3 million in that period of time. As I said, he slowed down in his later years. He wasn't playing as high anymore or as many tables anymore because of the mental problems he had. So it's, it's too bad that this occurred, but unfortunately he probably knew it might come one day. Okay, well, this is a segue into another story about a poker player's health, and this player is still alive. So at least it's not as sad. I don't like to have these back-to-back, but I kind of did these topics out of order, so now I'm stuck with it. But Doyle Brunson has been someone who has been reported dead a number of times over the years by trolls. It's become a running joke in the poker world that uh, someone tweets out R.I.P. Doyle, and then everybody panics. What? Doyle Brunson died? It's believable because Doyle Brunson's very old. And he seems like he's not in the best physical condition and he's overweight and you could believe at any time he'd be gone. So for years, people 
kept falling for this. And then it, it happened so often that R.I.P. Doyle became a joke that everybody knew as soon as they saw it that he wasn't really dead. He has had some health scares over time, but obviously he's still alive and well. He even played at the 2021 World Series of Poker as, as one of the oldest players to register. Doyle Brenton is 88 years old. Now, I've noticed with Doyle, he actually has a lot in common with someone who passed away earlier this year who was not a poker player, but is also very well-known, in fact, better known than Doyle. That'd be Tommy Lasorda, longtime figure in the Los Angeles Dodgers organization and, of course, managed the team for two decades. But uh, I found Doyle and Tommy Lasorda had a lot in common. They were both very overweight for most of their adult life. They both had a generally unhealthy lifestyle. They were both very well-known and beloved in their respected field, respective fields, even though they each had some known flaws that people still loved them. They were both conservative politically. They were both known to be outspoken and brash. They both looked old from a relatively young age. But usually you see someone who's already looking old when they're in their 30s and their 40s, you think, okay, this is someone I can't picture living a long time. But it doesn't always go that way. Sometimes you have people that look old prematurely, and then for some reason they live till 90. So uh, Tommy Lasorda was like that. If you look at pictures of Tommy Lasorda from the mid-70s when he started managing the Dodgers, he, he looked ancient already. And he wasn't even that old yet. He was, uh, like, not even 50 at that point. He's like the same age as me now when he started managing the Dodgers, and he already looked like an old man. So Tommy Lasorda looked old for a very long time, and Doyle, if you look back at pictures of him from 45 years ago, he already looks like he's fairly old. I, I like to show people pictures of Doyle who don't know poker very well and don't recognize him. And I say, see this guy here? This picture is from 1977. Do you think he's still alive today? And they go, that's impossible. I go, nope, he is. <laughs> and they go, how? And I say, because he's 88. He's, he just looked old in that picture. Because he did. He, like, 45 years ago, Doyle did not look 43. He looked much older than 43. So he's just one of these guys who's looked old for a very long time. Now, I've seen very old pictures of Doyle when he was an, actually an athlete in college. He was like a runner in college, and you, you'd never recognize him. And... uh Back then, he was actually a good-looking guy, but uh, I, I don't know. If, he got didn't he get drafted by the Lakers? Uh, draft? I'm pretty sure he did. Did he? I see. I don't know about that, but yeah, he was he was an athletic guy and actually a fairly good-looking guy. And then just something changed, and uh, he, he he looked old very prematurely. And looking at those pictures from the 70s, you'd never expect he'd be alive in the 2020s, but he is. And and there's been some health scares, and he's usually uh, getting around in one of those motorized scooters. So I don't know how well he walks at this point. And he's been overweight for most of his adult life, just like Tommy Lasorda was. But uh, the final thing that they have and had in common was that despite the odds being highly against them, both of them lived, and in Doyle's case, still living, a very long life. Tommy Lasorda lived until he was uh, 93 before passing away in January of this year. Doyle is 88 and still alive. But the reason we're talking about Doyle right now is because Doyle tweeted this today at 11.08 a.m. Actually, yesterday, December 10th, 11.08 a.m. I got a bad case of pneumonia four to five days ago, went to the hospital and have been bedridden a little bit better, but at least I can get around some. Uh Uh-oh. 
Now, you may say, what's the big deal? He's better. No, 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 no. He said a little bit better, and he can get around some. Now, it is a good sign that he's not completely bedridden at this point. But pneumonia is very, very tough on old people. That causes a lot of deaths each year of the elderly. It's a major cause of death in the elderly. In fact, a lot of COVID deaths were actually pneumonia. And there's some controversy about that because there definitely has been pneumonia that's been brought on by COVID, in which case calling it a COVID death is fair. There also have to be some cases where the person had pneumonia independent of COVID and happened to test positive for COVID, but that's not what killed them and they would have died with or without COVID. So there's no way to tell. And that's why there's some controversy about some of the COVID death numbers. And then some people say, well, look, but there's some other deaths that weren't classified as COVID deaths and should have been. And that evens it out. So I, I don't know. But uh, and it's not that important at this point. There's been so many real COVID deaths. So, you know, it doesn't really matter if the number is exactly correct. But a lot of old people die of pneumonia each year. Like it's a major, major cause of death. You get pneumonia when you're old. It's a big problem. My grandmother almost died of pneumonia in her 60s. Now, some of this was because she didn't go to the doctor about this until it was way too late. She dragged her feet in going to the doctor and almost killed her. I was a little kid at the time, but I still remember it. And my mom, who was pretty young then, was very upset. She thought she was going to lose her mom at a young age, and she had just lost her dad already. So my grandfather had died. My grandfather died when I was four. And uh, she thought not too long after that, her mom was going to go too. So you can imagine how upset my mom was at the time. And it really looked like there was a good chance my grandmother was going to die of pneumonia. And only when things got really bad did she seek medical help for it and went to the hospital. But uh, it was looking very bad for her, even though she wasn't super old. She was in her... uh, 60s at the time. Well, probably partially because she wasn't super old. She was moderately old, but not super old. And uh, partially she got lucky. She did not die. And in fact, went on to live about another 20 years. So not only did she survive it, it didn't permanently damage her. And she went on two more decades and had a pretty good lifespan. But I remember watching my mom, the way she was reacting and my mom was so frustrated because not only was uh, she thinking she may lose her other parent, and my mom was pretty young at the time, but uh, it could have been prevented. So you got pneumonia and you're older, you, you, you got to seek treatment immediately. Now, I'm not saying Doyle didn't. He probably did. And he's obviously a lot older than my grandmother was when she got it. But he's not out of the woods yet. It's it's helpful. It's hopeful that he's improving and has gone from bedridden to being able to quote get around some. But notice he's not saying that I'm mostly better or I'm a good deal better. It looks like there's been some improvement. But I, and I don't want to be morbid here and I don't want to be uh, pessimistic. But there are a number of cases of a lot of causes of death of very old people where there is a short period of time where they seem to improve. And then it just completely falls off a cliff and they pass away. So hopefully this doesn't happen to Doyle. Uh, overall, I like Doyle. I, I don't know him personally. He may not even know who I am. But uh, overall, I like him. I think he's a charming ambassador for the game. And obviously it's not going to be a really long time until we 
find out one day that Doyle's passed away. He's 88 years old and very overweight and has had a number of health scares. And really anyone who's 88 is always in danger of going any time. It's just an age where a lot of things in the body can just abruptly give out. And uh, Doyle has been able to dodge that despite what would appear to be someone who you wouldn't expect to live a long time. So it's great that he has. But uh, pneumonia is, is very bad news for someone of that age, no matter what condition they're in. So I don't know how quickly he jumped on it. We know he's been in the hospital for several days. And he was at least healthy enough to write a tweet, but that doesn't mean much. It doesn't take a lot of effort to pick up a phone and write a tweet. So we'll see. If I had to guess, I think he's going to get over this because usually when you're starting to improve, uh, it, it just tends to get better, whatever it is. I've noticed this myself, that anything I have that uh, once it turns the corner and goes from the worst point to not as bad as the worst point, usually that means it's on its way back to normal. But I'm also not 88. And I have seen a number of these type of cases where there's a brief improvement and then the person's gone a short time after that. So I, I hope Doyle makes it. But we'll have to see. I, the, the next week is very critical. If, if a week from today he is uh, feeling better, even only somewhat better, then the chances are high that he will get over this. Tommy Lasorda had a number of pretty bad health scares prior to actually passing. There were a number of times it really looked like Lasorda was done, and then he wasn't. And then he uh, got back to normal, or at least as normal as it would be for someone over 90. So we will see. Hopefully Doyle pulls through and we have uh, many more years with him. And he's someone that uh, is very beloved in the poker community. Now, there have been some stories about Doyle from back in the day and, and things that happened, but this is all from a different era. And that's what people have to understand. And, and most people do understand. That's why he has a good reputation. Old school poker, and I mean very old school. I don't mean from back when I started playing in the early 2000s. I mean old, old school poker from like the 70s and the 60s and the 50s, or around that era when, when Doyle got into the game. Poker was small. Poker was uh, really a community of a lot of hustlers and uh, a community that basically was very cutthroat and somewhat policed itself, but also there was a lot of tolerance for shenanigans. It was kind of like... Uh, you need to watch out that nobody screws you, and if they do, then you somewhat have yourself to blame. That was the mentality then. I'm not saying I agree with it, but I'm saying that's what it was then. So uh, it's it's hard to judge any poker stories from the distant past, and I'm talking about uh, 70s or beforehand, through the same lens as today. Today, the game is way, way bigger, and it has been since 03 that's when it really blew up uh, of course today there's uh, a lot of visibility on the game there's the televised poker there's the youtube channels talking about poker there's poker forums there's 
poker Twitter, of course. There's big Facebook groups about poker. There's there's so much social media where wrongdoing in poker can be discussed. The standards are different these days. It's just a much bigger thing, which uh, bad behavior is less tolerated, and it's not ingrained in the community anymore. It still happens a lot, but it's not ingrained and and, uh, and thought to be acceptable. Now, I'm not saying Doyle was this terrible, shady guy. I'm just saying there was a lot of uh, shenanigans going on in those decades, and uh, and Doyle was known to be part of them. But overall, uh, he's someone who's thought of very well in poker. And uh, yeah, sometimes he'll tweet out something that's seen as inappropriate by today's standards, kind of just what I call old man tweets. He doesn't understand what he's saying is... Uh, not acceptable to say anymore. But people, again, kind of excuse that because they know he's 88 years old and just from a completely different time and that you know, his heart isn't in a bad place. There aren't that many 88-year-olds on Twitter, at least not many 88-year-olds on Twitter that have a uh, following of people who aren't around 88 themselves. So you have to keep that in mind when you see what Doyle tweets. But really, he's very well-liked. And overall, he's very good for the game and is seen kind of like a, a father of poker in some ways. Especially because a lot of those older school guys are gone now. Like physically gone. They're dead. So he's he's a guy from the old days with a uh, charming personality. And he's like a connection back to the old days of poker when it was different than today. And some of the things from back then wouldn't fly very well today, but he's a connection to those days and is just a grandfatherly figure that is revered. And that's why, uh, in fact, like the World Series of Poker, they, they do all they can to encourage him to play. I remember one year, they actually reserved a seat for him at the World Series of Poker, at the uh, main event. And when I say uh, they reserved a seat, they actually... Uh, had a space for him at the table where they were uh, keeping open for him to buy in. They were really, really uh, hoping to get Doyle, and they got him that year. Eventually, he late regged and, and bought in. But uh, they really like to see when he plays because everyone's excited when Doyle Brunson hasn't hung it up yet. It's very hard to play tournament poker at age 88. Because you have to sit for a long period of time. You can't say, oh, I'm feeling tired or I'm hurting. I, I want to go lie down. You can't do that in a tournament. In a cash game, you can quit any time. In, in a tournament, you've got to have the energy to commit to these long days. And that seems trivial when you're young or even middle-aged. But uh, when you're old, it's tough. That, that's one of the big challenges for old people in poker. That's something who people who are not old yet, even people middle-aged, can't quite understand. Now, you can understand a little bit more when you're middle age, you don't quite have the energy to play day after day after day after day as you might have uh, when you're younger, but it's still, you, you, you can do it fairly well unless you have some kind of health problem going on. But when you're in your 80s, it's real tough to sit there for those long hours and know that you can't just leave and go take a nap. So that's why Doyle doesn't play many tournaments anymore. But he, he does. He, he, he'll occasionally uh, register for a World Series event, as he did this year. He doesn't do it every year, but he kind of surprised people and, and showed up to an event this year. He didn't play the main, and that's understandable as it goes so long. 
But he, he did register for an event this year and played. So I hope Doyle's okay. It'd be a sad day for poker when he goes. And obviously the day's not too far away given his age. But I don't know. Maybe he'll shock all of us and still be alive in 12 years when he's 100. You never know. He tweeted that they're doing a uh, documentary about him, the same people that did the Michael Jordan one. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. I'd actually like to see that. You know what else I want to see, now that you bring up documentaries? There's that HBO Max, uh, I think it's uh, it, it's a miniseries. I'm not sure if it's a miniseries or movie or what it is, but it's on HBO Max, and it's about Jerry Buss and the Lakers in the late 70s and early 80s, kind of like in the Magic Johnson era. And I didn't see that. That should be great. Yeah, I, 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 that come out? I never even heard of it. I just tweeted uh, some scenes from it that someone else tweeted from the from HBO Max, and uh, you can see some quick previews of it. And regardless of how well it's done, I'm actually uh, interested to see this. Being a Lakers fan who goes back to those days, now I was uh, a young kid at the time. But I, I was an 80s uh, Lakers fan, and I've always been kind of fascinated with the life of Jerry Buss. This was a guy who uh, was self-made. He didn't come from a rich family. He actually uh, was just a, a regular engineer and then bought real estate in Southern California and then uh, kept buying more and more as those properties were profitable. And uh, he got very rich, and then he got a, a great deal and buying the uh, the Lakers, the L.A. Kings, and the Forum, and uh, and and then uh, he also kind of wanted the the playboy lifestyle of always dating these much younger girls, like much much younger. And uh, in fact, he wanted to hang out with Hugh Hefner. I don't know if this is in the movie. He always wanted to hang out with Hugh Hefner, but Hugh Hefner just didn't really like him, even though they had some similarities. Uh, Hefner just didn't want to hang out with him, which kind of hurt. Jerry, because he wanted to be uh, part of the Hugh Hefner crowd. So he was kind of uh, imitating Hugh Hefner in a way. In fact, I saw Hugh, Jerry Buss a lot of times with like these young 20s pretty girls in poker rooms. I, I played a number of times with Jerry Buss, both in cash and tournaments, because Jerry Buss liked the high stakes limit hold'em and the limit hold'em tournaments. So that's why he ended up at my table a lot of times. And the funny thing was, he was really, really tight. You would think a guy with that much money and that old, too, you'd think the last thing he would be is tight because the money doesn't matter. No, 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 no. He was super tight. So it wasn't even like he was donating a lot of money because he always came in with a good hand. So while he wasn't positive expectation in those games, he wasn't someone who was donating a ton because he just, he'd only come in with really good hands. So he blinded out a lot of money and, and probably gave away value in the hands he did play. Uh, he, it was not like he was playing trash. It was the opposite. But anyway, I was always kind of fascinated with him even before he was in poker. But I'm even more fascinated because he, he was in poker games with me. And During the NBA championship one year, right? Yeah, yeah. He lost. He actually lost interest in the Lakers towards the end, and his whole his all interest is poker at that point. Poker and, uh, and girls who were in their uh, 20s. And I actually watched him in The Hustler one time where he handed a girl who looked about 25 a thousand dollar chip to get out of his hair and go play something because like i guess she chunked off whatever he gave her 
and she came over and said something to him quietly, and then he reached into his pocket and pulled out a $1,000 chip, $1,000 hustler chip, and handed it to her, and she walked off to go sit at some table. So I guess he wanted to go play poker and uh, wanted to go home with his girl, but he had to pacify her in the meantime. So he's given her $1,000 chips to go sit down at uh, whatever she wanted to play. And then when she chunked it off, she came over to reload, and he gave it to her. And, of course, the money didn't matter. He had so much money at that point. But uh, I, I was per- personally witness to that. And I, now I got to see the girl. I got to watch him give her a $1,000 chip to go chunk off somewhere. So that was interesting. Anyway, uh, look for it on HBO Max. And, in fact, I'm going to give you guys a tip. If you have AT&T and you're on their unlimited elite plan, you actually have access to free HBO Max as part of the Unlimited Elite plan. And you may say to me, what is Unlimited Elite? I have no idea what that is, and it sounds super expensive. Well, maybe not. If you don't have Unlimited Elite on AT&T, I recommend you call there and you ask them about it, because it may actually be cheaper than your existing plan. Because the older plans, some of them were actually more expensive than the current Unlimited Elite, which is actually a better plan. And they don't tell you about this. You've just got to call up every so often and make sure that there isn't a plan that's better than what you're on for cheaper. So that's what I did. So anyway, you can call up AT&T and uh, you can get on Unlimited Elite and get uh, HBO Max. So keep that in mind if you'd like to see that without uh, having to pay for HBO Max and want to see this Lakers documentary or whatever it is it's it's uh, it's not a documentary it's it's a reenactment like that they have actors who are playing all these different roles but i'm not sure if it's like a biopic i'm not sure exactly what it is but it's uh trying to tell the story of the lakers in those days and if you're fascinated with the uh, showtime lakers and jerry buss i I suggest you watch it i'm going to watch it i'm not sure exactly when it's coming out but it's being promoted on twitter i just retweeted it today Okay, so uh, moving on here, we're going to talk about uh, civil forfeiture again. And this is a topic that I think just about everybody in poker can agree on, even though it has uh, some political implications. But unlike most things these days, you don't find the left and the right arguing about it. You find the left and the right agreeing about civil forfeiture. And that's why it's kind of shocking to me that nothing's been done about it yet. There was uh, a little bit done about it during the Obama administration, and uh, Trump reversed it, which I didn't like. But the truth is, Obama could have done more, too. And Biden has done nothing to reverse it, even though Biden was the father of civil forfeiture in the early 80s. He was the one who uh, introduced that legislation as a senator. Biden's been around forever. He's been around since I was an infant in uh, national politics, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. But uh, he's the father of uh, modern civil forfeiture, modern meaning the last uh, 40 years approximately. And you would think that uh, now that it's grown into something that it wasn't intended to be, I don't even blame Biden for what he did back then because it wasn't intended to be what it's become. Back then, civil forfeiture was aimed at uh, big-time drug dealers to where they could uh, grab them and search their vehicle, and uh, anything they would find in there, like 
massive amounts of cash, while it's not explicitly illegal to have a lot of cash on you, that they could confiscate the cash without charging them with anything and then make the drug dealer prove that they got it legally. And of course, the drug dealer couldn't, so they wouldn't pursue it. And so even if they couldn't get these drug dealers on criminal charges, not only would they disrupt the operation, but they could use this money to fund police departments. So everybody would win except the drug dealers. So it wasn't that bad of an idea back then, but it got perverted into something that it wasn't supposed to be. And what did it get perverted into? Well, we've talked about this many times before. It got perverted into legalized theft. And I'm not saying this as an exaggeration. I'm calling it what it is. It really is legalized theft where they target people on the road or at airports who they know did nothing wrong and they take their money because they can. Really, look it up. It's a very, very terrible thing that has been happening for many years. And people blame the cops for this, but they're actually directing their hate the wrong way. Because the orders to do this actually come from above. They come from corrupt city and county governments that are low on funding and are stealing money from people because they can. And if you are wondering how could they bring themselves to do it, well, they invent a weak justification, and this is how they all can sleep at night. They invent a weak justification that anyone driving around with a lot of cash has to be up to something no good. And, yeah, we may occasionally ensnare somebody who's innocent, but the vast majority, they have to be driving around with a lot of cash because of something bad they've done. So it's just as well that we seize it, even if we can't really prove what they've done. But, of course, as we all know, as gamblers, this is not true. There's many times that we have driven around or have flown with a lot of cash where we've done nothing wrong, where we're simply going to play in legal poker games, or maybe to go play games at a casino, maybe advantage play at a casino. And there have been many horrifying stories over time told by poker players and advantage gamblers where they've been pulled over and their money's been taken from them, sometimes six figures worth of money, and they're not charged with any crime, and they're basically told... All right, well, we're taking it. You can try to get it back. Good luck. Goodbye. And there's been many terrible stories where people who aren't even gamblers or advantage players get money seized from them, including one recent story about a guy who is a uh, former U.S. Marine who uh, was carrying around a lot of cash with him and driving between, uh, I guess, where he lived and where his parents lived and he had his kids with them and they took every penny he had on him. He had like 87K. And I just saw the full video of it from the dash, not dash cam, from the uh, body cams. And it was really, really frustrating to watch. I mean, it pissed me off to watch this and it didn't affect me at all, but to watch this guy's cash get taken. And it seems that this guy was carrying around the cash. He claimed he didn't trust the banks and he did have receipts for everything he withdrew. So he clearly like withdrew all the money from the banks over time and was driving around with it. His ex-wife shed some light on the situation and said that he was probably doing it to dodge alimony payments to her. It's all right. You know, that's what it was there. And that's a dispute between the two of them. And, you know, maybe he should have paid his alimony. Maybe he got screwed with the bad judgment and was trying to dodge it. Who knows? Who cares? But the point was, 
this wasn't for the government to take, and even his ex-wife said that she didn't like this either, and that he was not dealing drugs, and that he didn't get this money illegally, and that he could easily justify where it came from, and that they were just basically stealing from him. She said, yeah, yeah I, I think he's doing this to dodge paying me alimony, but uh, th- this is bullshit. He, he didn't get this money illegally. This is from his ex-wife who hated him. So anyway, uh, this was a case of legalized stealing. They took the guy's every penny. He said he couldn't even afford to uh, feed his kids at that point. They really took everything on him. And it's right there on cam. I, I watched the whole video recently. I retweeted it out, in fact. Uh, and, and a lot of people watched it and were pissed off. And they rightfully should be. So this needs to end because they really are just targeting, t- targeting out-of-state cars that they pull over and hope to strike pay dirt. A lot of times they don't, but it's worth it because once in a while they hit on one that does. Sometimes they'll get tips. Sometimes they'll get tips, believe it or not, even from casinos, especially casinos that are mad at a patron for whatever reason, that someone's driving with a lot of cash. But they'll pull people over for non-violations. They'll make up a violation, then find an excuse of why they have to search the car. The person usually agrees, believing that... uh, They've done nothing wrong, and nothing bad will be found. Then the cash is found. Then it gets seized. And if they don't agree to the search, they start getting threatened that uh, they may get detained, and that there's suspicion of uh, of, of uh, that they're carrying drugs. And and sometimes people just allow the search to get out of the whole thing. So I don't know uh, what spawned this exact discussion. It may have actually been originally spawned by me because I was uh, the one who retweeted this. Uh, situation with a with a even though this story's been known for a while the the full body cam of what occurred there that uh, was put up by the, what's called the uh, the institute for justice ij.org and they're uh helping fight this for people who can't afford it looks like a good organization to me but uh, they put this out and i retweeted this so a lot of others retweeted my retweet and they also were uh, commenting on it. Because I quote tweeted it is what I did. And a lot of poker players did. So somehow uh, this spawned a discussion. I can't say for sure it was because of me, but it was shortly after I, I did this and then a discussion got spawned. Daniel Negranu brought, brought up uh, how he felt about this and it really uh, got a lot of people talking because, of course, when Negranu brings up something with his huge following, uh, there's a ton of people who are going to comment. And because pretty much everybody agrees that this is horrendous and that it uh, targets a lot of uh, people who are poker pros, then this was a topic of interest for a lot of people. So a lot of stories got posted by various poker pros, including names that you would know about civil forfeiture that they have dealt with. Now, you might wonder, have I ever dealt with civil forfeiture? Answer is no. I've never had a situation. There's times it could have happened, but it didn't happen. So yeah, there's been times I drove with a lot of cash, but I didn't get pulled over. There's been times I've uh, flown with a lot of cash and nothing happened, but it easily could have. And now I'm more careful about it because now I'm a lot more worried about it than I used to be. I I was kind of ignorant to it back then. I thought as long as I don't fly internationally with more than 10K, I'm fine. Well, that's that's not true. Even if you don't fly internationally, they can take your money under extremely flimsy pretenses. Negranu tweeted this. 
Once in Miami airport, I fully declared cash that I had. Police searched my bag and let me through. A DEA, a DEA agent speaks to me before getting on the plane. I sit on the plane. They pull me off, and there are 16 officers in my face, a few who even recognized me. <laughs> so this spawned a lot of people telling their own stories of, of what happened to them. Terrence Chan, we've talked about this before, said, I once had a border agent at the Peace Arch between B.C. and Washington hold me in the room, asked very few questions, went away, came back after 30 minutes and told me he'd been reading my blog. Now, that actually is not the story that I had seen Terrence post about. He once wrote a blog where he got detained for like eight hours. I actually thought that was uh, by Niagara Falls. I guess Terrence is talking about how he was recognized like Negreanu was. But uh, there was a story Terrence told, a very bad one, that uh, he got detained for carrying cash between U.S. and Canada on the U.S. side. And they held him for like eight hours while they grilled him, even though he pretty much gave them every way to verify that he was really a poker pro. Nick Alberga asked uh, Negranu, how much are we talking? And Negranu said, I think it was like 70K. And... Uh, he said, it's not illegal. I filled out the paperwork and declared every penny, but it was treated like a criminal nonetheless. And uh, you may wonder, why don't they just wire the money? Well, it can be a pain in the ass. Uh, not every casino can receive wires or is willing to receive wires on your behalf. So that leaves people with the option of either just bringing a lot of cash on the plane or driving with a lot of cash or uh, trying to get it at the bank near the venue they're going to, but sometimes the bank doesn't have that much cash, as I mentioned earlier in the show. So sometimes these players feel if they need a lot of cash to play high stakes or to buy into a lot of high tournaments, they're just going to have to bring cash on their own and hope it goes okay. David Pete Viffer, who's four, number four Viffer, V-I-F-F-E-R, on Twitter, he had some stories. He said they yanked me off a flight out of Detroit, took 7K and my Rolex, took me 90 days to get back. No receipt, no charges, no nothing. Lawyers said if I hadn't responded in 30 to 60 days, they forfeit it. Now, I guess they were hoping he wasn't going to respond for only 7K and a Rolex. And when I say only, Lawyers can be very expensive. So what happens if, if it's not a massive sum of money, a lot of people say this is going to cost me more in legal fees to maybe not even get it back than just to give up on this. So either way, I'm screwed. This is what they count on when they seize four figures or low five figures that they're just going to be able to keep it because no one's going to be able to afford lawyers that can see this through long enough to get the money back. And typically you cannot get the government to pay your legal fees for it. So uh, a lot of times people just uh, end up giving up and, and leaving the money. Now, Viffer said something here that's interesting that I think isn't a bad idea. He said, when I travel with money, I have a note attached to it, basically saying, as someone who's gone through the civil forfeiture process, please be advised that you're wasting your time as mine. And I include my lawyer's name and phone number. That's actually not a bad idea. But it's actually pretty smart. The reason it's pretty smart, you may think it's antagonistic. It's actually pretty smart because they're taking this because they think they can get away with it. 
So if he has a note in there saying, hey, don't try. I've already gone through this and won before, and here's the lawyer who's going to help me, they may say, oh, shit, you know what? This isn't going to be worth it. F it. Because they're doing this counting on that you're not going to fight it or that enough people won't to where they're willing to chance it. But if you're making it pretty clear with a note in there that you're already ready for this, they may actually give it back. Here's another one from someone who goes by shove time. I don't know who they are, but they said a friend of mine had to pay an $800 fine in a Canadian airport because of uh, too much money in currency added up to 12K and change over the 10K limit and nothing stated in a declaration form. The extra penalty was they held one of his visa cards in the customs to save his insurance. He'd make his return flight. That's a little different, though. That's that's the penalty for not declaring money when you're flying, which is kind of crappy, too, but internationally I'm talking about. So it's it's not quite as bad because uh, I'm talking about the domestic forfeitures that either happen on the road or on domestic flights at the airport or even international flights where you're below the 10K threshold and don't have to declare anything and they take it anyway. Uh, Something that was frequently targeted was the flight from the PCA in the Bahamas, which, of course, is an international flight, back to Miami. They would be there and would grab money from a lot of young poker players who would return with it. And even if they didn't have 10K, they would just take it and the naive poker players didn't know what to do. So there were a number of stories in this thread of people talking about uh, what had happened to them. Joseph Gigan wrote, Driving cross-country from New Jersey to Vegas, I was pulled over twice in one hour in Kansas. Both times they asked to search my car and if I had any drugs, weapons, or large amounts of currency. Sat in front of the cop car. Both times obviously let go. Civil asset forfeiture is a a thing, though. So this one he got away with, but uh, got away meaning they didn't take it, which is surprising because Kansas is a place this was known to happen a lot. I don't know how he got so lucky, but they were looking for it. I'm surprised he didn't take it. You have to understand that you can't just assume because you've done nothing wrong and you can prove where the money came from that they won't take it. Now, this was also mentioned by Ari Engel, who listens to this show, and he had an issue. They didn't take it from him, but he got questioned a lot in uh, Asheville. He said, for the first time in my life, this is on December 7th, I had a sweat at the Asheville airport yesterday, this is in North Carolina, where I was pulled aside for additional screening since I had over 10K cash on me. I was lucky to be able to show tax forms to prove where the money was from, but not a fun experience. Matt Savage tweeted on May 7th, reminder to players traveling to play poker to be careful carrying cash. I didn't know it, it was illegal. Also, who would pack 100K in a checked bag when traveling? It seems like such a huge sweat. It would still be there on the other side. And he linked a report of somebody, not a poker pro, but someone who was carrying 100K cash that was actually in a checked bag that got uh, confiscated. I, I agree that's a mistake. You, you never want to put money in a checked bag because checked bags can get lost. And they also get searched by uh, TSA sometimes. You don't want them stealing the money. So I, I would not do that. He's right. But uh, yeah, it's not illegal to carry cash. That's the funny thing. It is legal to carry any amount of cash. You could carry a billion dollars in cash. It would be hard. It could be a lot, a lot of cash to be carrying. I don't think you could physically do it. But if you could, it would be uh, legal to do. But it could also get seized. And they can do it with very, very, very flimsy reasons. And you can have all the documentation you think will justify it. And they can do it anyway and say, take us to court to get it back. And what are you going to do? You can't stop them. Like, they're just going to take it. You have to take them to court. 
Now, if it's a very large sum of money, then yeah, it's obviously worth it to take it to court. And many times you'll win after a while. But it's when they see something like 10K or 15K, it starts to be one of those things you may spend more on lawyers and it's not a guarantee you'll win. By the way, in that recent case of that former Marine who got the 87K taken from him, and that was off of I-80 near Reno. Watch out on I-80 near Reno. I've said this before. They love to pull people over for civil forfeiture on I-80, especially near Reno. So really watch out for I-80. But uh, he got it back, but only after his case got publicity and IJ, the Institute for Justice, helped him out and they returned the money to him. But had that case not been high profile, had it not gotten the attention of the media, then he probably would not have been able to get it back because they took his bottom dollar. But even if you can't afford lawyers, it's going to be a process you hate and you may not even win. This has hit a lot of poker players and advantage players. And even guys like Negreanu. He's, Negreanu, is, <laughs> he's being hassled. And there's officers there who know who he is. It's not like he has to prove to them he's a professional poker player. Everyone knows Negreanu, who even like lightly follows poker. They're like, hey, Negreanu, I know you, but I know we're taking your money. Like, I guess he was able to get out of it, but it took a long time. And I bet someone who was lesser known probably would have had the money seized. They may have actually not wanted the bad publicity of seizing Negreanu's money. There's been people who have won poker tournaments and could show proof that they just won a poker tournament for a lot of money, and then the money seized anyway. They say, oh, we suspect drug money. One trick they like to use is they bring a drug-sniffing dog who then sniffs drugs on the currency... And that's the justification to seize it. And the reason this works is because most currency actually has a little bit of drug residue on it because money's been passed around so much and it's so easy for this residue to stay on there, like a tiny bit that dogs can find. So that's all it takes. Remember, it, just, it doesn't have to be all the bills. It can be just one bill out of a whole group of them. So if you have a bunch of bills and one bill, the dog detects a drug scent, they can take it even if you've never carried drugs or used drugs in your life. So this is really bad, and you've got to be very careful. And this hits the poker community and the advantage gambling community pretty hard. So what can you do? Well, first of all, try not to travel with large amounts of cash unless you absolutely have to. So if you can wire it to the casino, it's a little bit of a pain in the ass, but do it. If you can... Get a bank there to have that money for you to withdraw when you get to the venue. Just do it. Don't say, I was a pain in the ass. I don't feel like doing it. Because you'll be sorry you didn't if you get it seized. If you are uh, leaving a casino, especially in one where there's an advantage play going on. I've talked about this before. Sometimes angry casinos will report that you're carrying cash. And then even several states away they will pull you over because there'll be a be out the look be on the lookout notice put out to a lot of different departments sometimes vindictively so if you are going to drive with a lot of cash when you're leaving a casino and driving a long way i would actually suggest switching rental cars because then they won't know who to look for also do not agree to a search even if it 
is more inconvenient if they make threats to arrest you. It's a lot harder for them to arrest you when they don't have any proof you've done anything than to search your vehicle and take your stuff. So don't agree to a search. Say I've done something wrong. I've done nothing wrong. I don't consent to a search of my vehicle. Why? Because I don't want to. I don't want you to do it. I've done nothing wrong. They may hold you for longer, but keep in mind when they're when they're pulling you over on I-80 or uh, one of these remote places and you've done nothing wrong and you know it and they're asking to search your vehicle, there's a reason for it. Now, if you have no cash in there, then let them search it. But uh, if you have cash, do not let them search your vehicle. Tell them no. And if they threaten to arrest you, then say that uh, you want to talk to an attorney and demand to know what you're being arrested for. So don't just consent to a search if you're carrying a lot of cash and and count on the fact that you can prove why you're carrying this cash because a lot of times they will take it. Also, just be aware of where this happens. I'll tell you one route where I haven't heard of it happening, and that is the one on I-15 between LA and Vegas. I'm not saying it can't happen, but I'm saying I haven't heard of it happening. And I think I know why. It's because usually, as I said, these orders come down from the city or county level. They, it's not corrupt cops or anything. It's actually uh, from above them. So if the route you're driving does not have any of these corrupt counties that try to get money this way, then you're not in danger of this. And I'm not saying it can't or won't happen to you. I'm just saying I haven't heard of it ever happening on I-15 between LA and Vegas. However, in other parts of Nevada, as I mentioned, like on I-80, it happens all the time. So be aware of where you are, and if you've heard of civil forfeiture occurring in some of these places, be real careful about ever driving through, especially if you have out-of-state plates. Because they like to take a shot with out-of-state cars because they assume someone driving out-of-state is much more likely to have cash on them than someone in-state. Why? Because uh, there may be a reason you're transporting cash, if you're driving a long way, if, you're, if you live in the area, you're probably not driving around with a ton of cash on you. So that's why they target out-of-state cars. So if you've got out-of-state plates and you're in an area where they love to pull people over for civil forfeiture reasons, uh, there's a good chance they will get you and, pull your ca- and take your cash. So be aware of where you are and where these have happened and not happened. You may say, well, how do I find that out? You, you can Google civil forfeiture and the state name or the county name or the interstate name. And you'll start to find stories. And I, I've just, I don't know of one that's occurred on I-15 between LA and Vegas. So that, I'm not saying guaranteed you won't get it to happen to you, but uh, I haven't heard of it. And there's a lot of people going between LA and Vegas. Now, why don't they do it with all the people who are carrying cash between LA and Vegas, which is probably a lot? Well, they don't want to do it in Clark County for obvious reasons, because the casinos would scream bloody murder if money being brought there for people to gamble with gets taken by the government. They would, this wouldn't fly in Clark County, where the casinos have a tremendous influence. But most of the drive is not in Clark County. Most of it is in San Bernardino County. And I'm not exactly sure why San Bernardino County has uh, chosen not to do this, but they haven't. They, maybe they don't feel it's right, but they don't do it. There also could be enough outrage because the L.A. to Vegas route is a very common one for people from Southern California to drive 
And if it got around that this was happening, then I think there would be too many pissed off people and too many scandals over it. I, I think that's probably why they don't do it in San Bernardino County, to my knowledge. And there's not many out-of-state cars. The other problem, most of them are cars that are losing trade of risky here. Uh, not many cars going between there that are not California cars. Usually both directions, it's California cars. So there's not many out-of-state cars to target. So what they'd end up doing is targeting people in Southern California going to or from Vegas, and I think that would create too many bad headlines. That's my guess. But I-80 near Reno, not going to be the same, especially out-of-state cars. Very different reason most people are driving there than there is from LA to Vegas. Going to move on and talk about Barry Sweet. I don't mean very sweet. I mean Barry Sweet. Barry Sweet, B-E-R-R-I space Sweet, S-W-E-E-T, is a high-stakes online poker pro who plays a lot of heads-up, no limit. And I don't know much about him, but I know he plays very actively at high-stakes on poker stars and other sites. He's not in the U.S. Not sure where he's from. But a hand came up recently that has brought out some discussion of what is one of the best calls of all time if it was intentional. And that's a big if. He was playing heads up on poker stars, 5,100 no limit, which of course is a very big game. 5,100 blinds, no limit. He was playing against someone else named Make Boy Finn, M-A-K-E-B-O-I-F-I-N, Make Boy Finn. Maybe he's from Finland. I don't know who he is. So Make Boy Finn had 30.4K on the table, and Barry Sweet had exactly 10K on the table, which is significant to me, and I will explain shortly why. So here's how the action went. Make Boy Finn, who was on the small blind, meaning he acts first, raised to 250, so 2.5 uh, big blinds he made it, pretty standard. And Barry Sweet, who had Jack 10 offsuit, called. Flop 2, Queen 9. So Barry Sweet has flopped the open ender on a rainbow board, 2, Queen 9 rainbow. Barry Sweet checks. Make Boy Finn makes a pretty small bet of 150 into a $500 pot, and Barry Sweet calls. Turn is a seven of clubs. That does put a backdoor flush draw out there, but not for Barry Sweet because he has Jack-10 offsuit. So all he's still got is the straight draw, but it will be the nuts if he hits. But at the moment, he still has Jack high. At the moment, the pot is $800 coming into the turn. Barry Sweet checks, make boy Finn, Makes a much bigger bet now, bigger than the pot, eleven ninety six. So it's a more than pot size bet. Pot is eight hundred. He's betting almost twelve hundred into it, almost one point five times the pot. Barry Sweet calls. River is a four of hearts, complete brick, and there's no flush hitting, of course, and there's no straight possible here. Board is uh, two queen nine seven four with two clubs and two hearts, but obviously no flush or straight possible here. Barry Sweet checks. 
Make Boy Finn now just hammers it. 28.8K all in. Well, it's not really 28.8K because Barry Sweet doesn't have that much in his stack. Barry Sweet has 8.4K in his stack. So the pot coming into the river is $3,192. And Make Boy Finn puts in effectively another 8404 that Barry Sweet would have to call. Now remember, Barry Sweet has Jack High. So you expect Barry Sweet's going to fold there. And he can't even raise him because it's an all-in, so he's got to either call or fold. Well, I mean, what's he going to beat there? So even if he thinks that Make Boy Finn isn't that strong, I mean, you can't call that, can you? Well, yes, he called it, and he won. Hey, 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 so mad at me. He called with Jack Hot. He is so mad, he yeah, called with Jack Hot. got him on chill, baby. You got him where you want it. You got the, ta- you got the table tilted. He's so mad he comes with Jack. Like, can you believe that? I ain't never called a guy with Jack High my whole life. I've been crazy for 30 years. I ain't never called a guy with Jack High. So the pot, 20K. Remember, Barry Sweet was all in for his starting 10K. He won 10K on that hand with Jack High. <laughs> now, how did he know to do that? What did Make Boy Finn have? He had 6-8 offsuit. Make Boy Finn picked up that open ender on the turn, and he bricked the river just as Barry Sweet did. So did Barry Sweet really sniff out that Make Boy Finn was bluffing with complete air to where Jack High is going to win? And remember, the danger with making this Jack High call is that if Barry Sweet just totally missed but could beat Jack High, he still beats him. Like, let's say Barry, let's say Makeboy Finn has King Jack and he's betting the whole way like this, or King 10. Well, he's going to get called and still win. He'll be shocked. He'll be shocked that his all in gets called and his King High is good, but it, it would be. And same with Ace High. So he has to be sure that Barry Sweet has worse than Jack-10 high, which means he can't have an ace, a king, or a queen, because of course it's the queen on the board anyway, in his hand. And a queen isn't that unlikely because there's a queen on the board and he's betting strong. And that he doesn't have a pair of any kind. It's a lot of hands that beat him and he's calling this big all-in. It's not like he's pot-committed. There's 3K in the pot, and he's calling 8404 to look up the opponent while he has Jack High. So some people were discussing this is one of the best reasoned calls of all time because he just figured out that the way Make Boy Finn is betting, that he probably missed something and is trying to get Barry Sweet to fold. And this is one of these things in high stakes heads up that you have players who are trying to not just play their hand, but play their hand based upon the way their opponent thinks that they are playing their hand. So you're not only thinking about what you have and what your opponent has, you're thinking about what your opponent thinks you have and what your opponent thinks you're going to do based upon what you have. So some people believe that Barry Sweet 
reasoned out that this betting pattern didn't make sense unless Makeboy Finn was weak. And he smelled bluff there. And he's figuring that if Makeboy Finn has any kind of showdown value, he's not going to make a bet like that. Because he has to he's acting second. So Makeboy Finn doesn't even have the concern that if he checks the river that his opponent's gonna sense weakness and force him out. So if Makeboy Finn has a hand that has some kind of showdown value, Barry Sweet probably thought, okay, well, then he's probably going to check behind. And if he wants me to call, not with Jack High, obviously, but if he's trying to get a call with a weaker hand, if he's got something very strong, let's say he's flopped a set, say he has a set of deuces, he's going to want to get a call on the river, and he's not going to bet something that's going to put Barry Sweet all in and make Barry Sweet fold a lot of weaker hands. But then Barry Sweet's thinking here, you know what? He could still be betting this big thinking that he wouldn't be betting this big if he had a big hand. So there could be like the fourth level thinking going on where he's doing it because Barry Sweet wouldn't expect him to do it. But Barry Sweet just seemed to decide, hey, you know what? I, I just don't believe he'd be keep betting this big if he wanted me to call. I think he doesn't want me to call and I think his hand no, has no showdown value, and therefore there's a good chance he can't beat Jack High. Which is pretty amazing, because there's five different cards in the board. Any of them would make a pair. And Ace High, and a, and King High will beat him. Now, he has the best Jack High. So, if Makeboy Finn has Jack 8, then, yes, Barry Sweet actually wins. But that's a lot to fade, as far as what your opponent would have. And this is for 10k. Some people were very impressed at the reasoning that Barry Sweet appeared to use here. But there's also another possible explanation. Let's go back to the stack sizes. And I was the first one to bring this up. There's a lot of discussion about this on the internet, but I was the first one to bring up this issue. Makeboy Finn had 30.4k on the table. Barry Sweet had 10k on the table. Now, we don't know how long they've been playing, we just see this one hand history. So maybe Barry Sweet just sat down. That's why he had the even 10K. But it's also possible, especially because of what Makeboy Finn had, and you can't buy in for 30K. So Makeboy Finn obviously ran up his stack from 10K, which was the uh, max buy-in there, to 30.4K. Now, it's possible he wasn't up. Maybe he had to reload a few times. But at one point, Makeboy Finn only had 10K at the most on the table because it's all you can buy in. And he ran it up to 30.4K. And Barry Sweet has the max buy-in, but nothing more. Not a penny more, 10K. So to me, this kind of looks like that Barry Sweet may have shot off two buy-ins, and maybe even a little bit more than that, to make Boy Finn. And was on tilt. Now, maybe this is his first hand, but I think that's less likely because on your first hand, it's hard to bring yourself to do this. It's hard to take this kind of chance and make that kind of call when it's the first hand. When it's the first hand of the day, you tend to be more willing to let it go. It's just human psychology. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I, I don't think it was his first hand. So if they've been playing a while and Barry Sweet has already chunked off two buy-ins to make Boy Finn, he may have been on tilt and kind of made a tilt call or maybe even a misclick. 
So sometimes you can't attribute a great play online to something that uh, is an amazing soul read when it could just be either tilt or misclick, or maybe both. Barry Sweet did make a comment about this on 2 Plus 2. He said, I had a vision about Stu Unger's famous Jack High call this morning in the shower. True story. Not saying this way I called. It was probably because of GTO and blockers and range splitting and whatever the fuck the kids are into these days. But in all honesty, though, I really had the vision pretty wild. Okay, so, you know, maybe he did have that vision and that helped him a little bit. Maybe he was just kind of sitting in the shower and go, wouldn't it be cool if I could make a massive Jack High call like Stu Unger did? successfully one time and then it came up and he did it but uh, he's kind of implying here that he really did it because he thought he was good but he also kind of had this vision that he'd be doing it and it's pretty wild that it really came up so what do I think do I think this is a tilt misclick or a tilt call because he was down two buy-ins already which he didn't admit he was and I don't see evidence he was but I also kind of think that's what was going on. Or was this just an amazing soul read? Or maybe it was both. It, could, it really could be that he thought he was good, but that uh, he was willing to take the chance because he was really kind of tilted. I do think it was a combination of both. If I had to guess, I wouldn't think this is an actual misclick. And I also think that him possibly being down over 20K could be the reason for this. So I think it was a combo of both. I think he was in the mindset to try something like this. And and keep in mind, by the way, uh, I don't know who found this, but if he had called and lost, this may have never been seen. Who knows how many of these type of calls have been made where the person loses and we never find out. Obviously, someone was probably watching this showdown because people like to watch Barry Sweet play. And someone probably watched him showdown Jack 10 against 6-8 and the Jack High wins and the Jack High call and whoever was watching couldn't believe it but if uh, make boy Finn had him beat no matter what he had and Barry Sweet called and lost especially if make boy Finn had something like just uh, a pair or something that wasn't wonderful but uh, Barry Sweet looked him up and called and mucked then uh, it could not be seen by anyone but make boy Finn what Barry Sweet had anyone observing couldn't pull up the hand history and see this so they, they could only see this if uh, it was actually shown down at the table, which it had to be because Make Boy Finn did the aggression, so he had to show his eight high, and then Barry Sweet, of course, showed it down to take down the pot. So it's possible that these have happened, I'm sure a lot of these have happened in the past, where we never see it, and the person just feels like a fool. So let's say Make Boy Finn had a set, and he knew Barry Sweet was going to be suspect of the big bets, and that's why he did it, and just keeps firing, 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 and then, and then Barry Sweet calls a jack high. He looks like a freaking fish. Like th- Think about it. Think if Make Boy Finn had pocket twos, and uh, he gets called all the way down, especially that final bet for over 8K by jack high and loses. He'd say, what the hell? Barry Sweet's giving away. Or let's say even uh, that Make Boy Finn had just a pair of twos, not a set of twos. Or some other, let's say, pocket threes. Just pocket threes unassisted and, and makes this huge bet and gets a tremendous value. And people say, wow, Mateboy Finn, he knew to make this bet sizing because he knew Barry Sweet just 
couldn't help calling him down. You, you'd be giving all the accolades to make boy Finn here and not to Barry Sweet. You'd say Barry Sweet looks like an idiot. So it's amazing what results can do and how that can change your impression of the hand. It's funny because I'm thinking about a hand I had in the main event on day two where uh, – actually, it was on day one. It wasn't day two. On day one where I made a big bet at the end with top set full – where I suspected that the other guy may have had trips and I put him all in for a pretty big bet at the end trying to make it look like I was trying to push a fold on him. I was trying to make him... Uh, and it turned out he didn't have trips. I could tell by the what he folded. There. Like He folded too quickly. He didn't snap fold, but he folded too quickly. To, it'd be very hard to lay down trip sixes in that hand where I had uh, I had eights full. But uh, he had something he had to think about. But what I, was, I was trying to represent something like Make Boy Finn was doing there. I was trying to represent that I was trying to run him off a draw because there was a, a big draw on the flop. And I, it, it wouldn't have gotten there. So I was really trying to make it look like that I had a missed draw. And the guy threw his hand. He wasn't ready to bust from the main on day one. But that's, I was trying to look like that. I was trying to look like I was trying to run him off the hand when in reality he had a monster. So that happens too. It also didn't help that the guy I was up against wasn't a pro or anything. It was just, uh, it was like an okay-ish amateur. But the okay-ish amateur is more likely to fold. He doesn't think on that level of the, I, I'd much rather a higher stakes player is in that spot who is used to people trying to run them off hands. And I was hoping you'd think, hey, you know, if they, why, why would you bet this big for value? Okay, I got to call this. It's got to be a misdraw. And then he calls, ah, it's a top set full. Okay, I'm out. Like, that's what I was fantasizing happening, but it didn't happen. Anyway, interesting hand. I don't usually talk about poker hands on here, but I, I thought that was an interesting one. Okay, so let's get to some uh, news about Vegas and Atlantic City. So first, let's talk about Atlantic City. There is a claim by a politician that if Atlantic City doesn't start stop charging property tax for casinos there that four casinos in Atlantic City will close. So here's what was said, and you have to take this with a grain of salt, and I'll explain why. New Jersey Senate President Steve Sweeney, who's a Democrat, claimed at a Senate Budget Committee hearing, and this is for New Jersey State, this is not the U.S. Senate, that four properties, four uh, casinos would close in Atlantic City if they didn't stop the uh, property tax that they are charging to casinos. Now, he was not asking for an end on the tax for gambling revenue, which provides a lot more money than the property tax. He was basically saying these casinos are paying too much tax, they're getting strangled by it, and the lesser successful casinos can't handle it anymore are about to go under. So this is going to make the difference between these four casinos staying or going, and this is going to ultimately cost Atlantic City money and New Jersey money if these casinos go under. So you don't want to see these casinos close, and then you won't get the revenue from them anymore that they are generating in uh, gross gaming revenue. So you don't want to see them close. Don't tax them to death. 
basically, uh, don't be the virus that kills your host. That's the, the message he was trying to put there. That's not what he said, but that's what he meant. Now, he didn't prove this. And the casinos themselves were not saying it. But this is what this politician, Steve Sweeney, was saying at a Senate Budget Committee hearing in New Jersey. There was a bill which uh, made it out of committee and is going to be at the uh, Senate floor in late December. And uh, it would allow properties to make payments directly to the city, county, and local school system instead of paying property taxes. Now, property taxes in most states do fund the school system, but they don't fund only the school system. So this is basically saying that they can pay less and they could just make direct payments to city, county, and the school system in Atlantic City and pay less money, but the uh, local area would still basically get the same thing. It's basically telling the state... Leave Atlantic City alone. Stop squeezing Atlantic City properties for property tax that's going to go elsewhere in the state. Just let these casinos pay it to local needs, city, county, and the school system. Sweeney said there are four casinos in jeopardy of closing. We do not want that to happen. I don't want to have a situation where it's, I told you that place is going to close, and it closed. Now, Why might this not be true? Well, think about who's saying it. A politician. Politicians tend to be funded by special interests. When it's time to get elected or reelected, they need donations for their campaign. And in areas with casinos, they tend to get a lot of donations from these casinos. And it is expected that these politicians will then work in the interests of these casinos. And it's seen as a worthwhile investment. So the casinos are not donating to them just because they like them. They're donating to them because they're basically buying favors. And that's why in all levels of politics, there has been a push by certain groups and people to get money out of politics to make it a lot harder for special interests to donate. And I actually agree. It's not fair that well-heeled organizations can buy favors and have laws crafted that benefit them. And a lot of times the benefit they get harms the general public. So basically these benefits are at the expense of the general public. It's just not fair. But without getting to that whole discussion, and this goes on with both parties, so it's not even a left-right thing. This goes on with Republicans and Democrats. So even though this guy is a Democrat, uh, this could just as easily be happening with a Republican, and just in this case, it's not. So clearly, this guy is someone the casinos favor. I haven't even looked into it, but I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious to me this is someone the casinos favor and probably have donated to before, and he's going to bat for them. So notice the casinos themselves are not saying this. He is going to the uh, state Senate and uh, he is the New Jersey Senate president and he's saying, look, you know, four casinos are going to go under. I'm warning you. And you know, if it happens, I don't want to be the guy saying, hey, I warned you and it happened. So let's stop it from happening. It is not known which four casinos he was referring to. He did not name them. Possibly because 
there really aren't four casinos in danger of going under, nor does he want this investigated. And he doesn't want to determine that he was lying. So this way, he's just talking about four casinos without saying which ones are in jeopardy of closing. And this makes it harder to see if it's the truth or not. Now, there's been some effort to deduce this. The casino that makes the most is the Borgata. And uh, in October of 2021, they had uh, $61.7 million in revenue. The bottom two were uh, Resorts and Golden Nugget, and they ma- both made around uh, $14 million in revenue. And then uh, the third and fourth worst were uh, Tropicana and Caesars, and they both had around $21 million. So it could be that those are the four that are supposedly in jeopardy, but it also could be others. Uh, There could be Harrah's. Who knows? The whole thing could also be made up. It could just be the whole industry there wants the property taxes gone, and they want to pay a much lower amount just directly to uh, local government, basically. And uh, there's also some concern that online gambling is bringing on taxes that uh, are too burdensome. So the problem that casino executives are bringing up is that uh, with a growing online gaming market there in New Jersey, because remember, New Jersey, there is casino gaming and there's sports betting. There's not just poker. Like in Nevada, there's sports betting and poker, but there's no casino gambling can do online. But New Jersey has all three. They have poker, which doesn't bring in that much, Then they have uh, casino gaming and sports betting, which uh, both bring in a lot. So this has been increasing. It really got a boost in uh, 2020, of course, when people couldn't go to brick and mortar and had a gambling Jones. They were doing a lot of it online in New Jersey, and that's carried over to 2021, even though people can go out now. So casino executives are unhappy that they have to pay parts of their profits to partners they have such as the providers of the actual platform to do the online gaming. It's not the same as a brick-and-mortar setup where they have everything and they own everything. Uh, Here they have to share profits with whatever partnerships they made in order to uh, present these online offerings. But they still have to pay the full taxable amount of whatever the revenue is, even if they're not keeping all of it. Lawmakers actually removed the uh, online gambling and sports betting revenue from the calculations of how much they would have to pay these uh, local government entities. So this is in that bill. So not only would they be paying less to the state because it wouldn't really be going to the state. It'd be going to the city, the county, and the schools. But also anything they made online would be exempt from that. So this would actually cut the tax revenue in half. They would actually be overall paying only about half the taxes they were before uh, compared to the property taxes they're paying now. And this is being pushed under the guise of if we don't pass this bill, four casinos are going to close. Do I think four casinos are really going to close? Maybe eventually, but I don't think they're going to fall apart if they don't pass this. 
However, it should be noted that Atlantic City is a dying market. Atlantic City used to be the only game in town for the entire East Coast. If you wanted to gamble on the East Coast, your choices were to fly all the way to Vegas, which is a pain in the ass, or you could go to Atlantic City. Now there are casinos all over the place on the East Coast. There's so many different options, and for many people, it's a lot closer to go to these other options than to go to Atlantic City. And Atlantic City isn't Vegas. A lot of the allure Vegas has, Atlantic City isn't the same thing. It's kind of a poor man's Vegas. It always has been. Also, the city itself has a lot of problems, and it's a bad neighborhood and a lot of crime. So there's a lot about Atlantic City people don't like. So if they can stay close to home and go to casinos, which are essentially as good as the one in Atlantic City, or at least close to as good, uh, they don't feel like they're missing much by not going to Atlantic City. So Atlantic City is really not the same as it used to be. And it's understandable that there may still be too many casinos there for how many people come to Atlantic City to play. So it might be true that the state has to relinquish something tax-wise to keep all these casinos afloat. So it's hard for me to say. I have a feeling this politician is exaggerating and that he's doing this on behalf of the casinos because he's probably in their pocket, but he may kind of have a point. He may have a point that this is being overtaxed and that uh, this is a good compromise. Basically, uh, the local area doesn't get screwed. The local area still gets the revenue they'd be expecting anyway from the state, but this way it's direct payments and then the rest of the state doesn't get anything. So Atlantic City basically supports the greater Atlantic City area. So I thought that's interesting. I don't care as much about Atlantic City as I do about Vegas and other West Coast things because I'm not there and I don't go there very often. So the the farther something is from me geographically, the less I tend to care about it. But I do cover Atlantic City news every so often because it's, it's sometimes interesting and also we have a number of East Coast listeners. All right, final uh, topic before we get to the COVID topic, which is actually a pretty big COVID topic. I bet you can guess what it is. A Major League Baseball franchise is making a bid on buying a casino in Las Vegas just so it could tear it down. You can probably guess which Major League Baseball team is doing this because I've talked about it before, but you may not be able to guess which casino it is. The team is the A's. Right now, the Oakland A's, but maybe soon to be the Las Vegas A's. The Oakland A's have been putting a lot of pressure on the city of Oakland to allow them to build a new stadium in a much more desirable location and also do general improvements in the area at taxpayer expense to make it easier for people to get to the stadium. So it's not just a matter of uh, them building this new waterfront stadium. They also want uh, better roads coming into the area so people can get in and out of the stadium without uh, terrible traffic jams. And they want uh, taxpayers to cover this. The Oakland A's have a ballpark that people don't like. And they also just have a fan base that isn't very interested, even though the Oakland A's have been a decent team in recent years. 
In 2021, the Oakland A's averaged fewer than 9,000 fans at every home game. They had 81 home games. They, they had fewer than 9,000 fans average, which is terrible. And uh, that was 29th out of 30 Major League Baseball franchises. That's pretty awful. And the Oakland Coliseum could hold 63,000 people. <laughs> Instead, they get uh, 8,700. That is not good. And as I said, it's not even like the Oakland A's are a terrible team. They're not, and they haven't been for a long time. So I can understand fans just not wanting to show up to see a last-place team, but that's not what happened. The Oakland A's finished with an 86-76 and record, but remember, there's two wild-card teams where five teams in each league make it to the playoffs presently. And then there's that uh, wild-card game to knock out two of them. The Oakland A's were in the wild card hunt. They didn't end up making it and faded towards the end. But uh, the second wild card, they were in the hunt before finally fading. But still, they had a decent record. They they were 10 games over 500. And they've been a decent team for quite some time. In fact, they've made the playoffs a lot of years. So it's not like Pittsburgh, which is awful and doesn't get good attendance. This is uh, a team that should be getting a lot more people showing up, and uh, they're not. And it's it's somewhat attributed to the stadium and its location, but it also has to do with uh, the Oakland area itself. It just seems like there isn't that much interest in the A's, and they're really contemplating a move. And they're inspired by the success of the professional sports franchises in Vegas, of the Golden Knights in the NHL, which is the first team to come there, and now the Las Vegas Raiders. In case you're wondering, the team that had the highest attendance is the team that usually has the highest attendance, the L.A. Dodgers. They averaged 34,625 fans in 2021, and they had a total of uh, 2.8 million in attendance. Oakland only drew a quarter of that, 701,000 total attendance for an average of 87.67. They did play one fewer home game, which happened because of a rain out that there was no point to uh, make up in that uh, stadium. They did it elsewhere, but uh, whatever. It, uh, or maybe it was an international game, maybe it's something like that, but it was something where they only played 80 games instead of 81, but whatever. The average was still uh, about a quarter of what the Dodgers were drawing. And about half of what Minnesota was drawing, and they were the 19th out of 30th, 30 teams in attendance, so Minnesota wasn't exactly killing it, but they still drew double the A's. Only three franchises drew fewer than 10,000 people on average. The Tampa Bay Rays, which is surprising because they won 100 games, but they just aren't getting the interest out there. The Oakland A's and the Miami Marlins. But the Miami Marlins have been a bad team for a long time, so that's more understandable. Anyway, the A's are really up in the air about where they want to go. A lot of times it's a bluff. A lot of time when the when a team wants a new stadium that's publicly funded or partially publicly funded or they want improvements in the area the city has to pay for, they have to put some pressure on the city government 
that they may go elsewhere. And sometimes they have to go through the motions. Sometimes they can't just say we may move. They have to demonstrate that they are considering moving. So it's not enough to just say, oh, yeah, you better approve this or you better fund this or uh, we're out of here. The city may say, nah, you're not leaving. You're not going anywhere. F you. But if the word starts getting around that they're looking for new places to go, then the city can start getting nervous and, and they can capitulate to the demands, or at least partially. So that it's been unclear if Oakland is just doing this to posture or if they're really thinking of moving to Vegas, but uh, it's starting to become more and more obvious to me that Oakland, while they haven't completely ruled out staying in Oakland, if the city agrees to what they're asking, that they really are considering just moving to Vegas. They may just want to go because they may think what I'm thinking, that even if they get this new stadium and even if the city gives them what they want, they're just not going to draw a lot of people. There may just not be the interest in the Oakland A's that they want to have. It doesn't help that the San Francisco Giants are pretty close by, so they lose a lot of the outlying areas, people who were Giants fans and go to Giants games and just have no interest in the A's. If there was no San Francisco Giants, then Oakland would probably do a lot better. If you look at the NBA, they only have one team in the area. That's the Golden State Warriors, and they do quite well. But there's no cross-the-bay competition. If you're in the Bay Area and you want to be an NBA fan, you want to root for a local team, it's going to be the Golden State Warriors or nobody. But not in baseball. You've got Oakland and San Francisco. The Giants draw pretty well. They, not as good as the Dodgers by any means, but they are 12th out of 30. And they had uh, 20,734, about two and a half times what the A's were drawing. See the, see the problem here. So uh, let's get back to the bid. So to either really drive the point home and scare Oakland or because they really want to move or both, the A's have made an offer on the Tropicana Las Vegas. And the offer is simply to buy the Tropicana and the property it's on and blow it up and slap a Major League Baseball park in its place. Tropicana is on a 35-acre plot on Las Vegas Boulevard and, yes, Tropicana Avenue. This was purchased by the Bally Corporation for uh, $308 million last year, or actually earlier this year, sorry, in, in April 2021. The Bally Corporation and the A's would not comment to any media outlet about this rumor, but uh, a local NBC affiliate in Oakland reported that this offer was made. So you're not seeing any confirmation or denial. Now, does this mean that if the offer is accepted, that it's a done deal and the A's are coming to Vegas? No, because uh, this isn't binding. It's not final. So it's an offer and then the offer can be accepted and then they actually have to uh, finalize it. 
And if the A's are just doing this to posture or they change their mind, they can just back out of it. So it, it's not something that's as significant as it might appear, but it is significant because they have still not come to an agreement with the city of Oakland. And they've said that they're going to make their final decision by the end of 2021. And that's only a few weeks away now. So provided they really keep to their commitment to decide on this by December 31st, which they don't have to, but they've they've made this public commitment that they're going to say what they're doing by the 31st, then it would make sense that they're already putting things in place, or trying to at least, for a move to Las Vegas. Now, uh, you may wonder, how could they build a new stadium in the few months between now and the beginning of baseball season in early April? Well, they can't. This would not be for 2022. It would uh, be for 2023. But uh, Governor Steve Sisolak said that he was unaware of any bid on the Tropicana. However, he said that uh, he was in talks with the A's about them coming to Las Vegas in late October or uh, early November. So not too long ago, about a month ago, month and a half ago, Steve Sisolak did have talks with the A's about them coming to Vegas. Steve Sisolak, of course, being the governor of Nevada. He said, I had talked to the folks from Oakland a couple weeks back. That wasn't one of the sites they mentioned to me. It's unclear if the Bally Corporation is interested in even selling the Tropicana. They just bought it. But maybe if the uh, price is right, they will. But after having paid uh, $308 million for it, I, mean, it's, <laughs> I don't know how much they would demand for the A's to buy it and blow it up. I mean, I don't, they, they don't care what the A's do with it after they get it, but I don't think they're going to let go of it for a song unless they have analyzed it and realized that the Tropicana is going to be a loser and maybe they they will let it go at a loss. But maybe the A's are willing to pay something essentially equivalent. Like, let's say Bally's realized, and I'm talking about uh, the Bally Corporation, I'm not talking about Bally's uh, in Vegas, which is a Caesars property. We've talked about this recently. It's It's a totally different thing. But Maybe the Bally Corporation is unhappy with their purchase at this point of the Tropicana. It's kind of a has-been, let's face it. And maybe if the A's are willing to let them out of it and buy it for what they paid, or close to it, then they're willing to let it go. The A's would like that location. There's some positives about that location. Number one, it's pretty easy to get to from the 15. There is a Tropicana exit, and it's right there on the Las Vegas Strip. So people can walk to it. If they stay elsewhere on the Strip, they can uh, walk to it pretty easily. And people driving in from anywhere, whether it's near or far, can get right off of that Tropicana exit, go right down the street, and they're there. So there's not much surface street driving to 
get into a stadium at that location. So not only is it uh, centrally located within uh, Las Vegas and very easy for tourists to access who are staying on the Strip, but also it's very freeway convenient. So that would be a good spot. And the A's are hoping that uh, even though the Las Vegas metro area doesn't have a lot of people, and that's a big problem when you're trying to fill the stadium for 81 games, and it's also a problem for the uh, TV market. But they're hoping that a combination of very passionate fans, as they've seen in the other two sports, and a lot of people who come to Vegas from out of the area, Vegas gets a lot of travel from tourists than a lot of other cities, a lot more than other cities do. Like, for example, uh, I don't think Pittsburgh is going to have a lot of people from out of the area coming into that city to watch their team play. But in Vegas, a lot of people could schedule trips to Vegas uh, around when their favorite team is there. So they're hoping they'll get enough interested tourists seeing their team on the road in Vegas to boost attendance. They also may figure they really only have up to go from where they are, that they don't need to compete with the Dodgers for attendance. They just need to do a lot better than Oakland is, and uh, that's not very hard. Oakland is near the very bottom, so they may say, hey, look, let's say we can pull off uh, 16000 per game. That's not wonderful, but it's, it's almost double of what we're currently getting, so we'll take it. Maybe below average, but it's still better. Also in Vegas, they would not be competing with another more popular major league team right across the bay. Vegas is uh, far enough geographically from all other teams to where uh, anyone local who wants to see major league baseball would be going there. You wouldn't have people in Vegas driving the 300 miles to go to L.A. or Phoenix or to Anaheim. So... uh, Now, Vegas doesn't have a lot of people who uh, are Vegas natives that don't already have loyalties to other teams. There's a lot of people in Vegas that came from elsewhere that already like other teams. So if you move to Vegas from L.A., there's a good chance you're already a Dodgers fan. And just because they have a team in Vegas now, uh, you're not necessarily going to stop being a Dodgers fan. There's a good chance you'll only go to the games when the Dodgers are playing there. Like that, That would be my attitude. So that is different than the other two sports coming in there. Um, The Raiders came in when uh, there really hadn't been an NFL team in L.A. for a very long time. Now, I know there were teams in L.A. a little bit before the Raiders came in, but not much before. It's pretty close to the same time when this all happened. So... There are a lot of people who from L.A. who just uh, really weren't big fans of any NFL team. And if they were living in Vegas, they would very easily adopt the Raiders as their own. And uh, as far as the Golden Knights are concerned, there just weren't all that many NHL fans to begin with in Vegas. So uh, that was the first major sport arriving there. And people were just so excited about having any kind of team they could root for. So people immediately got... uh, very, very excited about the Golden Knights, and they've done very well. It also helped that they were a surprisingly good team right off the bat. So these two teams have been successful in Vegas, but 
as I've said before on the show, it's a very big difference for baseball because they have 81 home games. And there's very few home games for NFL football, I think eight. And for hockey, yeah, there's like 40 or 41, but they don't need to fill as many seats to be considered viable. There's there's smaller arenas. There's not as much money needed to run an NHL team as there is a Major League Baseball team. So the bar for success is much lower. Also, a big problem is the TV market. It's a very small TV market. They're just not going to get much money for the TV market there. And that's something that's been very big for baseball, the TV money. But really, the A's may just be saying, F it. We're, we're in such a, a bad situation anyway. It can't get much worse. It's kind of like, let's say you're with a girl who is just very unappealing in every way. And you think about yourself and you go, you know what? I don't have a lot to offer and I probably can't get a very good girlfriend, but I got to be able to do better than this. And you dump her and you say, look, I I may not get the girl I wish I could get, but I'm going to do better. I'm going to do somewhat better at least. So that that could be the way the A's are approaching this. They, they could be with the, uh, the the very unappealing girl, the, the city of Oakland, and say, look, a- anything is a step up. So maybe Vegas is that to them. They're definitely not going to draw like the top drawing teams. There's no chance that's going to happen. The market's just not big enough. But yeah, in, in the context of is this an improvement, I can understand it. So they may actually do it. This is not, I wouldn't even spend the time talking about this if I didn't think it had a decent chance of happening. So really, this is something I could see. And we're going to find out pretty soon, I think. In case you're wondering, the. Other top-drawing teams in 2021, Atlanta, which doesn't always draw well, but they did this year because they were good. Of course, they won the World Series, but they weren't as good as that appeared because they squeaked into the uh, playoffs because of a... uh, They didn't squeak in, but they, they got into the playoffs because their division was weak. And they were hot at the right time. San Diego which also didn't always draw that great, but they spent a lot of money upgrading the team. They didn't do well, but they, they spent a lot of money. People were excited, so they got they averaged 27000 And uh, St. Louis, they've always drawn pretty well. 26K fans. Texas, 26K. Houston, 25K. They've been good for a while. Colorado, surprisingly, 24K, almost 25. I was at a road game in July when the Dodgers played there, and I'm telling you, most of those fans were Dodgers fans. So I don't know how they're getting 25K. But they were in the Yankees, surprisingly, in eighth. And they drew 25K. The Cubs right behind them. Some of this varies from year to year, but the Dodgers are usually at the top. The Dodgers just have always drawn well, or at least for the last several decades. All right, let's go to the COVID topic, and then we're going to be done. I don't know what happened to Trey Ruski. We just like he he just vanished from internet problems, and then and not mine on his end, and then he just never came back. He tried to come back once, and then we just never got him back. So whatever. Maybe he can join us during the final topic here. We don't always talk about COVID anymore on this show. I, I've had a lot of praise from people about the COVID segment. Some people say they get most of their COVID news from me, which is a little bit scary. 
it's, it's a pressure on me that I'm uh, informing people about COVID and what they learn about the viruses from Dan Druff. I hope they don't tell people that. They'll be looked at like they're crazy. But some people have told me that's where they get their COVID news or that's the COVID news they trust. So I, I guess I appreciate that. So thank you. I also have had some people quit listening to the show and some who stopped reading the forum because of the COVID segments, not because they think they're boring or they don't think they belong, but because they don't like my takes on COVID. In fact, I had one person tell me that my takes on COVID are horrible and that uh, I've sold out to the left. (laughs) Can you imagine? Can you imagine I'm being accused of having sold out to the left? But that's where we are. I will say that I don't always uh, parrot the right-wing views of COVID, but I definitely don't parrot the left-wing views of COVID either. I manage to piss off both sides because there's elements from both from which I strongly disagree. And I think it has become politicized and was pretty much the whole way and shouldn't have been. And this has caused a lot of problems for this country. And it's actually affected the entire world because a lot of the world has taken cues from what the U.S. is doing. And there's a lot of stupid things happening regarding COVID that shouldn't be happening, especially at this point when we know a lot more about it. So the latest panic, I'm sure you know, there's pretty much no chance that you don't know by now, the Omicron variant. The Omicron variant has caused great alarm around the world because it is the first really contagious variant that has been found of COVID since Delta. People of Earth, I am Lure of the planet Omicron Persei 8. Omicron Persei 8. (laughs) Yes, that Omicron, but not Omicron Persei 8 from Futurama. I always like that character. I like those characters from Omicron Persei 8. I always liked when they were on the show. But anyway... The Omicron variant is feared to, number one, replace Delta, and number two, bust through vaccines and get people sick and or kill them. So this has been feared for a long time. What about the killer variant that may form that can bust right through the vaccines and make it as if you were never vaccinated in the first place? And what if it's even more deadly? What if you have a more deadly version of COVID? Because Delta is not more deadly. Delta is pretty much equivalent to the first uh, version of COVID, but it's a lot more contagious. But what if we get a more deadly version, which also can bust through the vaccine? And neither is impossible. So there's been fear about this. So every time we hear about a new variant, there's panic, especially when there's stories about the variant possibly being able to bust through the vaccine. Remember the Lambda variant? Remember we heard about that, that they can bust through vaccines? Why are we not worried about the Lambda variant anymore? What happened to the Lambda variant? Well, the Lambda variant is dead. I I don't believe it's even out there anymore. If it is, it's a tiny percentage of cases. It never got going. What was the problem? The Lambda variant was not contagious enough. So the Delta variant dominated it. It could not compete with Delta. So it could not spread because Delta was already everywhere. And being more contagious, it was 
spreading enough to where if people were getting COVID, it tended to be Delta. Delta was already here. Delta was everywhere. And Delta was more contagious. So Lambda couldn't touch it. Lambda was dominated by Delta and it died and never got going. And that has been the case with pretty much every variant. The only variant that really took hold has been Delta. We had variants before Delta that couldn't get going. We had some very scary sounding ones that were in the news briefly and made everyone panic. And then uh, they just disappeared. We didn't hear about them. And we didn't hear about them in a way like, oh, well, this is dead. It's not going to happen. We just would stop hearing about it. Like, did you ever hear, don't worry about Lambda anymore? No, it, it, you just stopped hearing about Lambda. And that's how it's been with all these other variants that have happened aside from Delta. Delta was more contagious than the original. It also came to the U.S. at a time when it had been long enough since a number of people had been vaccinated to where it could break through. So there is initially an incorrect belief that Delta was busting through vaccines when in reality what Delta was doing was infecting people whose vaccines had deteriorated because the vaccines, especially the Pfizer, start to deteriorate uh, a lot around the four-month mark. And by five months and six months, uh, you become very vulnerable to getting it again, just not uh, a deadly version typically if you've been vaccinated, but it's been several months. So that's where Delta was breaking through. So the good news was the existing vaccines worked very well against it, but the bad news was if it had been several months, then you could get sick, and a lot of people did. So Delta took over in the U.S. and around the world, and that's it's pretty much everywhere. Delta is COVID right now and has been for quite some time. There has been some belief that maybe it's a good thing that Delta is so contagious because it holds back any other variants that might be a problem that could be worse. So if Delta is preventing ones like Lambda from spreading, which can bust through vaccines, which it's never completely proven, but it was believed it might have the ability to do it, that if it's holding back ones like that and the vaccine does work well against Delta, well, then it's better we have Delta here because we have better control over it. We, we have vaccines that work against it. So Delta may actually be doing us a favor by being so contagious and dominating the other variants. But there has been the concern what happens when a variant shows up that can beat Delta and take over just as Delta beat the original COVID. Well, Omicron is now feared to be that variant. It was first reported from South Africa, but it is actually believed to have originated elsewhere. But where it originated doesn't really matter. But the question becomes, how concerned should we be about Omicron? And how concerned should we keep being about variants which are inevitable? Everybody agrees that variants are highly likely to continue to keep showing up. And people are pretty much coming to accept that COVID is not going away anytime soon. In fact, it may never go away, or at least not in our lifetimes. So people are increasingly of the belief, when I say people, I mean not just average people, but uh, epidemiologists as well. Uh, they're really starting to believe that COVID is going to be endemic, like the flu, and we're just stuck with it. So Given that this seems to be true, especially looking at some very, very highly vaccinated countries that are still experiencing significant COVID problems, where we're not getting the herd immunity that was believed the vaccines would bring us, 
So it's looking like the vaccines just are not stopping COVID enough to where uh, it can't spread and can't continue, especially with these mutations. So it's believed that uh, there's a good chance we're not going to get rid of it. So if there's going to be variants, which there will be, and we're not going to get rid of it, then we have to decide what to do about COVID variants and how we live with it. We can't go into a panic every time, but we're going to a panic here. So immediately travel got shut down from South Africa into a lot of other countries, including the U.S. Then other African countries were blocked from coming into many other countries, including the U.S. Some other countries shut down travel completely from other countries into there. And some of them also were requiring ridiculous quarantine periods if you come in from another country. So international travel has become very tough again. And the attempt was to prevent Omicron from getting into these other countries. Now, this is why it's stupid. When Omicron was identified, that does not mean that they caught it right at the beginning. It means they identified it after a number of people already had it. Furthermore, COVID is most transmissible before people show symptoms, when they're pre-symptomatic. So it's very hard to determine who has come into the country. I'm talking about any country, not just the U.S., but especially the U.S., because there's so much international travel into the U.S. It's very hard to say, well, this variant was just discovered, so we're going to shut down travel now and assume nobody was here that, that had it, and they're not spreading it. I mean, once it's discovered, it's very likely especially in a country with a ton of international travel into it, that a number of people have already come into the country and transmitted it. And the reason we don't know is because, uh, you know, COVID is COVID. So these are assumed to not be Omicron cases. They're assumed to be Delta cases when they're really not. And it takes a lot more study and analysis to figure out if they're Omicron cases. So once it's here, it's here. And as we have learned from both the original COVID and from Delta, Locking down travel doesn't work. You just cannot keep the virus out unless you're a tiny country with very little international travel into your country and the COVID variant in question is not there yet. And even if you are of that description, you're just prolonging the inevitable. You can't just shut down forever. So... Eventually, you're going to have to reopen international travel. Eventually, people are going to bring some variant that uh, will be a problem for your country. It, there's no stopping it. We we already saw this last year. I, I don't blame the travel shutdowns almost two years ago when COVID was first discovered. I, there was little known about COVID. It was thought maybe we could shut down travel into the country and stop it. But now we know that doesn't work. It failed. It's never worked. There has never been any country especially one of any real size, that has locked down travel into a lesser COVID consequence, especially this variant that is so contagious. It's said to be more contagious than Delta. So good luck containing that. And the problem is, even just a few cases spread exponentially because of how contagious it is and because you don't know that you have it until after you've already spread it to people because it's mostly pre-symptomatic spread. So good luck containing it. That's exactly what failed previously. 
We should have learned that these travel lockdowns don't work. They may feel good. They may feel safe. They don't accomplish anything. So stop them. I know it feels weird if you hear there's a Omicron in South Africa to let South African flights come right in here. But that's because we know about it. But it's already been happening. And once we even have a few cases in the country that transmits to so many people, there's no way to control it. It's going to get everywhere. So you might as well give up. You might as well just say, all right, F it. We are accepting the fact that every time there is a new, very contagious variant that is more contagious than the one is currently dominant, that that variant will get into this country and it might take over. And that's the way it is and that's what we have to live with. Now, you also have to look at the variant and see if it's necessarily a bad thing that it takes over. So if the features of the new variant are actually not as bad as the features of Delta, we actually might want it to take over. It might actually be a good thing it takes over. So let's say in the best case scenario, Omicron is very contagious and can take over for Delta and just destroy Delta the same way Delta destroyed original COVID. And it is much less deadly and it causes much fewer long COVID cases where people get something that is uh, permanently with them, like lung damage. And the vaccines work against it very well. That would be the best case scenario, right? Like uh, equivalent to Delta, except uh, much less deadly and much less harmful. Wouldn't that be a better thing to have here than Delta? Yes. Now, it would be better to have nothing, but we've seen we're not going to have nothing. We've seen that it's pretty inevitable it's going to be around. So what we actually want is a variant that is not as troublesome and deadly. We want the milder, more contagious variants to replace what's currently here. As long as they're not busting through vaccines. If they're busting through vaccines, yeah, then we have a problem because then we have people getting sick that otherwise would not have. Now, there is a concern that Omicron is busting through vaccines. And what's interesting is it's been observed so far, and this is not through a lot of cases. You know, as far as verified cases, there aren't that many because they're, it's, it's not a trivial thing to identify which cases are Omicron and which ones aren't, but they have identified some in the U.S. already, and they've identified some in South Africa. So far from what's been seen, in the U.S. and South Africa and other countries that have uh, looked at Omicron are that number one, It does seem to be busting through vaccines somewhat. However, it's not doing as well busting through vaccines of those who have recently had a booster. If you had a booster and it has been two weeks or more since the booster, which is what's considered the time that needs to pass for the booster to really work, then your outcomes with Omicron infecting you tend to be pretty good from what's been seen in the early stages here. However, if you did not have a booster or even if you had a booster recently and it hasn't been the two weeks that have passed for it to really take hold, then uh, there do seem to be more breakthrough cases than there were with Delta. It also seems to be skewing younger than Delta. However, this might be because younger people are uh, not vaccinated as much. And also that younger people may be willing to take more chances as far as being out to catch it. So 
It could be just be skewing younger for those behavioral reasons. Uh, otherwise, it's kind of hard to explain why it's skewing younger. But the problem with it skewing younger so far is that it's harder to compare its deadly effects and its long COVID effects to Delta because COVID is so age-dependent regarding how badly it hits people. Now, this isn't 100%. There are very old people who get a very mild or asymptomatic case of COVID, and there's uh, young and middle-aged people who die from COVID. But if you look at the charts of uh, per capita deaths and per capita hospitalizations, it's tremendously skewed towards older people. In fact, uh, 99% of all deaths in the U.S. are people 35 and up, even though people 35 and up only make a little bit more than half of the population. And yet they're 99% of all COVID deaths. So that's uh, that should tell you a lot right there about how much age matters. So there's been a discussion recently. Oh, look at this New York Times article. It's it's all about weight. Um, you know, so many people who are dying are overweight, blah, blah, blah. You know, if you're skinny, don't worry about it. No. Weight definitely does have an impact. If you're obese, you are at much higher risk of a bad COVID outcome than if you're not obese. But still the biggest factor is age. Age is a tremendous factor. In fact, age is such a tremendous factor across the board that it has been found that a 25-year-old who is fully vaccinated is actually more at risk of bad outcomes from COVID than a 10-year-old who's unvaccinated. Really? So even in that age group, 10 to 25, which is still very young either way, uh, there's still a tremendous difference between the 10-year-old's outcomes and the 25-year-old's outcomes. And uh, you look at a 25-year-old versus 45, another huge difference. 45 and 65, another huge difference. So it, it goes up the whole way. As you get older, it becomes quickly more and more dangerous for you. And it's hard to draw many conclusions when they don't have that many data points yet on Omicron and that most of the cases they're finding are young people who tend to have mild cases anyway. So you're not saying a whole lot to say, oh, well, Look at all these people who are under 35 who are getting Omicron, and they're fine. They're just getting mild illness. Yeah, but what about the people with Delta under 35? Oh, yeah, they also get mild illness. Yeah. Oop. Guess it doesn't say much. So we can't really conclude yet that it's milder, but from what has been seen, even age-adjusted, it does seem to be milder. So there is that caveat that there's relatively few data points, and it's skewing younger, which makes it tougher to judge. But... It does seem to be milder than Delta. And that part's actually good news. Now, the vaccine busting that it might be doing is bad news. So it's kind of mixed news so far with Omicron. There seems to be some uh, ability to bust through the vaccine. So it's not rendering the vaccines useless. So don't say, oh, well, what a waste. Why did I even get vaccinated? Now, now it's going to bust through. No, it, there does seem to be benefits you're still getting from the vaccine, even if you don't have a booster. But uh, it looks like it might be better at busting through the vaccine than Delta is. So that might be bad news. And I know Moderna and Pfizer are working on an Omicron version of the booster, which may or may not be needed. And the problem here is that it's going to be a while until we get the truth from the government. And 
you have Dr. Fauci out there who is basically just a government mouthpiece. You really can't trust him. He, he says what the government wants him to say. And Dr. Fauci has been saying, well, we, we might need uh, an Omicron variant uh, booster. We also might not. The, the current boosters might be fine. You may not need anything extra, but you also might. So the problem is the government's not going to want to admit that we need this until it's available. And it's not available right now. So they do not want to discourage people from getting vaccinated. Because what if you hear that the current vaccine is not very good at stopping the Omicron variant? And that pretty soon we're going to be told to take an Omicron vaccine. Well, you may, you'll probably say, F it. I'm either going to just quit these vaccines entirely because it's too much of a pain in the ass to keep doing this every few months. Or, okay, I'll do it, but I'm not going to do this booster. I'm just going to wait until uh, the Omicron version comes out. I'm not going to take the booster now or even get vaccinated for the first time now and then have to, in a few months, jump and do the, the Omicron one. Why am I going to do this twice? It's dumb, you may say. So the government knows this. Fauci knows this. So for what they consider might be public health benefits, they might think it's better to tell the noble lie of we don't foresee that we're going to need this for sure. We might, we might not. So in the meantime, keep getting the regular vaccination. It's going to help you. Even though they could know right now that we're going to need it. And that's the problem. We, we don't get the truth. We get told what is assumed is going to make us behave in the way they want us to. They say, if the result is more people getting vaccinated, we'll say this. doesn't matter if we're lying. As long as, as long as we get more people vaccinated, then we're doing good for the country. So if we got to lie to make it happen, we got to lie to make it happen. It's going to save lives. That's, that's the attitude. But it's dangerous because once you lose the public trust, which we already have to a large degree, then long term, that ends up hurting you because nobody's going to believe anything you say. That's why you can't tell these noble lies. You just got to be honest. So if it really is believed we're going to need an Omicron variant, they, they need to be honest with the people. Otherwise, when it comes time to get the Omicron booster, you're going to have a lot of refusals. You're going to have a lot of people say, no, we just got this damn booster in December, in January. Now you're here in March telling us we need this other one. F, we're not doing it. No, no. You're going to have a lot of people saying that. You do not want to tell people to get a fourth shot a few months after their third shot. It's going to be so unappealing, especially to people who do not tolerate these shots very well, such as me. And I'm not even talking about these recent problems I had, which may also be a result of the shot that I got in October. I'm talking about just the illness that definitely is from the shot, the days of illness I had, days of illness other people have. It's pretty common. So they go through that shit, and then a few months later, oh, yeah, you got to do it again. Fewer and fewer people are willing to do it. With every booster, you're going to lose people. So that's what they don't want, is that people get vaccine fatigue and won't do it. So just be honest. If if it's really believed we're going to need this, then say, okay, you know, you'll probably need an Omicron booster in a few months, or there's a good chance you will. So if you don't want to get the booster right now for the existing vaccine, we understand. It'll give you maximum protection, but uh, we're going to be honest with you. You're going to need another one in a few months, so you make your own decision. That'll be refreshing for people to hear. So I don't know. Now, maybe it is correct that they just simply can't tell right now. 
So Fauci might be telling the truth, but he also might not. It's very hard to tell with him and with anyone from the government talking about what we're going to have to do with anything coming up. Remember with the booster, when they were lying about that? I talked about that on a recent show. Oh, you're not going to need a booster, don't worry. And then it turns into, oh, okay, well, yeah, you'll need one, but only eight months after. Then it turns into, well, I actually need it at six months after. Actually, it was a middle stage. You need it six months after only if you were in a vulnerable population. And then, oh, no, actually, everybody needs six months. I knew for a long time it was six months. It was probably less than six months. I, I knew that eight months was BS. I knew that you won't need a booster as BS. Once Pfizer said, yeah, we've, we've been studying this, you're going to need a booster. I'm like, oh, okay. We're going to need one. They're just not going to admit it because they want more people to initially vaccinate. It was so predictable. So these noble lies are a killer, and it, it really sucks. You can't trust what your own government's telling you. So I guess we're going to have to see. How do I feel about this Omicron? Uh, I've got mixed feelings. The last thing I want to find out is that it's busting through the vaccines at a pretty high rate. Because here I'm feeling pretty good about my chances of not catching COVID. That's why I was willing to play the main event where, in fact, COVID ended up uh, at a pretty high rate. I was right in the same room with it for all that time. And I didn't get it. And that may have been thanks to the booster. So I felt pretty good about my protection at that point. Whereas before the booster, I was starting to get nervous. Not quite as nervous as I was before the vaccine, but I was starting to get nervous. I was starting to curtail my appearances in places that were indoors and had a lot of people. Now, I don't do that anymore. Now, I'm treating COVID again like it doesn't exist. And that should be the goal, that everybody just treats COVID like it doesn't exist. We should want to get back to normal life. But I mean totally normal, not mask normal. I mean totally normal. And that's the way I treat COVID right now. But before I got the booster, I was not treating it that way. But if I hear that Omicron is taking hold, and it hasn't taken hold in the U.S. It's in the U.S., but so far Delta is by far the most dominant variant. I mean, Omicron's just a, a, a tiny sliver of it right now, but that can change very quickly. But if Omicron really gets going and I'm hearing it's breaking through the vaccines, I, I'm, I'm going to be avoiding it again. And it sucks. I won't be quite the way I was in 2020 when I wasn't vaccinated at all, but I, I don't want to get this especially at this age. With that, I'll be unhappy. At least I've kind of gotten used to Delta. Delta is kind of predictable. With Delta, I know what I'm getting. And I know when I have protection against it and when I don't. So I felt very confident going to the World Series of Poker with Delta, even knowing it might be in the same room with me. I had just gotten the booster a few weeks prior. Perfect. But before that booster, I would not have wanted to be there. That's why I didn't play any other events. I didn't even go to the Dodgers playoff games until some time had passed after my booster. There wasn't two weeks, but at least a number of days. But that's not indoors. There's only small parts that are indoors. The rest of it's outdoors, so it's a lot safer than something like the World Series. So yeah, if it's busting through vaccines, it'll make me kind of upset. If it's not, or not doing it at a high rate, or if people with a booster are pretty safe, provided it's been two weeks, then I'll actually be fine with it, because... If it's really less deadly and people with a booster are protected from it, 
then okay, it's within everybody's power to make the decision to get the booster and be protected from it. Now, you may say, wait a minute, Drew, you were just saying earlier in the show that all these problems you've had recently, like when you couldn't walk last week, may have been the result of the booster. So how could you be saying people should get that? And I'm saying, well, you got to make your decision. you got to say, would I rather open up myself to getting COVID and the effects of that or deal with the chance that the vaccine might harm me in some way? And the vaccine harming you doesn't necessarily mean it's going to kill you or ruin your life. It could just mean it's, it's going to bring on things that are unpleasant. There, there's no easy answer to this. Now, the older you are, the easier the answer becomes as far as getting the booster, as far as getting vaccinated at all. It becomes more and more correct to get the maximum protection the older you are. So if you're older and you don't want to do this, then you don't have that much of a leg to stand on because of how dangerous COVID is to you. If you're young, it it makes a lot more sense to say, you know what, these vaccines are a little bit scary. I'll take my chances with COVID. It makes a lot more sense to say that if you were young. It makes a lot more sense to say that about your kids than it does if you're over 45 or even over 40. So we're just going to have to watch. And don't watch what your government tells you. Look at the hard data yourself when it becomes available. Look at what's happening. Look at who is getting it. Look at how much it's breaking through vaccines. Look at when it does break through vaccines if these are people with boosters or not. Look at how deadly it is. Look at what you think you want your personal risk to be, what's acceptable to you. And it's different for each person. There's some people who say, I'm not going to let this bother me. I'm going to go out and live life. And as long as I don't think I'm going to die, I'll do it. Or there's some people who even go further. They'll say, I'm just going to do it. And if it happens to get me, it gets me. F it. There's some people who take that attitude. Some are sorry when they actually get a terrible case of it and they're on the way to dying, but uh, that's been some people's attitudes. There's others who are hyper-cautious, who say that any chance they get COVID is unacceptable. Now, personally, I'm actually closer to that side. I don't want to get this. I really don't want to get this. Some people have asked, what do you think? You're going to avoid this for the rest of your life? And I say, no, but I'm hoping to avoid this long enough for there to be a therapy that can at least really, really put an end to anything problematic it does. So I can pop a pill or get a shot or whatever it might be to really make the symptoms mild and bring my chance of uh, a very bad illness or long COVID or even hospitalization or death down very low. Now, I think at the moment I have the hospitalization and death covered pretty well since there's not that many people who are triple vaxxed getting hospitalized who are my age. But as far as uh, moderate level illness, which means very sick but not quite hospitalized and maybe you get long COVID as a result that's still very much on the table for these breakthroughs and that's that's what I don't want that's what I'm most concerned about at this point and I'm afraid that Omicron could bring this to me so it sucks like just when I think that I can relax 
I hear about something like this. But with that said, we have to accept that this is going to just keep happening. And we also have to accept the things that feel good don't necessarily bring us good results. So that doesn't mean lockdown travel. That doesn't mean more mask mandates. It doesn't mean more restrictive rules. It means we need to come up with sensible policy about living with COVID. That's not going to save every life. It's not. But something that is acceptable, something that attacks the major risks of COVID and something that minimizes the deaths on a grand scale, not trying to eke out a little bit extra survival or outcomes at the expense of a lot of freedom, at the expense of uh, having to have more restrictions. At some point, it's not worth it from a public policy standpoint. Now, sucks for you if you happen to be one of the people that uh, was the small difference there, but you can say that about anything. You always have to balance in public policy convenience and quality of life versus safety. The safest life is not the best life. The best life is one that uh, has a combination, an optimal combination of uh, convenience, quality of life, and safety. And people forget that with COVID. And you want to give people choices too. You don't want to do a one-size-fits-all solution. You want to have those who are very concerned about COVID. You want them to have the ability to operate in the fashion they want. And you want the people who are willing to take more risk to be able to do so. And you have to get out of your head, oh, well, what about people still spreading it around? Uh, it's going to keep spreading. It's it's going to keep spreading. It, the, the whole argument of get vaccinated so this stops, that's over. That's done. We, we see in highly vaccinated countries, it's not stopping. It's not going to. So we need to give up on that. We need to give up on if you don't get vaccinated, that you're somehow hurting the rest of us. You might be hurting the rest of us a little and that you're more contagious, but it shouldn't be looked at that way. We, we need to look at this more along the lines of how do we live with this and what major things that we can do that have been proven to have a major impact. So vaccination, that's had a major impact on what COVID does on a grand scale. People who are vaccinated have much, much better outcomes than those who are not vaccinated. So that is something to push. That makes sense to push. This COVID pill they've been talking about that is uh, coming out very soon, that may be a game changer. So if that is, then push that too. Things that are going to make a big difference, push that. Don't push masking. Masking has never been proven to make any kind of real impact. There's a few studies claiming it has a small impact, but that's not good enough. There's too much inconvenience with it. It's, uh, it may not even be helpful at all, the cloth masking. And if it is, it's very little. We need to get away from things that are negligible, that, that do a little bit at best. We need to get away from that if it's restricting life, even a little bit. Some people say, oh, who cares? Put on a mask. It's a pain in the ass. There's a lot of things that suck about masking. It's uncomfortable. 
there's a lot of things about it that are just unpleasant. It's not good for social situations. There's a lot of things about masking, which is not the end of the world, but it's not something we should just accept as the new normal. And there's some who want it to be the new normal, but it shouldn't be. If the benefits are not clear, and we should see by now, we can see right now where we're seeing the big benefits and where we're seeing either no benefit or small benefits. And and anything that's no benefit or small benefits, throw out. Just say, we're not doing it anymore. We're done. This felt good. This seemed like it was a good idea. Turned out it wasn't. F it. So this includes masking. This includes six-foot distancing. This includes travel lockdowns. This includes restrictions on what people can do. Throw that out the window. Throw all, everything out. Even throw out vaccine mandates. Throw it all out. Instead, replace it with a sensible and honest campaign about what vaccination will do for you and what it won't do for you and why people should do it and which age groups are more important to do it. Stop trying to trick the 25-year-olds into believing that uh, vaccination is as important for them as for their parents. It's not. Don't mandate it for kids. Don't have kids in masks in elementary school. Notice we're not seeing the school outbreaks. It's been three months of school, more than three months, three and a half months of school. Where's the school outbreaks? Why haven't they happened? Yeah, you'll see a school here and there reporting a lot of COVID cases, but it's always in a community where there's tons of COVID cases. So they're getting it from their parents. We're not seeing it where one classroom has COVID ripped through the classroom. How come? How come this isn't happening with all these unvaccinated kids in elementary school? Why isn't it? Because, because they're not transmitting. They're barely transmitting. So, so don't restrict their childhood by having them wearing masks all day and distancing from one another and separating classes from one another. So people who were friends that can't see their classmates. I mean, you, you have kids that are having friendships fade prematurely because their friend from last year, they can't play with anymore because it's, uh, they're, they're in another class now. They can't interact with each other. And these things all have consequences. They, they take their toll on kids. There's, there's so much more depression that's being seen in kids since COVID began, like a lot more. And these are public health issues far more than COVID is. We have to drop all that crap. We know now what makes the difference and what doesn't make the difference. The vaccines make a difference. All this other stuff does not. So get rid of it. Why? Because we have to live with it. We have to go back to normal. And here's another benefit of getting rid of it. If you get rid of all this crap and say that everybody's free to do what they want, but we are strongly recommending the vaccine for this reason. This is the one thing we're not getting rid of because this is the important stuff. Then people will take it more seriously. But the problem is Here's what we have at the moment. This, this is a big problem. You have the left that is married to their initial conclusions about COVID, some of which are, are incorrect. And they don't want to admit they were wrong because then it looks like that uh, they made the wrong decision and uh, no one's going to trust them. So they have to stick with what they originally said when we knew much less about COVID. So instead of saying, hey, masking looked like a good idea at the time, but it turned out it's not very useful. So F it, take off the cloth mask, just live normally. It may feel like it's saving you. It's not. So forget it. We, we don't see any noticeable impact. Take them off. They, they don't want to say that because they're married to 
the cult of the mask. They they want you to believe that uh, they're the party that believes in safety and the masking, and the and Republicans are the uh, irresponsible ones who want nobody to mask and want to get everybody sick and die. So they, they've got to stick to that. They're they're afraid if they abandon it, they're going to look like fools. They they they'll make it look like they weren't following the science. So they they have to stick to it. They feel they're they're married to it. So they're married to that. They're married to the six foot distancing. All these things that were the were just guessed at at the beginning of the pandemic that turned out to we don't see any tangible results uh, we're still continuing as if they are producing tra- tangible results and it's insane and then you have on the other side the right which has become so distrusting of everything that's coming from the government and the media that whatever they're told to do they want to do the opposite so look at the vaccine look how well it's working sorry we're not doing it nah, you're lying no the vaccine's harmful no, the vaccine is bad. No, we're not taking it. And that's the other thing. Be honest about the vaccine. Be honest about the risk. If you tell people there's no risk, they're not going to believe you and they're going to think you're covering something up. Be honest. Say, yeah, there's a risk. Yes, there is. And if you're this age, this is why it's especially important. If you're younger, uh, we, we still say to do it, but uh, it's not as important. Just be totally level with people. Just be honest. And then you're going to get much better results. We also have on the other side, we have the right who does not want to admit they were wrong about the vaccine. So you don't want to have people on the, you can have people on the right who uh, don't want to say, okay, yeah, so we were kind of uh, foolish all this time saying we're not going to take the vaccine and uh, now we're going to start taking it. Yeah, you, the Democrats are right about this. Like You're not going to have the right saying that either. So you have both sides sticking to incorrect conclusions they made where they chose one side or the other of the COVID matter. And even though it's become pretty clear if you look at the data, if it's pretty clear if you look at what works and what doesn't, what we should do and what we should stop bothering with, uh, nobody wants to give in. And as long as we're in that situation, we're going to see a lot of wrong decisions, like these dumb travel lockdowns, like these the, the comeback of the mask mandates, a lot of people not getting vaccinated who should. And I, I think really the government owes it to the people to give an honest explanation of everything and let them make their own decisions. And yeah, there'll be people that make the wrong decision, but there are people making the wrong decision now, even with the messages they're trying to put out because there's no trust. It's amazing how much better decisions are made when there's trust. And that's what they're missing here. You don't have to make everything you're trying to get people to do seem like it's a perfect choice. Look at the crazy stories that have come out about the vaccine because they're trying to push this false narrative that the vaccine is super safe. Well, it's not. It's not super safe. But it's more safe than COVID, especially for people of a certain age. That should be the message. Message should be there's a lot of unknown with this, but there's a lot of unknown with COVID. And look how many people died of COVID, especially older people. And, uh, You'll be honest, put out on TV, 99% of COVID deaths are people over 35. That I think will shock a lot of people 35 and over to get the vaccine. Don't don't put out these outlier cases where a 21-year-old dies because that that's dishonest. It makes people uh, look around and go, wait a minute, I don't, I don't know any people in their 20s who died of COVID. How come I don't know any of these people? How come every 20-something-year-old I know hasn't had a bad outcome from COVID? So they're lying to us. They're just trying to find uh, rare cases and make it seem like it's common. F them. They're, they're being dishonest. That's what happens. It really sucks. I don't even know what to think about Omicron. I, I, I don't know what to think about Omicron.
I wish I had an answer for you. Turn down the TV and... and uh, now then, we will begin with the firemen, then the math teachers, and so on in that fashion until everyone is eaten. Transmission over. <sighs> okay, end of that rant. End of the show. Hope you enjoyed Poker Fraud Alert Radio after our layoff here that was not expected, but sometimes life throws uh, unexpected things at me. I'll admit something else. During the show, I actually harmed that problem foot. I accidentally banged it into the leg of the chair. Boy, did that hurt. (laughs) So hopefully I haven't set myself back. (laughs) That did not feel the way it would normally feel. I didn't hit it that hard. Like if it was the other foot, I would have been totally fine. This happened a few hours ago. I I tried to suck it up, though, and pretend like I was in not pain, but I was in pretty bad pain. So who knows what's happening here? I guess on the good side, I can walk. I can walk without a limp. And... I don't have everything like swelling up and making it look like I might have congestive heart failure. So, I mean, that's, these are good things to say. I'm healthy enough to do radio. And I got through the whole show. In fact, uh, I'll tell you guys listening in the archives, there was no break tonight. This morning, I guess. Not tonight anymore. It's now 8.30 something in the morning. Uh, I didn't take a break. I talked all the way through. I meant to take a break. I just didn't take a break. The number of breaks I took... Zero point zero. Well, it feels good to be back. I miss doing the show. You may wonder, when is the next show? My answer, I don't know. So follow uh, Poker Fraud Alert on Twitter. Twitter.com slash Poker Fraud Alert. And you will eventually find out when the next show is. Well... I want to thank everybody who gave me advice when I was having my health issues this past week. Some of you were aware of what was going on, and I got a lot of really nice texts of people trying to give me advice of what they did when they had gout. Now, unfortunately, as I mentioned during that segment, it looks like I don't have gout. So I probably can't use that advice, but maybe I can in the future if I actually do get a gout attack in my foot, which is possible because I've had it in my hands before. But this time, I don't know what it was. But I do appreciate that a lot of you cared enough to take the time to send this to me and to message me, some of you for the first time ever, to tell me what you thought might help. A lot of people came out of the woodwork. Anyway, we will have... At least one more episode in 2021. I think we're going to have two. So check twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert for the announcement of the date of the next episode, which I don't know right now, but it won't be too long from now. At least I think it probably won't be. And then we should have one the following week, and that should close out 2021. And we will move closer to our 10th anniversary of the show. Yes. We began in March of 2012. It was so long ago that it was less than a year after Black Friday. Doesn't that seem like ages ago? 
But yeah, Poker Fraud Alert has been up for almost 10 years, and we will do something for our 10-year anniversary of the site. The anniversary of the show is a bit later, but it's very close to one another. So we're going to do some kind of celebration for Poker Fraud Alert's 10-year anniversary, which will be on March 2nd, 2022. As always, thank you for listening. I appreciate everybody that takes the time to listen to what I have to say whenever I come on here. Good night, good morning, and shalom.